This is Jocko Podcast number 192 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Time is supposed to be a constant. A day is a day, and an hour is an hour, and a second is supposed to be a second. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. And you get one life made up of years, hopefully, that stack up on top of one another. And they are all supposed to measure the same amount of time, those years. But they don't always do that. There are days that seem to last forever. There are seconds that stall and remain suspended in some kind of bizarre slow motion and that's the way life actually is parts of it are bigger than other parts they have more impact the time continuum gets expanded and hyper awareness drags out the hours and the days and they leave an indelible impression on your soul. And it could be a good thing that causes this. Maybe it was maybe it was winning the championship game in high school. Maybe it was surfing your first wave or your first parachute jump or maybe it was holding your newborn child for the first time. But maybe it was a bad thing car accident, a fire, being told someone you, someone you knew had a major health issue. Perhaps it was that moment when you were told that one of your loved ones had died. You remember where you were, the words you heard, And you remember the anguish you felt. And these incidents, good or bad, they leave a mark. Most of these incidents are short, maybe a few minutes, maybe an hour. Maybe it stretches out to a day. But in combat, you experience these kind of impactful moments day after day, week after week, month after month. You're regularly faced with highly charged emotions and life and death situations and shots of adrenaline. You don't get much sleep and the food is horrible. And you live under the constant foreboding weight of one of your men being wounded or killed and it doesn't stop. It doesn't let up. 
And the end of one operation is actually only just the beginning of another one, each one with its own risk. And each one with its own reward. And that risk and that reward is what you begin to live off of, like a gambling addict that can't walk away from the table. You can't bring yourself to walk away. So, you carry on. And eventually you and the men by your side have lived lifetimes worth of life in a matter of months. And those men, the ones that survive, become your brothers. And the ones that don't survive become your heroes. And that part of your life, that part of your life becomes the standard to which all other parts are measured. Because when you're holding a machine gun in your hands and you're with your brothers in arms and there are other men out there with guns and bombs of their own and they're looking to kill you. When your whole world can be reduced to what is happening right here, right now, in this moment. Well, when you experience that, then other so-called normal things can seem mundane. And yet, you carry on. You carry on with life, with work, with family, with birthdays and barbecues and the days tick by. And you get a little older. And when you pause, you can even see the end up there in the distance. Still far enough off that you don't need to think about it too much, but close enough to let you know it's there. And you know you already got more time than you deserved. And you're thankful for that. And in your mind, you can still picture the faces of those who will not grow old. And they gave this to you. Those times and those men made you who you are. And you're thankful. Thankful that you knew those men. Thankful that you got those moments. All of those moments. The exhilaration and the terror. The joy and the despair. 
pride and the humility. You're thankful you got to experience it all. And like I said, that experience leaves, it leaves a mark. It changes you, it changes you in some way. I was reading recently and I came across this. My old self and new self weren't compatible. I felt awkward. I missed my men badly. I felt a sense of loss at the same time I felt guilt and shame. It shouldn't have taken the army to wake me up to the shallow life I had. Right then I knew coming home was going to be much harder on me than I had expected. I wanted to run. Find a place just for me and figure this all out in beautiful solitude. My old life was gone. Dead. Burned away by mortar fire and the sonic crack of AK rounds passing overhead. I began to wonder if any of it could be saved. Could I take the pieces with me into the future? Or was I going to have to rebuild from scratch? And that is from a book, from a book called Outlaw Platoon written by a soldier, a ranger, a leader, an infantry officer, and a platoon commander in the hallowed 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan in 2006, 2007, and on top of all that, a father, a speaker, and an author of several books, a guy by the name of Sean Parnell, and we are lucky enough today to have Sean with us on the podcast. Sean, thanks for coming on, man. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, reading your book definitely brought back a lot of memories for me, and I never fought in Afghanistan. Uh, I fought in Iraq. But man, you really captured... You captured a lot. You captured the the pressure. You captured the grind. You captured the drama. You captured the the politics. Um, and it was very interesting. I was I was probably about I was probably about fifty pages in, and it occurred to me. I said, "When has this taken place?" Because I'd kind of I'd kind of missed the fr- the very first thing. So I went back to the beginning just to read that opening line to find out when it was. And this this whole thing took place. And the bulk of the fighting took place in 2006, in the summer of 2006, which is which is exactly when I was in Ramadi. So, you uh, you were you were 
going through what you were going through the same exact time I was over in Ramadi. We were both fighting the same thing in different theaters or different different countries. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I just learned that now. But, I mean, I remember hearing uh, in Afghanistan that Ramadi was like hell on earth. You know, in 2006, it was a really, really tough time. And, and um, this was around the time when, you know, Americans flipped on their TV sets and watched newscasters talk about the surge day in and day out. Remember that? Like the surge was the big policy debate on Capitol Hill. Yeah. All this. Yeah, they de- hadn't executed it yet. They were talking about right. it. Right. They didn't execute it, execute it until 2007, like when we were supposed to go home. We yeah. were, uh, But they sent the unit to replace us over to Iraq as part and in support of the surge. But, you know, they had their own battles waging on Capitol Hill, and we were waging our own, our own life and death battles in Afghanistan and Iraq at the exact same time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but, yeah, you did, a, you did a ridiculously good job with this book. I, I, was, um, I read it really fast. And, I mean, let's just get into it, man. Sure. Let's just get into it. Um, here we go. Outlaw platoon. Staff Sergeant Greg Greason, Lieutenant Taylor's weapon squad leader, shouted, shouted at us, incoming, get inside the wire now. His words acted like ice water to the face. Lieutenant Taylor and I sprinted our sergeants after our sergeants and back to the fob. With our new home at 7,000 feet, it took a few seconds before my lungs started to burn from lack of oxygen. I stopped at the concrete pad next to my gear and watched Greason and the other sergeants dash off toward the battalion aid station. Taylor bolted into the operations center. What the hell do I do? I felt rooted in place, observing the action around me with yet, yet with no purpose of my own. Captain Kennedy, am I saying that right? Yes. Captain Kennedy ran into view. Some kids got hit with those rounds. They're at the front gate. My legs started to move. I felt myself run after Kennedy, wanting to go faster but feeling an impenetrable wall between will and action. We rounded a corner perhaps 50 yards away. I could see some of the 173rd Airborne soldiers opening the front gate. Crying, distraught Afghan civilians poured into the base. I kept running. Then I saw the kids. I heard their screams. A few thrashed in agony. Others lay still in their parents' arms. I dropped my rifle, pulled my helmet off, and dumped my body armor in the dirt and sprinted the last stretch to the scene. One of the interpreters was shouting at an angry father. Two more Afghan dads ganged up on him, yelling insistently. Finally, a soldier demanded, Abdul, what the hell are they saying? Abdul, his face a mask of rage, replied, they're telling me to make sure the boys get treated before the girls. Get them all to the battalion aid station. Abdul turned to the fathers and passed that order to them. They shook their heads and shouted to him again. Abdul announced, they refuse. They want the boys treated first. Grab them all, the the soldier roared again. The other men at the gate picked up some of the wounded kids. Perhaps seven were still alive. I scooped up the nearest child and turned to follow the other soldiers as they dashed for the aid station. I'd taken a half of a dozen steps before I realized I had a little girl in my arms. I looked down at her. She wore a tan dress that felt like burlap in my hands. The collar was ornate, red and green, with little designs that converged on a a V-neck. She felt so light. It's okay, it's okay, I said to her. Her eyes were bright emerald green, deep and filled with pain. Her raven hair was splayed across her face and plastered to her skin by her tears. She keened hysterically, 
pain racked and panicked. Her pitch hurt my ears. I kept running, her head and shoulders cradled in my left hand, her slight body pressed against my ribs, hip and thigh, and my right forearm. Her left flank, her left hand flailed. She gasped, then screamed again. It seemed to never end. It's okay, it's okay. I began to wonder who I was talking to, the girl or myself. Keep running. Her breathing grew ragged, her screams choppy. I glanced down at her. Her eyes were growing dull. She stared up at me, this stranger in uniform, and I could see the terror in those fading eyes. With my right hand, I tried to brush her hair off her face. Instead, my fingers smeared blood across her cheek. I sensed warmth on my thigh. What was that? I wanted to look down, but something stopped me. My legs carried us forward in autopilot mode as I fixed, as my eyes fixed on hers. She screamed again, hoarse and weak this time. The warmth spread to my hip and trickled past my knee. I couldn't bear to look. When I did, my brain didn't register what my eyes saw. One barefoot, tiny delicate toes covered in brown dust, crimson dots splattered on her cocky dress, which now rode high above her knees. Tendrils of torn, burnt flesh tapered below the other knee to a bleeding stump. A white stripe of bone projected through the ruined skin and muscle. I lost my stride and looked up to regain my balance. The little girl uttered a deep, guttural cry. One step, a second, perhaps a third before I realized she wasn't screaming anymore. Aid station. We have to make it to the aid station. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Her hand fell away. Her neck grew slack in my cradling hand. This is not happening. How long did it take me to look down at her again? Her breast grew shallow. The warmth continued to spread. I looked down. Her fear was gone. The spark in her eyes snuffed out. The world around me went on. Soldiers ran. Parents cried. Abdul argued. Kennedy barked orders. And I held a dead child in my arms. I sleepwalked back to her parents. Her mother, clad in a black burqa that covered her face, sobbed into her hands. Her father regarded me stoically. I realized that this little girl had inherited his green eyes. I handed him his daughter's body. He turned and walked through the gate, her barefoot. Those tiny, sculpted toes dangled limply by his side. I watched them go, stripped of words. So there's your welcome to Afghanistan. Yeah, all that, uh, all that on day one. You know, I mean, I mean, for me, you know, that that was the moment that begun inside myself. You know, a metamorphosis. You know, where, you know, one of the things that struck me about that moment was that, like, here, you know, I have a moment that is so jarring, shook me to my core of who I was, affected me to the very soul of the the man that I was. And the world just kept ticking around you, you know. Uh, the world—it was as, almost as if like the world didn't even notice that this little girl had died in my very first day there. And you know, I remember bringing her back to her father, him stoically nodding at me. And I remember going back to my room, uh, that my that my newly assigned hooch, right, of these just like f- f- 
plywood walls, you know, and I got this little bunk and little desk for my computer. I was the, I was the platoon leader of my platoon. I got my little laptop there, picture my grandparents. And I just remember sitting against the corner of my bunk, you know, in this bloodstained uniform for what felt like hours, right? And I just, I remember being sick to my stomach, take off that uniform, put on my PTs, intent to go to like, my intent was to go to the, to the gym, blow off some steam, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Just stared at that uniform on the floor of my of my hooch and I just like how trying to ask you know trying to I feel like answer a pretty simple question and that you know I was 24 years old I had never been in charge of anything before in my entire life the job that I had before the one that I had right now was you know history major (laughs) you know uh the biggest responsibility that I had before taken over that platoon was trying to get to class on time, you know, and I just remember asking myself over and over and over again, it's like, how, how am I supposed to experience things like that moments like that? Um, but then lead my men with confidence, you know, be the decisive leader that they deserved. They deserve, right. Um, that they were trained to expect. Um, they deserved a leader that could handle moments like that and and endure, you know, and I couldn't figure it out. I, I really never – I don't feel like I ever I ever had a healthy answer to that question. The, the, the way that I answered it in that moment was like I'm just going to take this experience and lock it away deep in the deepest recesses of myself and my mind and in my consciousness and never talk about it again. Pretend like it didn't happen flip that emotional switch, you know, uh, shield myself from the pain of it. Um, and let's, you know, to me, to me, like, you know, this is not like a, by the way, this is not a poor me story. I volunteered for this. I do it all again in a second. I, I don't regret a single second of my experience. Um, the military does a damn good job training you to go shoot rifles and stuff, you know, train your men, shoot, move and communicate together. Great. Awesome. Hua. I love it. Every second of it. Um, but nothing can prepare you, a young 24 year old kid who's never left the country for a moment like that. You know, it just changes who you are to the very core of who you are. And so, yeah, I pretended like it didn't happen. I remember scooping that uniform up, walking it outside of, of my base, throwing it in this burn pit on my first night in Afghanistan, I watched that bloody uniform burn and inside me and i think looking back inside me i remember feeling like okay there's some sort of metamorphosis happening here um when i look back now it's almost as if in a very literal sense i was shedding this sort of insular stateside skin that i had in the form of that bloody uniform it's like i am not the same person anymore you know the same guy that like went drinking with his buddies every every thirsty thursday in the streets of pittsburgh like that guy is not there is not i'm not the same person anymore and that experience was really was it was the beginning of a metamorphosis inside me from in, insulated American citizen to warrior combat veteran, and that was the first of 485 days of absolute hell. And the hell, I mean, I I don't lose a wink of sleep over the things that we did over there. I'm proud of every second of it. You know, there are a lot of people that that we took off the face of this planet that didn't deserve to live. You know, they made their living preying on the weak. 
and they didn't deserve the life that they have. And I'm proud of the stuff that we did, but we, we never hurt civilians. It was always the kids and kids and civilians that were caught in the middle that, that you remember and think about. And that, that first experience, that first day, every single day of my life, I think about that. You know, I've got three amazing little kids of my own and you know, it's like, I can, this might sound, I mean, it probably won't sound strange to you, but you know, I look in the eyes of my kids and there's like this spark of vitality there, right? Um, that I almost envy in a lot of ways. It's not if you call it innocence, call it, you know, insulated existence in the best country in the face of the planet. I don't know. But I feel like I look in the mirror at myself and I don't have that anymore. And I remember watching that little that little girl on my first day and her pass uh, from this earth. And when she did, she didn't have that anymore either. Mm-hmm. And so... There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that little Afghan girl and and how she she changed me in some way, that experience changed me in some way, and how that in some way connects to my own kids and the type of father I'll be. I don't know. I don't have answers to any of these questions, but um it's it's kind of crazy, man. Like I haven't I haven't cracked that book since it since I've finished writing it. You know, and so to hear it, to hear you read it here now is almost like surreal to me. It gives me goosebumps because it brings back my experience. So it's, it's so close to home. Um, but yeah, man, it, I, sometimes I forget getting farther and farther away from the war, how much it really did affect me. I was real lucky in the fact that I was old. Like when I was a task unit commander, when I was a platoon commander in Iraq, I was like 30 something years old. When I was a task unit commander in Iraq, I'd been in the teams for 15 years. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I got really lucky in that regard. You know, I was a prior enlisted guy, so I had yeah. eight years of being enlisted. Yeah, you got thrown right in it, you know? And there's been quite a few guys I've had on this podcast. I know I had uh, James Webb on here and he went, he went from from OC or from the academy to the basic school, got done with the basic school, had whatever, 12 days of leave, got to Vietnam. They, they brought him out on a patrol. They pointed at a ridgeline and they said, your platoon's up there. And he, he walked up to his platoon and he took over a platoon. And the, there was no one to replace because the guy that he was replacing was either killed or wounded. So there was a sergeant running the platoon. And he said, he said, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, first Lieutenant Webb, I'm here to take over. And yeah, here we go. And then that night they had a massive firefight and he had to call for close air support and everything else. Was, yeah. he, was he an army guy? Marine Corps. So Marine Corps army. I mean, I feel like even Marine Corps, they send, I mean, first Lieutenant, right? Yeah. You get to be a platoon commander in the Marine Corps. I think at first Lieutenant, like yeah. it's only the army where they send the brand new butter, <laughs> butter bars into. Actually, no, br- he might've been a second Lieutenant. I was in Vietnam. Yeah, I it might have been. Was, actually, was. But I mean, isn't that? It's just I yeah. just find that to be, you know, I had. I mean, I had, look. I I'm telling you right now, I had absolutely no idea what the hell I was doing when I got to my platoon, and and I wasn't even I wasn't even an infantry lieutenant. Like one of the 16 or so branches at the time of the army, infantry was one of them. I asked for it, I didn't get it. Um, I ended up begging, borrowing, and stealing my way into the infantry. Um, I think there's a leadership lesson there, but I ended up begging to get into that branch. I did. I had no infantry training whatsoever when I took over my platoon. They sent me, like, I got basically a call from my infantry branch manager saying, like, 
you know, hey, congratulations, you know, you got your branch transferred infantry, you're going to ranger school in February. And I was like, oh, shit, shit. And so I went to ranger school, failed the first time, like, you know, pretty much I do everything in life, fail the first time, <laughs> beg the commander to stay. He lets me stay. I recycle. I go back and I make it through and I get sent to my platoon. And I took over my platoon. No infantry experience whatsoever. I was sort of the black sheep of the battalion. Well, other than, other than ranger school. I other mean, than that's ranger school, yeah. I mean, but I mean. solid baseline. Well, the officer basic course for infantry guys is 16 weeks. Right. Uh, and yeah. so they they get 16 weeks of what is essentially orders writing and ranger prep and all this. I was an air defense artillery guy. Like we didn't get any of that stuff. It was just like <laughs> what we trained on. I was short ad, short range, you know, air and missile defense, short range air defense and infantry platoons don't carry stingers anymore. I'm pretty sure SEAL, te- SEAL teams don't carry stingers anymore. I, I went to stinger school. Just you went to so did I. I, did, so did I. I mean, <laughs> yeah, where's that in Texas? Somewhere. Yes, I was in El Paso. Yes, but yes, yeah, that's where my first school. duty assignment. But that, yeah, but I, I ended up getting to my unit at the 10th Mountain Division. Um, I didn't have any infantry training whatsoever, so it was like talk about walking into an experience. Like, okay, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, big eyes, big ears. Listen, learn. And that's it. Yeah, well, that humility served you very well, and I, I hope if there's anyone anyone listening that's young leader going into position have that attitude because that's that's the way you do it you stay humble going back to the book we parked outside so now you're you're actually out on patrol we parked outside the only modern structure within the fort a single story double cubed concrete building with a few undersized windows a pair of exhaust vents stuck out either side of the door and a smear of black soot streamed up along them on the concrete wall. This would be our home for the next few days. Our battalion had deployed to this part of Afghanistan for one purpose, to control the border with Pakistan. The mountain caves around here were insurgents equivalent of forward operating bases. Pakistan was their safety zone, where they would resupply, rearm, and train between missions to Afghanistan. After sneaking across the frontier, they'd reoccupy their cave complexes and use them as springboards to launch attacks against coalition bases or units. They'd then they'd escape across the border to start the cycle all over again. Our job was to staunch the enemy flow of troops and supplies into Afghanistan, and Bandar was one of the key bases to, supply, to support that intent. From here, from there, coalition tr- troops could patrol the surrounding area and establish checkpoints on the road leading into Pakistan. Controlling the enemy and securing the populace are aggressive keystones of any successful counterinsurgency operation. By getting out there and actively patrolling, we could disrupt the rat lines and force them to react to us. So that's what you were doing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, you, at this point, you're meeting with uh, like a friendly, and I. And he's I, he's an Afghan Afghan yeah. border policeman. His name was a, a Major Alam Ghul, who had been fighting. I mean, the guy fought the Russians in yeah. the '80s and the Afghan Civil War in the '90s. I mean, he was like 50 years old, just nothing but hardened warrior and there i am like 24 year old (laughs) i'm telling you man like i don't really know what the hell i was doing i was just shooting from the hip like no pun intended the whole time you know just trying to like you know puff my chest out and And these guys that are these experienced like this border and again and obviously people that listen to this podcast know i'm reading probably 10 percent of this book the entire you have to get this book to get all the nuance that you put in here it's an incredible book but you you talk about that and i kind of to sum that up quickly i put i wrote in my notes i wrote friendly afghan border police right because <laughs> these guys are these guys are kind of out to take care of themselves they go to the tribes. highest bidder. yeah they go they, to yeah, the highest exactly yeah um so you're there with this guy and afghan border police strolled by regarding us curiously so you guys are in their compound yeah. i nodded to him and he returned my cautious greeting. 
He took a few more steps, then stopped and dropped his trousers. Right there in the open, he squatted and relieved himself. The men of my platoon paused in their work and took notice. A few lost their composure and gaped. The rest put on their game faces, turned away, and returned to the task at hand. The border cop finished his business, wiped himself with his left hand, and continued on his way. It was an unexpected cultural moment. <laughs> so again, this is, this is the kind of things that people in America sometimes don't recognize. This I, is what's going on. This is life. It's true. I mean, we get down to Bandar, and Bandar, the Bandar checkpoint was located like five kilometers from the, from the uh, Pakistan border, and it, it was in uh, southern, like maybe mid to southern Gamal province. Um, and these Afghan border police were like, you know, left out there flapping, man. And the Afghan border police in Afghanistan were like the least well-funded of between the Afghan National Army, the Afghan police, the Afghan border police. The Afghan border police were like the redheaded stepchild of the <laughs> Afghan government. They were just like left out there flapping. Their AKs were rusty hawks. I mean, there was no patrol discipline inside that yeah. base. And I mean, I'm telling you, man, there were shit piles everywhere. It was like. You know, no one wants to walk through a minefield. We've, I think we all agree that's a terrible thing. And in Afghanistan, it can be a very real thing if you find if you're. But this was an entirely different type of minefield that we thought, like, you know, how do you explain to how do you explain to the Afghan chief of police down there, the border police? Like, hey, man, you got to clean up some of this human shit around here. This is not yeah. this is not healthy. But that's how they were lit. like piles of human shit everywhere. Big, intense volleyball game. Like, you know, the Afghan. I mean, it was just the craziest. It's crazy. It's the craziest shit you ever see in your life. It's crazy. It's weird. Like when we'd go and take over a building, like if we we're going to stay in a building for a few days within, I'm not kidding, within a half an hour, guys would be fixing stuff and like rerouting things. And <laughs> hey, let's get this building. And you'd, you'd go into some Iraqi family. They've been living there for however many however many decades. And they would still have like, you know, in their kitchen, there'd be a little hole next to the wall where they would take a shit and then they would kind of push it <laughs> out through the hole in the wall. And and that's just, that's just how it was. And I always thought to myself, Americans are kind of crazy in the other direction. Like we look at something and go, oh, you know what? This, I'm, I'm just going to fix this. I'm, wait, why would I shit in my own kitchen? No, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get some kind of a contraption that's going to carry this stuff outside. Or better, you know, you figure it out. Americans will walk. Have you ever watched five minutes of HGTV if there's some weird <laughs> master bath right next to your kitchen sink? It's oftentimes yeah. a deal breaker. People won't even buy the house. Yes. Maybe Americans will say, you know, hell with it. I'm not even going to buy this, let alone fix it. But you're so right, man. Like those, they, I feel like they've just been doing business Yep. You know, get no pun, no pun intended for thousands of years, man. And like, <laughs> that's just how it is. It's yeah. just how it is. And you know, that's what what's now what's truly crazy about that in terms of like a leadership challenge, right? Because not only are you leading your troops, but you've got to establish a good cultural relationship with the yep. people that you're you're operating amongst. Because otherwise, you're not going to have any success in finding and targeting the enemy. How do you talk about that without offending them? Yeah. You know, you. You go into these meetings and you lead with that. You know what I mean? And then and then he's cooking for you, like scooping into this potted deer, oh, have some chicken. Go. There's like, you Can know, you it's like, some? thank God for Cipra, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you just have to dive right in. You know, otherwise, you're offending the local populace. Yeah. And I mean, the consequences could be very real, man. You get your ass shot off by these yeah. guys that, you know, like I say, they play both sides of the ball. Crazy. Uh, moving on, you do a terrific job of, and in my notes I just have written the platoon in quotes, right? Because you do what everyone has to do, which is describe these guys that you're with. And it's, 
You know, that's another referring to, to James Webb again, who wrote this book called Fields of Fire. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a novel, but it's based on his time in Vietnam. And when you know his story, then you realize it actually was his time in Vietnam, almost exactly. But he wrote that book before any of these other Vietnam War books came out. And in that book, he he talks about, you know, he describes the platoon. And it's all the stereotypical characters that are in a platoon. And What's what's amazing about it is like they those were the real guys that were in his platoon. Those are the characters he described. Those are the characters that are in every every major Vietnam movie that there is, from Platoon to Apocalypse. Now, like they all have this to to Full Metal Jacket. They all have the same stereotypical American cross cut, right? Yeah. The city slicker, the 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 country kid, you know, yeah. like the 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 chubby dumb kid that doesn't like. They got all the stereotypes yeah. and. <laughs> he, you know, as I'm reading your stuff, guess what? There it is again. And you did a great job of putting these guys out. Going back to the book, Staff Sergeant. And I can't cover all of them. And you didn't even have the opportunity to cover all the guys that you had. But you, you hit some of the highlights. And I'm going to hit some of the highlights. Staff Sergeant Phil Baldwin, my second squad leader, approached. Six foot four and built like a fullback. Baldwin cut an imposing figure in the growing darkness. At 34, he was the second oldest member of our platoon. He had joined the Army in 2001 after watching the Twin Towers fall on 9-11 on TV in his house in small town, Illinois. Other squad leaders, Staff Sergeant Campbell, Sabaki, is I saying that right? Yeah, Sabaki, yeah. Sabaki and Waits. Sabaki was a human tempest who blew through life fueled by a raging inner passion. While serving in a mechanized unit, he'd had Sabo tattooed in a half circle above his belly button, which is, which is an anti-armor round. Yeah. Uh, Waits was a leadership challenge. Um. You talk about your platoon sniper, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Sergeant Wheat. You know, you got the cast of characters, and it, it, it is. It's legitimately like they're typecasted from, from, from Saving Private Ryan, from Band of Brothers, from the Pacific. Like that's America. Yeah, I, I look. I'm, so I feel like when I waded into my platoon, it was you know the most diverse cross section of people that you can possibly imagine. You know, I mean, rich serving next to poor. Uh, Northerner serving next to Southerner, like, you know, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Muslim, Christian, atheist, Sabo was a Satanist. I mean, all in the same foxhole, man. It's like, you know what I mean? Like in, in America, like I feel like we're divided amongst those lines, but yeah. in an infantry platoon and in a combat unit, you address it directly. And in a way you transcend those stupid, petty differences. And this is like why I always say like real leaders unite. They don't, they don't, they don't divide, Yeah, you know, and my, you know, my, my NCOs in my platoon were truly amazing. I mean, these guys came from every different walk of life. Their boots and T-shirts had more experience in the military than I did. And they had every reason in the world, right, to stick me in a corner office in my platoon CP and be like, just do the paperwork, sir. We got yeah. this. But they didn't. You know, they took me under the wing. They taught, coached, and mentored me every step of the way. These are people that had, like I said, tons of experience in the military, far more than I did. They, most of them had chips on their shoulders as it as it came to officers, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Um, but they were amazing, man. I mean, six of my guys in, in my platoon, six of them, weren't even citizens. I had a guy from Russia. I had a guy from Haiti. I had a guy from South Korea. I had a guy from South Vietnam. I had a guy from Mexico. I mean, I mean, I'm not joking. All these guys weren't even U.S. citizens when they were, and they were in my platoon, you know. And and again, 
you know, I'm I'm like a city guy, like through yeah. and through. Like I'm not like <laughs> you want to talk about a stereotypical. I'm not like I feel like I'm not like you. I feel like you were the kind of like kick ass take names leader. I was the guy in my unit that always needed a haircut. You know, like I didn't. I did. I was not like I'm like the least tough person in, in so, the world. Like so, I'm supposed you, to be in charge of these. You guys. were like the stereotypical junior officer coming yeah, in from college, I, doesn't know anything, city slicker. Yes, That's but so I mean, classic. It, it, it is. Except for that, I really, really, really want to do right yeah. by these guys. And I'm telling you, um, your humility, from my perspective, on the outside looking in, because I trained a lot of junior officers, and the junior officers that were humble like you were, that were like, okay, I, I, this guy knows more than me. My start, Those guys always do well. Well, most of the time they do well. Not always, but a, a large percentage of the time, those guys do well. The guys that do better, the guys like, look, I went to college. Look, I've been to ranger school. Yeah, I know this better than you. And that's, that's the guys mistake. that get their horrible well, leaders. So look, I mean, I walk into my unit. My very, how could you not be humble? First of all, like I said, I mean, these guys had far more experience. You know, that in and of itself was intimidating. But I walk into my unit. My unit's going to the Joint Renegades Trading Center, JRTC at Fort Polk, in prep for this deployment. I, I had a choice. My commander's like, I just stay here, get your bear. I'm like, no, I'm going with my guys. I'm going to train with my men before we go to comp. So I don't even have a place. I put my stuff in storage. And I'm at Fort Drum, which is like there are two seasons there, like July and winter, right? <laughs> and like, yeah, no, because I know. And so they issue, you go to CIF and they issue you three shopping carts full of equipment that I don't even know. It's Molly gear. Yeah. We didn't have Molly gear like when I was in training. So I had no idea how the hell to use it. And I get to my unit and like my NCOs like dump these three shopping carts and all my gears mixed up in a pile that's as tall as me. And I'm like, so guys, I'm just like, so I'm, I'm going on this deployment with you. My NCOs are like, God damn it. And they all start putting together my gear for me. Oh, and I'm just man. like standing in the middle of them, twiddling my thumbs, thinking like, this is not the best way to earn the respect of your troops. Yeah, you know what's awesome from troops. a leadership perspective as well is, and you, and your book shows this very clearly as this relationship develops between you and the NCOs. The NCOs, NCOs that have the attitude of, oh, my officer doesn't know anything and screw him and I want to keep him over in the corner doing paperwork, those guys end up with officers that suck. Yes. And they don't it's, have a good working relationship. It's a self-licking ice. It's a self, it's a self-perpetuating thing. Yes. Like, it's, you know, it's a loser. It's what it is. They've had a bad experience with an officer at a young yeah. age. And then they said, they just said, screw officers. And then because they've said screw officers, every officer they get, they don't yeah. help. And, and then, and then those guys never become good officers. Yes, exactly. And exactly. that platoon is, is not as functional as a platoon where the, the NCOs do what they're supposed to do, which is help the junior officer learn their job yes. and advise them. And it's literally what their job is. In the in the, in the the Navy, we call it the senior enlisted advisor. That's what you have. You yeah. know, your platoon chief is your senior enlisted advisor that's supposed to advise you on what the hell to do. So when guys neglect that or they're anti-officer, they end up with a crappy platoon. Yeah, so, and, and you know, the, the guys that the guys that neg neglect that end up with a crappy platoon um, or, you know, the guys that, you know, you get to Afghanistan or you get to Iraq, combat can be, you know, a great sifter of people, right? So the guys that maybe were that in your platoon that you couldn't quite like move out of your platoon prior to the deployment, or maybe you knew that they were a leadership challenge mm -hmm. uh, along the way, um, combat has a way of, of sifting through those types of people as well. Yeah, yeah, it does indeed. All right, continuing on. The men seem to be in good spirits. At the northeast corner of the perimeter, I found Sergeant Michael Emmerich in the truck. In the truck commander's seat of the Humvee, hunched over a sketch pad that he's illuminated with his headlamp. We greeted each other. I leaned on the door to peer over to his shoulder his latest creation. Emmerich was an outstanding NCO and team leader who 
whose men loved him. He was also a gifted artist, I'd re- a skill I'd recently tapped by asking him to create an emblem for our platoon. When we had a break in patrolling, we were going to paint it on each of our vehicles. What you working on, Emmerich, I asked. He showed me the sketch pad. Jesus, man, that's outstanding, I said, looking at his creation. He'd drawn a fierce and toothy skull bursting from the O of outlaws. Isn't finished yet, sir, Emmerich said a little self-consciously. Emmerich, this is perfect. We'll put it on every truck. That way the enemy will always know who they're dealing with. Thank you, sir. Like Wheat, Emmerich hailed from Louisiana, though he didn't have Wheat's deep accent. No, man, thank you. That image is going to give us our identity. When I had first taken over the platoon, I wanted us to have our own unique persona. We'd settled on calling ourselves the Outlaws and I'd paid out of pocket to have t-shirts made for everyone. We also came up with our own guide on. We were the only platoon with one. They're officially for company level and above. By the time we got out here, we were known as the outlaw platoon throughout the brigade. Now, thanks to Emmerich's design, the enemy would know us as well. Boom. What made you decide to do that? You know, uh, we, well, in training, you know, one of the things that one of my NCOs said to me was that, hey, sir, you know, you know, when we're when we're here training, we have we have a tremendous opportunity to take this group of individuals and make them into a team. And I got to tell you, sir, you know, once that first bullet cracks by your head, you know, the individual does not matter anymore. The only thing that matters is is this team, and we're only as fast as our slowest person. And so, at that moment, I said, "All right, so what do we do? You know, uh, how can we how can we bring?" This, how can we how can we sort of transcend the traditional training relationships or professional relationships that we have, right? So bringing all my squad leaders, uh, we started throwing around names for the platoon, uh, and we settled on the outlaws uh, because that's sort of – that embodied the persona of my platoon. We were sort of the black sheep of the battalion in training. Um, I feel like everything we did was wrong. I mean, we would get recocked on our live fire lanes like every time in 20, 30, 20, 30 times. Like, I mean, I was the black sheep of the lieutenant, a guy that didn't go to inf- any infantry training. Like, hey, keep an eye on this guy. So we're like, we're the outlaws, you know, screw it. Like, that's, what we're, that's who we're going to be. Um, and, you know, I'm telling you, my men, they took that. They embraced it, man. Like, they had these T-shirts and hoodies. They rocked them everywhere. They rocked them everywhere. Like, platoons aren't supposed to have guidons in companies. In fact, I remember running with my platoon. They're all carrying this guidon. And my battalion commander runs by, and he's like, what are these idiots doing? You're like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to have a platoon guidon. It didn't matter. Like, yeah. we carried it everywhere. And, and and when we got to Afghanistan, that, you know, I'll just say it brought me on board with branding in a, in a big way. You know, they these guys – that that became their collective identity, you know, and that's the thing about the military that is truly remarkable, right? Like they they teach you to shoot, move, and communicate together, and then you go to combat and you fight, bleed, and die together, you know. And that's one of the things I always talk about about going home is like when you come home, it's like okay, now everyone goes their separate ways. It's like runs completely contrary to how you're trained, which is I think part of the reason why men struggle, men and women struggle so much. But but yeah, it, we Emmerich designed this. Outlaw Platoon logo, and then they started. My men just started designing stencils of it and put it on the ballistic turrets of their trucks and their doors, and it's like painted it on their Ford lo- their flicks or whatever. And I don't know what you guys call it, but flicks is what we called it. It just became who we were, and you know, we we got in a few fights, and we started to, uh, did, you know, we started to have this reputation in our area of operations of like the green skulls and it got to be we would listen to the the enemy's communications on their little icoms and they'd be like oh it's the green skulls like wait for another unit we're like 
That's what I'm talking about. That's what about. I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. legit, man. It was, it was, it was, a, I mean, I can't, like, I can't even overstate, I can't even believe that I lived this life. Oh, you yeah. know, I look back at it and I'm like, it seems surreal because it's not, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not the, you know, I feel like every veteran today has to be like a big MMA guy or like a shoots <laughs> rifles and, you know, I hey, saw something on, on your Instagram. No, I'm not. I love <laughs> MMA. I'm just saying like, you know, your last Instagram, you have some video of you pulling back this big bow. I'm like, God damn, I got to go on a podcast with this guy. Like I was just playing Pokemon with my son. I'm not, this is not who I am. You know, this guy's going to kill me. Uh, no, that's awesome. Man. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I ripped off. Colonel David Hackworth in the book about face. And yes. he, re- he renames his his battalion the Hardcore, right? And that's why when I took over Task Unit Bravo at SEAL Team 3, I changed it to Task Unit Bruiser. Same thing. Like, this is what we're going to be. We're not yes. going to be normal. And it's like the person, did it become like almost yes. the personality oh, of yeah, your unit? Absolutely. Yeah, the Bruisers. It absolutely. matters a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it's a little, like, I, I go out and work with companies. I'll go out and work with companies. I, I, I met this guy. He's like, we named our like construction uh, shift shifts. So every shift has their own name. And then they're like trying to outcompete each other on who can get more work done it. and stuff, right? Well, I mean, I mean, look, we had a battalion football game. Like, oh, we were the outlaws. They, were, they had their own little uniforms made. I mean, they, they rolled into that football game with some serious attitude, man. And we ended up winning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's powerful. just, you know, it is powerful. <laughs> I mean, it helps galvanize people under a common banner. I think that if you're a leader, you know, obviously humble, Big eyes, big ears, listen. But yep. like, part of your job is to galvanize people, bring people together from all walks of life. And a great way to do it is to come up with a yeah a name, a no, unit, a symbol. No doubt about you it. You know, and so us versus the world. I didn't know what the hell I was doing at the time. <laughs> I just listened to my NCOs, but it seemed to work. Yeah, you yeah, know, they, they were hundred percent right. <laughs> uh, you're continuing to make in the rounds, talking to some of your guys in the platoon, and you go up and talk to a guy that's well, I guess you wouldn't say in your platoon is your Terp. His name is Abdul, and you go up to him. And you ask him, why do you do this job? He didn't speak at first. Instead, he dug into his MRE pouch and found a package of crackers. As he opened them, he said, at the beginning of the war, my father worked for the Americans at Fob's Skin. Am I saying that right? Skin, yes. Skin. Yep. I couldn't conceal my surprise in my voice. Really? Doing what? Interpreter. His answer intrigued me. Is he still working there? More silence. Abdul studied his exposed cracker, took a bite, then glanced back at me. He's dead. I didn't know what to say. He was killed by the Taliban four years ago. We received night letters. I sat down peering at Abdul intently. Is that why you do this? He nodded. Every mission I go on, I avenge my father's death. I am the head of the house now. It is my duty. That explained everything. His courage under fire, the trust Captain Kennedy had placed in him, his standing with the locals. I understood why he didn't cover his face. He wanted the enemy to know what he was doing. How about you, Lieutenant? Why are you here? I opened a bottle of water and downed half of it, thinking back to the day I had found purpose in my life. Unconsciously, I touched the St. Christopher's medal at my throat. September 11th, I said simply. So, Abdul. Yeah. A good guy. He's a great guy. And he's just great. Explain night letters a little bit. Yeah, night letters are, you know, if you're a if you're known in country to be working with the Americans and the bad guys know that you're working with the Americans, they'll start 
finding out where you live and start sending letters to your family at night. And Abdul's family in this regard would wake up every day, uh, walk out to their front door, and there'd be a letter stapled or, you know, nailed to their front door, which is basically threats. Like if, if, if Abdul continues to work with and support the Americans, we're going to kill him and kill your family. And so Abdul would get word of these night letters um, on our base. Now, f- we were at Ford Operating Base Burmel. And so Burmel was about five clicks from the border. And right south, just directly southeast of us, were Shkin, 45-minute drive south was Shkin. And they would, uh, Army Special Forces would rotate in and out of there. And Shkin is sort of famous for being co-located with, with what they call in Afghanistan the Alamo, which is a like a little bee hut where like these – you know, secret squirrel types would sit there with like their little calm stuff and listen to like what the Taliban were talking about. But mm-hmm. there, there was an outpost there, and Abdul's family lived right there, so they lived right in the thick of it. And Abdul was a guy that he, he didn't. This was back in the day before the Americans did the hiring of the interpreters, like officially. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I think Task Force Titan was what they were in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, when I was in Afghanistan, it was like, hey, you know, you get ten thousand bucks from your talk from your tactical operations center, pay the interpreters type thing for starting to going out and paying. That's how we hired him. But Abdul was just a great find. And where we were in Afghanistan, specifically in Paktika province, they spoke Waziri. I mean, they didn't speak Pashto or Dari or Farsi. They spoke Waziri. So you would you would get an interpreter from Kabul or something like that, and they couldn't even no speak good. the language. So you had to have somebody local. Uh, Abdul knew most of the bad guys that we were fighting, at least the the bad guys that were local to the area. And he just, he, in a big F you to them, he's not wearing a mask. He's in the fight just like we are. And, you know, that's that, that's I realized in that moment that most Afghans are on the front lines just like Americans. A lot of Afghans... They want, they want the same things that that we have here, mm-hmm. you know, and they're willing to fight for it. And Abdul was one of those people. So he's getting those night letters. Eventually, they they escalate to a point where he bails and he leaves camp. Yes, and this going back to the book. The next morning, outlaw platoon rose early to prepare for another long patrol mission. This time, we'd be out beyond the wire for another six days, tasked with setting up snap checkpoints and observation posts all over our area of operations. We sorted beyond the wire, heading into our area of operations, five Humvees strong. We had gone, we hadn't gone far when I got a radio call from the base operations center telling us to turn around and come home. There was no explanation. We swung around and drove back through the main gate. Soldiers were running in different directions, and there was a charged atmosphere that had been lacking when we left. We dismounted. Sabo and Baldwin linked up with me. Any idea what's going on, sir? Baldwin asked me. No, let me see if I can find out. Turn the trucks around and make sure everyone stays close. Roger, sir. I walked to, this, to the operations center where they found First Sergeant Christopher, where I found Chris, First, First Sergeant Christopher overseeing controlled chaos. When I asked what was going on, he said, Delta found the body of a local national. So you guys go out, they find a body along a, along a road, they send you guys out to go and see, what, see what's going on, identify the body, f- see if you can figure anything out. And here you guys, you guys find the body, it's next to a bike alongside the road. And here we go back to the book. We drew alongside and stopped. Lieutenant Marbury had been right. The cyclist had been shot in the leg, it was twisted under him in an awkward position. What do you think happened, I asked. Waverly said nothing. His eyes were devoid of emotion. But I knew him to be a sensitive man. Inside, he must have been reeling. Leaders make decisions based on the best information available and a thorough game boarding of possible outcomes. But even the most competent leaders cannot account for everything. 
Life has a way of breeding unintended consequences. If it was Abdul, he would shoulder the guilt of this day for the rest of his life. Lieutenant Marbury looked back up the road and spoke softly. I'd say he was coming back north out of Shkin and was ambushed here. Maybe, we, maybe he tried to drive through it, but he got hit in the leg and fell off the bike. I nodded. Made sense so far. See how his leg is broken too? Probably happened when he hit the ground. Blood had congealed around the leg wound. Flies were lapping at it. Marbury continued. He tried to get away, but they caught him. Executed him. See the bullet hole in the back of his head? I hadn't seen it. I couldn't take my eyes off the flies. You have to look. If it's Abdul, at the very least, you owe him that. Some of the squad leaders had called Lieutenant Taylor and me terp lovers. They'd been through a tour here already, and they'd come away with disdain for and distrust of almost all Afghans. They'd seen betrayals. They'd seen that here. Loyalty shifted like the desert sands. As armor from such things, they'd built a wall between themselves and the people we were sent to protect. We bent down and unstrapped his helmet. When we pulled it off, black-red pudding drizzled out of it. The lifeless head flopped into the dirt. Lieutenant Marbury was right. The man had been shot in the back of the head. I could see the entry rune surrounded by matted black hair. It was Abdul. And then you guys actually went to his family's house? Yeah, yeah that was a, that was a, that was a terrible day. I mean, you know. Did you, did you have to deliver the body? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Uh, and Abdul had, you know, I think, I mean, a brother that was probably like 10 years younger than him and younger sis- sisters younger than that. And I mean, his, and his mom was like the, I mean, that little boy was like the patriarch of the family yeah. and his mom was sort of running the show. And I remember delivering the body to her and I remember just watching from afar, from far away. I think Lieutenant Marbury walked up with the body uh, with with our company commander, and I remember just watching her collapse at the front of her at the front of her uh, calot. Um, and I remember least the the little boy ran around to this wood pile on the side, and he collapsed on the side. I mean, it was just a terrible, it was just a terrible situation. And you know, Abdul would complain about these night letters all the time, and he would say, "I really need to get back to my house to take care of my family." He would talk to me, Commander Sean, like, "I need to get back there." And so we'd go to our commander and and talk to him about it and say, "Look, we've got to give Abdul leave to go back and sort of take care of his family." And our commander ended up he ended up shooting that down uh, because in order for Abdul to get down there safely, down and back safely, we'd have to divert an infantry platoon mm-hmm. to bring him to escort yep. him, and we simply did not have the combat power to do it. Yep. And Abdul ended up in the middle of the night because we denied it, hopped on his little dirt bike, drove down there, linked up with his family. He was ambushed somewhere on the way back to our base. And, like, I mean, it, it happened exactly as I described. He gets shot in the leg, flips off the bike, tumbles off the bike, and takes a bullet right to the back of the head and was executed right there by people who wanted him dead. And they, 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 you know, that was my, that was my first experience with losing somebody that, you know, he wasn't a member of my platoon, but, he he was fighting with us, you know. He's an ally, and man, it, it, I learned. I think the I think the title of that chapter was like. I remember thinking, like, man, the enemy has a long dark reach. They can hit you anywhere, anytime. And yeah, that's they, they they're sophisticated. They're smart fighters. They they're they're some of the world's best light infantry. They know how to they know how to bait infantry platoons out of bases and bait people out of bases for that matter. They did that with Abdul, and they caught him in a in a near ambush on the way back. Mm-hmm. And it sucked. 
it sucked. And so we were left with, we lost our best interpreter, which was the bridge between us and the local populace. And I feel like, uh, I feel like things went downhill from there. I mean, because, you know, you never really know what these interpreters are saying if yep. the translation is accurate. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And Abdul, I mean, there was, it was one of those things, like my platoon sergeant and some of my more seniors and NCOs never truly trusted any of our interpreters. Mm-hmm. Um, but Abdul was one of the good ones. And, and when we lost him, shit just went downhill. You say in the book, the assassin, the assassination made the war personal for all of us. Suddenly, Abdul's younger brother bolted through the front of the door and ran to a nearby woodpile. He dropped to his knees, covered his head with his arms, and began to sob. The moment had no end. We stood our vigil, game faces secured, but beneath them, we seethed. The grief I'd felt as I stood in the ditch next to his body had given way to a slow-burning rage. Rage at the enemy. Rage at the decision that had led to his death. Rage that we had been unable to help the one Afghan upon whose loyalty we could always depend. Left without him, I feared what would happen the next time I had to interact with Major Ghoul or any of his ilk. (laughs) Yeah, because you literally... You put a lot of faith in those Terps, man. He was with us everywhere, man. And, like, there were... You know, even the 173rd Airborne that was there before us, like, they, this is a guy that would charge into ambushes with American troops. Like, it, the war was personal for him, and and in that moment, it was personal for us, too. So you're out on patrol. You're in the Humvees. And here we go. Back to the book. The hackles on my neck suddenly stood straight up. My nerves jangled, spellbound by a sensation unfelt before. What the hell? Perhaps I was getting seriously dehydrated. I opened the water bottle in my hands. My lips curled around its plastic rim just as Baldwin's Humvee exploded. For a split second, a bubble of orange flame sprouted from its right side. The rig lurched hard left as its shock absorbed the violent blast. Another flame ball boiled underneath the Humvee. Gouts of dirt and smoke spewed horizontally from out from between the tires. An instant later, the fire vanished, replaced by curls of black smoke haloed by swirling dusk. McLeod, am I saying that right? Yes. McLeod, Baldwin's gunner, disappeared out of the turret, leaving the barrel of, the, of his M250 cal heavy machine gun pointing skyward. Baldwin! I dropped the water bottle. Before it hit my lap, a third bloom of fire spawned midway between our two Humvees. My truck trembled and suddenly it sounded as if someone was making popcorn. Shrapnel on the armor plate. The smoke and dirt shrouded Baldwin's Humvee from view. I heard a sharp explosion behind us, quickly followed by several more. The ground quaked again. The water bottle shifted, fell over my thigh, and spilled down my pant leg. Pinholt, is that right? Mm -hmm. Pinholt sat next to me with his gloved hands tight on the Humvee steering wheel. Sweat trickled down the side of his head, more beaded on his forehead just below the rim of his helmet. He looked at me, his face tense, but his eyes determined. He was waiting for me to make a decision. Ahead, more smoke swirled around Baldwin's Humvee. Beyond it, I could see our I could see our Afghan National Army ANA cohorts bailing out of their Toyota Hilux pickup trucks toward the top of the knoll. The Afghan soldiers, never the pictures of discipline, ran this way and that with their weapons held at the low ready. A few flopped into the road, into the dirt on the either side of the vehicles. Others vanished off the road, sprinting as they fired randomly from the hip. Between the explosions, the drumbeat of machine guns rang out from both sides of us. 
this is just get some. Yeah, so <laughs> that was my first this was my first firefight. This was the first time I was ever shot at. And like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Uh well, one one of the things that I thought of first in that moment was like, holy shit, there is a group of people out there that wants me dead. They've never met me before. They don't know me, you know, but they want me dead. And like when there's somebody out there trying to kill you, the first time you experience that sensation, it's just, you've never felt it before in your life. And, uh, that's what I was feeling in that moment. And so just to give you a sense, so it was Hilltop 2474, right on our military map. It's 2,474 feet above the 7,000 feet that we were already at. Our platoon was tasked with doing an observation post uh, on the backside of that hill. And so we had to pull around that hill, right, to the to the eastern portion of that hill. So our Humvees and this big column pull around the hill. We drive down into what looks like this depression, almost like driving down into a gravy boat. We're at the bottom of that gravy boat. Outside the right of my door, I'm looking down, and I couldn't even open my door and step out of it, right, because there was a sheer wadi right to my Ugh. right, and it ran. So you're you know, stuck there. Yes, and onto the left was this cliff. And so we get around there, and there are four A&A tr- uh, Hilux pickup trucks in front of us, and just all hell breaks loose from both sides. Uh the enemy that day had ambushed us from both sides, volley-fired RPGs at both the front and rear of my Humvees, um, probably four or five RPGs uh, right off the bat, and opened up with crew-serve weapons. And I remember looking up from my Humvee and to the left and to the right, and there were three crew-serve machine guns on either ridgetop. I could see their flickering of their firing, and they were trained. They were barking the guns, which means that they had enough training to, like, shoot the cruiser machine gun, let the barrel cool. Next guy picks up the, Mm -hmm. I mean, it just was the craziest. They were good. They were good. They were good. And then another unit hit us in an L shaped ambush. And so, so for me as a leader, I remember looking at Pinhold. Pinhold is looking at me. He's got these big, bright blue eyes. And it's like, you you know, you're in training. It's like, they always say, Hey, make a decision, sir. Make a decision, make a decision. This was like my make a decision moment. And, you know, there's no assault through a near ambush. There's no dismounting in the middle of that and assaulting. I mean, they had planned this ambush in the perfect spot, knowing that I couldn't assault through it, right? Um, there's no driving through it because they, they used the ANA as a roadblock, so we couldn't push through the kill zone, establish fire superiority on the high ground. I had I had nothing, nothing. There was nothing in that moment that I could do or execute that was from a field manual that would have gotten us out alive. And so I knew that, you know, I only had seconds to make a decision, and I knew that whatever decision it was, it had to be bold. It had to be bold enough that my men saw it, and not only did they have to see it, but they had to move out and draw fire with me. And so I got out of the truck in the middle of the kill zone, and I remember, I remember getting out of the truck. And so, like, there's chaos in the truck, and then there's chaos outside the truck. And I get out of the truck, and it's just like shit is hitting the fan all around me, man. And I'm like looking around. I hear this big crack, and turns out it's this Dragunov sniper rifle. I've got some sniper that's trying to shoot at me. I'm watching these rounds impact all around my feet. And my first thought was like, I immediately regret this decision, you know. And I like look at Pinholt, and he's like, he's like, what are you doing? And I remember shutting the door, and I just started hauling ass to the top of the hill because I knew I had to get the ANA. Uh, into their trucks. So you you hauled ass forward, forward up the hill, up your uh, towards the front of your patrol, yep, up I, the hill, so I you remember, could get to the A and Yes, and I remember running past Baldwin's truck, which was smoking and on fire, but not Did out of the fight. Did you get hit with an RPG? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
And I'll, t- I'll tell you what, like those up armored Humvees, man, like that, they were still combat effective. They were all in that truck. The RPG set was RPG seven. So it wasn't like anything armor piercing, but they were all still in the fight. Um, and I remember looking in the window, I remember just banging on Baldwin's up armored Humvee window. And I just sort of gave him the infantry follow me thing. There was so much smoke and there was so much shit going on. I didn't even know if he really saw. And I remember running up the hill and I'm like, my muscles were filled with lead. I mean, you know, at 10,000 feet there, it's like mile high stadium football game times two. And I'm like, oh my God, like. You know, because as a young leader, you're always afraid of, like, making a mistake in combat and drawing the eye, just failing your troops. Mm -hmm. And I was – I'm not worried. I I, I just – I remember worrying about, oh, my God, man, did I just make the biggest mistake in my life? Did I just, like, totally make a stupid decision in combat? Are these guys going to even follow me? I never gave them an order over the radio. In fact, I couldn't even use our radios because – the that hilltop was obscuring our line of sight comms to our base you know there was so much shit going down in the kill zone that my squad leaders were occupying the platoon net yelling back and forth or i mean it was just so i'm halfway up i'm like jesus christ i didn't give an order am i my men even going to follow me i'm like almost out of the fight you know i got rounds impacting all around me and i remember turning around and i see in baldwin charging up the hill after me and then we charging up the hill after him and then my mortar guy with a 60 millimeter mortar in handheld like slung over his back with mortar around i mean like my entire platoon started following me up that hill that day and and it was one of those things it was just like um you know they followed me up to the top of the hill uh, we all took cover up at the top, got the ANA back in their in their trucks, um, had them push through the kill zone. We got our trucks up there, established fire superiority, and then we just ran down into the teeth of the enemy and attacked them and killed those little bastards. It was like a three-hour firefight, but we hunted them down, brought it, and after two or three hours, Apaches came in, so it helped us. So, so it helped us cut off their exfil routes. And by the time we got up and we're firing, uh, I mean, we had cruiser machine guns and our weapons were rocking on the tops of our trucks, but. We were able to establish comms with our base where we had two 105 millimeter howitzers that were firing. And I already had. How long did it take to get the 105s up? But when we were up there, seconds, because I already had TRPs plotted on. So the, on once you got to the top of the hill yeah. and got radio comms, a minute, a minute after that. And yeah, by the way, yeah, it was. I mean, but but our gun bunnies were amazing. Our our artillery guys were incredible. But I had already coordinated with our tactical operations center on where I thought the right. enemy would exfil. And I gave them, Hey, if I say fire TRP one, like yep. this is where you're, this is what you're firing. And pre-planned, tar- tar- fi- pre-planned fires. Yeah. It was, I mean, the, the object of the infantry is to kick boots on the objective, right? Like if we're in a fight, we're doing it wrong, you know? So, um, echelon of fires was something that I, I was a big believer in. We didn't really get to execute it that day, but you know, the goal is, is, you know, you're, you know, you're, if we, if we know we're doing a movement to contact, I want to make sure that my howitzers are firing every second until my men get on that objective, and then we stop firing with the guns, and then we exploit with boot, with boots on the ground, yep. right, and to give the enemy very little reaction time. But that day we didn't have that, so we improvised. We improvised, and then I remember charging um, charging directly east, and I think we killed. I think, I mean, we got attacked by like probably thirty or forty guys that day. I think that was what the report said in the aftermath. But I think we killed six or seven of them, um, at least. You know, I mean. Couldn't really find any. I yeah. mean, they're so good at Kazavak, but um, we killed at least six or seven of them that day. And and for me, like I remember coming back to the defac, and at the end of that fight, I didn't even know if I still didn't know if if I had made a colossal mistake. And I remember walking into the defac, and it was like it was like that moment in Hoosiers. You ever see that movie? The Hoosiers, yes. like the slow clap. I like walk into the defac. I think my NCOs are going to kick my ass, and they just like Sabo stands up first, and I'm like, oh Jesus, this guy, you know, he's going to kill me. He stands up, he starts clapping. 
It was like some goddamn thing out of Rudy or something, you know, <laughs> like, like they were going to carry me on their So I mean, it was, I swear to Christ, you know, being a father is the greatest thing in the entire world. But that moment was <laughs> one of, I don't think there will never be a moment in my life no. that I think it professionally anyway, where that peaks that, you know, and my men. So look, there's. There's earning your troops respect from shielding them from garrison bullshit and allowing them to train. I feel like that's an officer and leader's role. Like I'll handle mm-hmm. the I'll handle the collective stuff. You handle the individual training. Um, you can earn your respect that way, right? But you know none of that shit matters. You get your you get one chance in combat to do it, and I feel like that was my chance. It didn't it didn't go perfect. Um, I mean, we got shot up pretty bad, but I mean, we came out of there. It was like. It was most of our it was most of our first experience getting shot at for the most part, you know, in, a, in like a really serious way like that. I mean, everyone has a couple pot shots fired at them. I think all my NCOs have had that, but man, that was like a four hour. I mean, we got trapped in the kill zone of an ambush, yeah, fought our way out of it. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, and we came out of that, and it was like I remember just being like ACUs were like our army combat uniforms were like just drenched. I was just drenched, you know, walking in. I'm into the defect. Everyone's got their little trays and they're like high five and everybody. It was like, you know, like imagine being an artist, you training to be an artist and never painting a painting. Right. And we finally got to paint our painting. You know, we got finally got to experience combat and it was a great thing. And it was pretty cool. I mean, it was cool for that. Like one time, the hundreds of time after that, it gets, it's, it gets uncool very quickly, but it was cool that one time that victory. <laughs> So yeah, Rudy, DFAC, as good as it gets. And I'm going back to the book here after all this stuff goes down. Later that night as I lay in bed, unable to sleep despite my exhaustion, I felt the flip side of that victory. Bray's 50 thundered. A man's arm was torn from his body. I reveled in that moment. The mortar machine gun, the mortared machine gun nest was a charnel site. Men blown apart. Leave a vile, stinking mess, ruined bowels, the copper scent of blood, bits and pieces, nothing more, defiled by firepower. I had watched Garrett score that hit and felt enraptured. Victory was evident in every kill, and none of my men had been hit. An infantry leader could not ask for anything more. But what about the man you are? I am a warrior. Where is the human side? Ugly thoughts boiled within me unformed terrifying they swirled around in my head as if my mind had tumbled across some truth my subconscious could not face today I watched a man get blown to pieces I did what I had to do as a soldier to win a desperate battle yes but what about a man what about the man you wanted to be how did you serve him today I tried to drive the thought from my mind can Sean the human coexist with Sean the combat leader Today we had felt the indescribable rush created by bloodlust, survival, and victory. It had bonded my platoon in ways I couldn't quite grasp. Now as I tossed in my bed, I wondered how we would ever return to our former selves after what this fight had done to us. We were becoming exactly what I did not know yet. But just sensing the permanence of the transformation inspired more fear than anything else I had faced that day. Restless, I rose from bed and stepped into the black Afghan night. I'd never felt farther away from home than at that moment. Coming down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like, I mean, God, man, I remember, like, I remember this just like it was yesterday, man, laying in that bed. 
I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was exhilarated, but I couldn't sleep. And it was like one of those things. It's like, like Jesus Christ. Like I sat, I was cheering. I was, I loved every second of killing the enemy. It was the greatest feeling up until that point in time in my life. It was the greatest feeling. But then I couldn't escape the fact of like, what does this say about who I am and the person that I'm becoming? And what does it mean about like, how are we as Americans? What are we different? How are we different on the battlefield? Like the juxtaposition of two selves, like warrior and civilian, you know, uh, you know, just straight killer or liberator and protector. And like, I, to me in that moment, you know, I think just think the awesome responsibility of being a young leader, whether you're a young NCO, team leader, squad leader, uh, platoon sergeant, platoon leader, didn't matter. Um, every leader in combat has a moral obligation to be the moral compass of their platoon or their unit, their small unit. And that means that you've got to do everything that you can to keep those troops when they're in the shit uh, tethered to who they are, you know, not let them. Uh, revel in the bloodlust too much because if you do that you lose who you are you lose you lose what you lose your human side and for me you know I mean god man like we went through 485 days of that hell and if we didn't if we weren't constantly connected and tethered to our human side that it would have been a fate a terrible fate for every single member of that platoon uh the likes of which many of those men that i served with would not have been able to escape from i feel like and because believe me you know you're there for eight months man if you're there for eight months uh you get attacked so much and so often and the enemy never relents but you have to stay disciplined. You have to you have to stay above it. You have to you have to make the hard right decision. You can't just open fire into a group of villagers, even though you know they knew exactly where that ID was placed. And when you know, I mean, you have to stay above it. You have to stay disciplined. You have to stay tethered to your human self. And in that moment, I had no idea what the hell I was becoming, but I knew that I was changing in a way that I might not like so much. And uh, I'm glad, well, the good, the good part about this is you actually recognize this because this is a, this is something that you don't always recognize, right? I mean, right. you start getting angry at the enemy and the enemy, what the, the people that you are calling the enemy, that, that, that definition starts, can start to grow, right? It can start Absolutely. to grow to cover, like you just said, the villagers that knew the IED was there. Well, they knew that. Well, if they knew that, then they're the enemy. And it's really easy for that transition to take place and for that word to start to cover a much broader definition than what it should cover by the moral law and by the, the actual law. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you know, the bottom line is, is that it's our job. It's our, you know, it's our job to, as, as in the infantry. And I, I got to believe in a SEAL platoon, even probably in a more precise way to close with, you know, find, fix, finish, close with, destroy the enemy, kill them when they're on the battlefield. Uh, but when they're, you know, one of the things that I talked about with my men a lot, right? It was something that like it, it, we trained all the time, by the way, and we addressed this in our training. The enemy would, would hone and evolve their TTPs. And so we would as well. We never stopped training. And so that was how we were different from a lot of the other units in Afghanistan. I think you can come back on the base and just chill and relax. But no, you've got to train. You've got to train on escalation of force. And in that, as part of that training, um, whether you're evolving your TTPs or otherwise, you've got to talk to them about our responsibility on the battlefield to take care of the enemy if they're wounded, you know? I cannot tell you how many times I had, you know, I had troops that soldiers that wanted to put a bullet in a guy that was wounded on the battlefield. Hell, I wanted to with every fiber of who I was. But you got to play the long game and mm -hmm. think like if 
if you do take that person's life, who will you be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Will you regret that decision? And, you know, the charge of a leader, if you're going to be a leader of a small unit in combat, when you, when you're responsible for lives, you've got to be planning and thinking like that. And so, um, yeah, it'd be great to take that guy off the battlefield and put a bullet in their head, but you're not taking care of your troops if you allow your guys to do that as far as I'm no, concerned. No, because they're going to end up in they're jail. Gonna, exactly. I mean, and, and you exactly. know, that's, that's something I, we, we, we received a, a brief that we were supposed to give our guys and I did give it to my guys, but the, 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 the overall broad like meaning of the brief was take your morals on the battlefield, right? Yes. And I actually said, hey, guys, this is what they're telling you to do. Take your morals on the battlefield. And I'm going to tell you guys, don't do that. Don't do that. What I want you to do is I actually want you to follow the law. Because here's the deal. What you just said, what I just said, like morally, if you set an IED or you fired an RPG and you killed a bunch of my guys, I feel like morally I can kill you. you yeah. Know? Yes. And, and that's okay. But if you don't have a weapon anymore and you're surrendering, guess what? Legally, I can't kill you. And so what you actually have to do is you have to actually follow what the law is. Yes. And guys, you know, and I, I know for, I know the way I felt, like when my guys got wounded, when my guys got killed, I wanted to kill everyone. Everyone, all of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Salt the earth, rubble the buildings, and turn the whole city into just, just destruction. And I told my guys that. And I was like, but we cannot do that. And we are not going to do that because that is not legal. And so what we do is we do the best we can with what the legalities are, with the rules of engagement are. We'll follow them, we'll stick to them, and we'll take the fight to the enemy. That's what we're going to do. But as I said, that line is really, really, it's one of those lines that if you don't pay attention to it, you can look up and you'd be way past that line. No question. I mean, for me as a leader, I, I was not willing to delegate that. You know, I feel like, in, in other words, I always wanted to have, I always wanted to be, te- I always wanted to be a part of that. I always wanted to have some sort of command, command supervisory authority on that aspect of, you know, I was always in the fight. I wanted to be in the fight. I wanted to be where contact was heaviest, but I also wanted to be involved in those types of decisions. And so I think, you know, you mentioned something about just talking to your guys about how you feel too. So many leaders in the military don't do that. And and what I mean by that is they, especially in the infantry, where leaders don't share their own vulnerabilities. Like, hey, man, like, I feel the same way that you do. Like, I want to go out there and kill every one of those little bastards. You know, I feel the same pain that you do. This hurts me just as much to see these men get wounded and killed. Like, but we can't do that. And so just being able to identify with your men on that level is it not only does it bring you closer to them, I think it ingratiates them to you as a leader as well, where they think like, okay, you know, my leader's not some abstract person out there. He feels the same pain that we do. He's in this with us. And, you know, it all goes back to sort of the established and that collective identity. Like if you're a part of that collective identity as a leader, I feel like those sorts of commands uh, are more likely to be to be followed. And that line that you walk, while it is, a, is certainly a fine one, your best chance of staying on the right side of that is operating like that. Yeah, yeah. If you're not connected to your guys, they, they won't listen to you at all. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and then, and I'm, I know you know this, 
you can go too far with that. And all of a sudden you become one of the guys that you can't differentiate yourself and you've gone too far and you've crossed that line of the relationships and you're their friend. And now all of a sudden when you say, hey, this is what we're going to do, you're not telling them that them that from a leader. You're telling them that your opinion from another guy yeah, up here. Exactly. And we don't necessarily have to listen to you because you're just, you know, I, I think different from you. Okay, well, I'm going to do what I think. And then it becomes like, hey, you know, I need you to take that machine gun nest and I need you to take it now. It's at the top of that hill. See, I'm pointing to a go. And then you have a squad. Oh, wait, you're not, you're sending me, you're not sending your buddy. Mm-hmm. And you're, then you're like, you are in crisis as a leader. And yes, to me, you you're are. combat ineffective. The moment that that question is asked, if, if you're, the moment that, if that question is asked, you need to be relieved of command. Yep. You know, um, yeah, leaders, yeah, don't mistake like leadership with friendship. That They're not synonymous at all. You, you know, you might be able to be a friend of your guys after the fact, like when we're retired, sitting around a table, smoking stogies and drinking beer, but not while you're in combat it's just yeah that's why they yeah. say leadership is a lonely thing you know and 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 like that and i because i get this question all the time i had guys that worked for me that were absolutely my friends 100 percent. that i did everything with what surfing and drank beer and did jujitsu and hung out 100 percent. and those guys when i when when i said hey this is what we're doing it was like roger no no question the thing is you don't know who's going to have the professionalism in your platoon to actually be able to do that with. And that's why you have to take that relationship building very, very slowly. And if you just decide you're going to be friends with everyone, there's going to be some guys that are going to take advantage of it. They're not going to be able to handle it. It's going to be cause major problems. And that means you can't be friends with anybody. And now you've created this distance and you'll, you won't have the connection that you want. So it's, man, this is why leadership is hard. Yeah. You know, you you, you raise a great point. I mean, I, you know, I was close with my guys. I loved my guys. They were like my brothers. In fact, I, I got two younger brothers, and I love them too. But, you know, I can I can tell you who each one of my men is in the dark as they're walking away from 100 meters away just by how they – just by their gait. Yep. You know, yeah, I just, sure. you're so close with them. I had that bond with them, and I feel like, you know, so much of leadership is just like showing up, you know, showing that you care, like trooping the line in combat or walking through the barracks at night or just, you know – being there with them in those little moments where you're not maybe intimately involved pounding beers with them in the barracks, mm-hmm. but you're like, they see you, they know you're there. Um, there is a, there, there is a way in which you can have a healthy, strong, all, I mean, I mean, probably in the SEAL teams, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a small, you're a smaller unit. You're, mm-hmm. And plus the guys that make, you know, go through SEAL training and make it through SEAL training are probably a little bit older than that young 18 year old privates. Right. You know, I always had guys in my, I would always have one or two guys that worked for me that were like, that were three, four echelons below me, right? That were E5s. Yeah. And they were like fully trusted, right? Like I could go and say, hey man, what's going on with this guy over here? And they'd say, hey, here's what's happening. And they would never take advantage. But what I'm saying is you can build those relationships, but you have to be very cautious when you do it because like you said, the minute, the moment that that relationships, that relationship that you have with one person negatively impacts the platoon you are a disaster and in combat that hesitate that split seconds hesitation or question could mean death yeah you know and you can't have it you know um but yeah i mean it's it's interesting that you talk about the the dichotomy between friendship and leadership right Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like my i'm so i love my guys to this day even pinhold he was an e4 i was i was i was a first lieutenant at that time i mean he was my rto he's my right hand man we talked about everything together from movies to tv shows to whatever i mean we had a great relationship together but he knew that when i said jump you better damn well jump you know and And, there's guys i think think a lot of that is also making unpopular decisions he's like hey sir i don't want to be the rto i'm like hey pinhold guess what i don't give a shit what you think you're you're my guy and and be like 
And Pennell's a great example of that because Pennell was a guy who was mature for his age. He was smart and he got mm-hmm. it, you know? And there's other guys that you couldn't form that kind of relationship no. with because they would immediately try and utilize that for their own benefit no or whatever. No question about it. So that's that's what I'm saying. I guess I just, I just because sometimes I think when leaders hear, well, you can't be friends with anybody, they think, oh, I got to be totally aloof and no one's going to know me. And it's like, no, no that's, that's not it. You know what? You're exactly right about that, you know, because there are... you. You're exactly right. Some some officers or you know leaders, NCOs, officers, they do interpret it as that, and yep. then they're not involved at all. You and know, that's horrible, and it is terrible. And there are going to be guys that if you buy them a beer, they're going to think you're best friends, and they're going to think they're going to get preferential treatment on Monday. Calling you, texting you, hey sir, what are you up to? <laughs> you want to go out to the bar? No, I'm like, yeah, yeah exactly. So so it's, it is a fine line. You really got to walk a tough it. One. Yeah, it's a it tough is one. for sure. <laughs> all right. Uh, Going back to the book, you guys had done that pretty, we'll call it a victory, for lack of a better word. Second platoon had 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 a, uh, probably the opposite end of the spectrum. Here we go back to the book. Second platoon had taken a beating. We two, we had two on May 7th, but their return to the FOB was totally different from ours. Why? It was all perception. Defeat comes in many forms, both physically and psychologically. Second platoon had arrived home a defeated force. Though we hadn't destroyed the entire enemy force on May 7th and our counterattack had hit thin air as Gulang's men broke contact with us, we'd still inflicted a lot of damage on them. More important, we stayed in the fight. That had given us a vital moral victory that 2nd Platoon hadn't experienced. Breaking contact on May 17th had been the right call given the tactical circumstances, but its psychological effect it had on Burley's men was all too obvious. Their morale and confidence had taken significant hits. I could not let this happen to my guys ever. Hell yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, stay in the fight, the end. That was the lesson there for me. Like, I saw how some of, some of and again, right tactical decisions, sometimes you gotta break contact, right? I mean, but no, not for us. In that moment, like we made, we, every single one of my non-commissioned officers and I looked at each other after, you know, after we got back from that first firefight, and we said to ourselves, you know, we saw how second platoon came back, we saw how their men were dejected, uh, we saw that there are several different components to defeat, but certainly physical and psychological are two. Psychological the defeat is oftentimes worse, right? And we just said to each other, like, I don't give a shit what happens. Like, I don't give a shit what the enemy throws at us. I don't care how they attack us. We're going to stand and fight. We're always going to stay in the fight, and we are not going to be the first to leave the battlefield. Was the bottom line? Like, if the enemy's going to attack us, we are going to counterattack them until they are dead, until they break contact from us. And that's what we did. Um, and that's that's what we did. Sometimes it worked great. Sometimes it didn't. Um, but we we held true to that promise. That's one of those attitudes that you know I call that attitude being default aggressive like our default mode is we're going to attack you that's the way it's going to be and if you have that the 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 amount of power that that gives to a to a team is like look if we get pushed we're going to attack that's what we're going to do if that's what everyone's thinking it gives you like a superpower because that's just a unified attitude that we're going to go attack you absolutely and then and here's the thing it's it's empowering and you said it was empowering because it, it, it empowers your soldiers or your troops to react on a second's notice. There can be no hesitation. When you're attacked, if, you're, if your position is default aggression, or in, in our case, an outlaw platoon, is like we're staying in the fight, we're in the fight until the very end, 
and your default is to attack all the time, your men know exactly what they're supposed to do the moment that they get yeah. shot at, the moment that you're attacked, and it is to attack. And one thing that is infinitely easier is to is to call guys and reel them in. Like say, okay guys, well, guess what? You know what, we're not going to. Like, when you make the decision we're gonna break contact instead, okay, that's something that, whereas if people don't know what they're gonna do, and then you're telling them, okay, now we're going to attack, and you're trying to force that. That's a very that's I totally infinitely agree. more challenging than having to say, okay, guys, look, you put a lot of pressure on. That's cool, but I don't know what's over there, and we're going to break contact. And guys go, oh, okay, well, I'm kind of bummed out because we were we were feeling good, but okay, we'll break contact. That is, it's, I didn't say this in the book, but I remember having this conversation as part of this conversation was. We're sitting there talking to our leadership in the platoon. You've got E5 leaders who are team leaders. Like they got like three to five people under their command and squad leaders who are nine to 12. And I, I remember telling my, my team leaders with my platoon sergeant, um, you, you all need to be team leaders of people that are on the front lines. Like when they get shot at, they're the ones that are reacting oftentimes first. You're bulldogs on a chain. Like right to use your your vernacular yeah. default like that's what you need to be yeah. squad leaders. If you need to dial them back, dial them back, right? But they're the ones talking to me. So like to yeah. your point, like if I'm on the radio saying, okay, let's pull back the team leaders. That's a hell of a lot easier than trying to get multiple units to attack. Yeah, right. Because as a leader, like God, what people don't understand as as a young leader in combat is that not only are you trying to maneuver your troops and identify where the enemy is uh, to to. Uh, to counterattack, you've got to deconflict air corridors. You've got to bring. You've got to if you've got a mortar and then you're firing a mortar and an Apache comes in, you stop firing the mortar so you don't knock the Apache out of the sky. I mean, you've got to. There's all sorts of things you've got to take into consideration. So you have. You almost have to have a default position. And in combat, it sure as hell better be aggressive because yeah. like there's. What else is there? Like yeah. the default defensive? Uh, no, yeah. that's uh, that's not a thing. That's, and by the way, those those moments. Those seconds that that it would take to give the order of hey we're going to attack those seconds are the seconds where you actually win like those seconds no are the times when it. when it's like oh yeah we if we wait three seconds right now we give up the we we give up the superior position to the enemy right now oh my god no question I mean at the, at the at the height of our operational skill in Afghanistan where we killed so many of the enemy and we were there for so long that we knew the terrain better than them it was it was just you know say a battle drill but it was almost like an un, our platoon as a collectively reacted on an unconscious level to these attacks to where Squad, team leaders and squads would attack instantly, and I would have 105s downrange in less than 10 seconds on target. I mean, and it was just a, it was just methodical. It was just, um, it was surgical. And I, I don't think I've ever, ex I, so I always look at like, I've always been, I've only been on like two championship sports teams in my life, right? Each time I, I think was, that's two more than me. <laughs> I know I'm not like, the, my my only first place trophy in wrestling was my first year wrestling tournament. It was like this little trip. It's the only first uh -huh. one, only first place trophy I ever had. Um, but it was just there was something special about those teams yeah. when we won championships. We just had it. We had something. I don't know yeah. what it was. Quali qualitative quality to the to the team that made us successful. My platoon was like that. You know, yeah. it was like a. You know, there's another great uh, leadership point in throughout this book, and that is that you had this awesome decentralized command going on, and you you explain it. You don't use the word decentralized command, I don't think, but you you're explaining what's going on, and you're like, oh, I got to the top of this perimeter, and when I got there, 
you know, Sergeant so-and-so is putting his machine gun over there. Sergeant so-and-so had this perimeter set up. Sergeant so-and-so is taking some high ground over there. Everyone, you hadn't told them to do a damn thing. All you said was like, go up there. And everybody, okay, the, okay, the boss wants us to take the high ground. When they get up there, they look, well, obviously we could take the high ground, we're gonna set up a perimeter, we're gonna get security, we're gonna set firing lanes. They did all that stuff themselves. And I used to explain that to these young, like task unit commanders, I, you know, they, they where where things would get bogged down and people would be waiting, like a, a fire team leader would be waiting to be told, like, hey, get your get your heavy weapon over on that corner so you get good vantage point over this direction where we're looking down in this valley. Like, you you can't tell eight fire team leaders what to do. I it's, I used to I used to tell my we used to train on this, right? I used to tell my team leaders and my subordinate leaders, like, first of all, I want you to have the freedom and flexibility to react on your own, but I need you to handle the implied task. If I tell you that you need to go from point A to point B and knock out that machine gun nest, I'm just going to tell you, go take out that machine gun nest. I'm not going to tell you to maneuver to the rock and then mm-hmm. stop and then set up your machine. No, it's it's up to you as a leader. I delegate that to you yep. to just get it done because guess what? I don't have time for that shit. Nope. I got other things going on. So And so that to me, it was just, like anytime a soldier would come up to me and be, hey, sir, like, where do you want me to put that? I'm like, hey, man, I need you to handle the yep. applied task, brother. Yep. Like, I, you know? Go handle figure it. Figure it out, you know? Um, so you know, there's command of execution. Like my command of execution is, knock out that machine gun nest or hold the line here. They got to do what they got to yeah. do to do it. You know, gotta I don't figure need, it out. Yeah, you got it. And so to that extent, I guess it is sort of decentralized. Oh, that's command, absolutely you know? decentralized. Your book is filled with decentralized command. You guys ran it beautifully. I just sort of stumbled upon it. I feel like you've, you're you're the pro at it. I just sort of stumbled <laughs> upon it. By, well, it's really easy for me to recognize. Accident. It's really easy for me to recognize. And, you know, somewhere along the line, someone told you like, hey, you better let your squad leaders do this. Or you figured out for yourself, hey, I can't, I can't tell you exactly what to do. I'm going to tell you. I'm, you need to figure out how you're going to get done. And Absolutely. And, and when you do that, I mean, it's healthy for a unit and platoon and a team because there's a sense of accomplishment of your subordinate leaders when they get it done and do it right. Oh, yeah. And also there's a little something called ownership, which is, you know, when you tell me to go do something and I go and figure out how I'm going to do it by myself, then I actually take ownership of getting it done and I feel even more accomplishment because I'm not just accomplishing what you told me to do. I'm accomplishing what I figured out how we were going to do. No question. So, and then when that happens, it also makes people proud of their accomplishments. <laughs> and then they start teaching their uh, their lower enlisted people on how to do it as well, right? Yes. And so, like that's our big thing is like I don't as a leader, right? I would tell all of my guys like I don't give. We don't train for what we think combat would be like. We train for we train to like just react and react effectively. So in order to do that. Everybody in this platoon needs to know the job of the guy beneath them and the job of the guy above them. Yep. And we train on all that stuff. And so the hope was is that we could establish some form of decentralized command and each troop, each soldier in my platoon could perform the jobs. That were, I mean, God, you take, a, you take a casualty, somebody gets, God forbid, somebody gets killed, somebody immediately has to step in that tra- step into that position, step into that leadership position with no hesitation no, no and take hesitation. it over. You yeah. know? So, it's the way it's got to be. It's the way it's got to be. Going back to the book, and uh, once again, I'm fast-forwarding giant swaths of incredible information here. So get the book so you can hear it all. You're on a mountaintop. It's June 10th. Back to the book, All Elements. This is Blackhawk 3-6. We'll be starting, we'll be standing to 
in 15 mics. My four other truck commanders acknowledged we spent the night waiting for Galang. How do you say his name? Galang. Galang. And this guy is the the bad guy in this book. Yeah, and, he's... and you, again, because I'm only reading little tiny parts of this incredible book, you have to get the book so you can get the full details of Galang. Yeah, I feel like for you guys, he'd probably be a high-value target, maybe yep. MVT. I mean, but he was the local commander in our area, and he was a badass, man. He fought against the right. I mean, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he was he's like he's the one that's setting up all these really good like when when that first ambush you were in First of all, I'm surprised you guys got out of there. Me too. And, and I think to myself, if I could have been the ambusher in that, like you know, you think, man, you're you're going to kill everyone. Like it's a miracle that you guys made it's great leadership, it's great uh reaction by your troops, but that this guy is a pro. I mean, is I what I'm trying to say. For sure. This guy is a pro. I mean, look, man, they were hitting like there were bullet holes. We had Mark 19s, the feed trays. Like there were bullet holes stitched across the top of them. That's how close some of the rounds were coming to hitting my gunners. And I mean, all of that I feel like is true. Like a little bit of luck. I mean, there's something else out there. I feel like we were just blessed or lucky or whatever you want to call it, man. But yeah. Well, we always we always take blessings and luck for sure. Yeah. Take we'll take that. We'll especially take that. When, especially when you're getting ambushed with three yeah. sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the high ground. Uh, yeah. So now the morning chill upon us, I shivered in my filthy clothes. We made it a standard practice to wake up an hour before dawn while out beyond the FOB like this. Experience had shown that the enemy loved to launch attacks this time in the morning. Soon all 24 of my men were up in position waiting to see what the enemy would make a move. I think I, put, I, think I circled that just because I always liked the uh, idea of standing too. We and, did it all and, the time, and also because you my were guys cold. hated it. My guys hated it. But yeah. we did it all the time. You, I learned that from an old Australian SAS guy. He's like, you got to wake up an hour before the sun comes up. Be ready. You got to be the, the first alert. mover yep. of the day, man. I mean, yep. that's just that was my thing. It's like you set the tone. You set the tone early, right? And no one wants to do it. And and typically, to me, if it's uncomfortable like that, and no one wants to do it, there's a reason why we do it. You know, yep. and 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 you hear all the time of complacency kills, right? Well, there's, there's no way in hell that I was going to allow that to happen to my troops. Yep. You know, yep. if I if I'm the cool guy. If I'm the guy letting letting troopers get away with shit, like taking off their helmets or whatever, unbuttoning their, uh, their helmet straps and their turrets, then and someone gets killed, like I'm the guy that has to live yep. with that forever. So those tough decisions about like waking up early, staying in the proper uniform, wearing the right eye protection. I mean, come on. If you let a soldier downgrade their uniform and do- downgrade their protective gear, someone gets hurt. I mean, it's just something that you don't want to ever have to live with. No. While you're up there on this observation point you guys call for artillery on a ridge line and because you you suspected of being in an area where they were storing or launching rockets from mm-hmm. there was a big cave site there that we knew that they were using from one side of pa- they're entering the cave from pakistan and exiting the cave from afghanistan to stay out of, you know yeah. we had isr and predator in the area and we're like how are these guys smuggling <laughs> these rockets in well we ended up identifying a cave site where they were doing it from so back to the book. A few minutes later, the first 105 millimeter artillery shell tore across the sky and exploded on the west slope of the mountain. More shells, more shells rained down. Our gunners at Burmel were dead on. Even better, they threw in a mix of ground and air bursts, creating a lethal artillery cocktail. I watched from the edge of our perimeter, wondering how anyone could survive such firepower. Mission complete, sir. Sir Reuter reported. That was your RTO? Ruder, yeah. Ruder, yeah. Ruder. I turned. He was my, he was my FO, my forward observer. Oh, okay. So okay. He would, I, I, would, I would plot out the maps. I'd yep. call it to him. He'd call Boom. it in. 
Yeah. He's squared away throughout this book. He's just on it. He is. He's amazing. And he, I mean, he ended up being, he's like a pilot now. He's a Blackhawk pilot now. But yeah, awesome. he's amazing. I turned and started to walk back to my home V. Ha ha, Ruder. How about that? I asked with a smile. Happiness is good indirect, sir. He replied. <laughs> it was standard refrain for our, for our Ford Observer like to use. He was right too. Indirect fire gave a platoon like ours an awesome amount of destructive power. I flicked a glance over my shoulder at the smoke-smothered mountaintop. Your play, assholes. I'd walked about halfway back to my rig and was just passing a thick pine tree when I called out to Rooter again. Let's see what those bastards are saying on their radios now. But before I, he could respond, Rooter and everything in my view disappeared as a curtain had just dropped before my eyes. Blackness. Nothing. Where am I? The morning scene in the Hindu Kush had va- vanished, replaced by an endless void. Sean, that voice. Sean, you need to get up. Grandpap? Sean, you have to wake up now. I struggled to see him, but he stayed cloaked in the velvet darkness. I was left only with the smooth comfort of his voice. Get up, Sean. You got to get up. Get up for me. Something stung my face. I tried to look and see what had just hit me, but I could not penetrate the void. Am I dreaming? I tried to shake my head, but I couldn't find fire the right neurons. Instead, I floated, captive to whatever moment this was. Another sting on my face. At least I could feel something. I wanted to move my hand up and touch my cheek and defend against whatever kept hitting me. My hand refused to obey. I felt disembodied as if somehow my conscious had been separated from my material form. Sean, get up. A telephone buzzed in my ears now. The ringing was all I could hear. Disoriented, I tried to look around and realized I was flat on my back, perhaps 15 feet from where I last remembered standing. The tree I'd been passing looked as though a giant had snapped it in half. Then I saw Sabaki. His face was smeared with blood, his IBA stained crimson with it. In a sudden rush, my hearing came back. I went from nothing but the telephone to a hurricane of sounds in in a heartbeat. The switch blitzed my nervous system. For an instant, I was helpless against the sentry overload swamped by staccato bursts of 50 cal explosions and screams. Sir, sir, you okay, Statler? Stalter. Stalter shouted at me. Why wouldn't I be? He smacked me again. Sir, you got blown the fuck up. (laughs) Yeah, that's what... (laughs) He was like... What was was it, a mortar? Yeah, so... uh, So, yes, it was an airburst mortar. Um, And so we had heard... We had heard the enemy during our stand to, right, uh, talking on their ICOMs about moving the rockets to the cave. And I'm like, well, hot damn, I know exactly where you are. And so I called in the artillery. Um, but what we didn't realize was is that the enemy had been planning attack there all night, right? And they were planning to attack us. They had identified our observation post. They had conducted reconnaissance on us all night. They identified who the key leaders were over several hours worth of reconnaissance. We had no idea that we were there until the next morning, but we didn't realize that the ICOM chatter that we were hearing was them planning an attack. Now, that stand-to is what saved us mm-hmm. because we got to hit them first. Um, and But it was base, It was like hitting a – hornet's nest with a baseball bat mm-hmm. you know they had they had maneuvered you're still gonna get stung yes <laughs> yes yes and so i remember watching those rounds which were fired charge eight right so we talk about charge eight on artillery is like rocket wrap rocket assisted projectiles for artilleries that there's a tactical uh, inherent tactical risk involved there is that the rocket charge can flip the gun so you have to balance as a leader um will the tactical effects of this fire 
uh, outweigh the potential tactical risk of the guns flipping and then being ineffective. I had to make that call, um, fire the guns, uh, the rounds impacted right where I wanted them to, walk back to my truck, and just the entire, the whole world goes black for me in that moment. And I remember coming to Stalter slapping my face and laughing, and I'm like shaking, right? I could not, yeah, no. It's like that black sense of humor, you know? Yeah. That, that, it's funny because you didn't say in the book he was laughing. He was, la- yeah, he was like, laughing. <laughs> but I know that attitude right there. He's got a chance to smack the LT. Yeah. And he's straddling my chest, like he's like, sit, like it's, he's like straddling over me, like slapping me in the face. And, um, and I'm, I'm like laying on my back and I'm looking to my left. And the first thing that I see is my platoon sergeant. This is a guy who's been in the military for 20 plus years. This is Greason? Yeah, Greason. who's in Panama, jumped in with Panama. He was with the 7th Infantry. Yeah, yeah, he's old, old school, like you, like you, you know. Um, <laughs> but he's, um, he's, he's pointing to his back, taking cover behind this big tree, pointing to his back, had taken shrapnel there. His back is covered in blood. Sabo's wounded, who's my weapons squad leader, my second most senior NCO in the platoon. In fact, uh, every key leader of my platoon was wounded in the first 60 seconds of that engagement. Every And I was down and out myself. And so, I mean, I'm looking around me. What were your wounds? At the time, yeah. I didn't know. Um, later, it was I ended up fracturing my skull in two, three different places. And I had a <laughs> cerebral spinal fluid leak. And so, I was when I sat up and the clear fluid that leaked was leaking out of my nose and was leaching out of my ears for a couple of weeks. It was as a result from those hairline fractures in my skull, and the cerebral spinal fluid is the stuff that cushions your brain from your skull, and it was just leaking out like you know, and that ended up healing on its own. But again, this was back in 2005. Like soldiers today are getting yeah. evac for injuries like that, but this was before TBI was yeah. even an acronym. It wasn't even a thing. So. So anyway, we're we're like, I sit up and, and the rate of fire was so heavy. I mean, so I'm watching these airburst mortars hit us, and I know that they're not impacting on the ground, right? But they're hitting above us, and I could, be, and I'm watching the tops of trees um, just explode. These are trees that had been untouched by humanity for what probably 150 years. You know, mm-hmm. they're big, huge trees, and watching these things explode, I'm looking at my hand, which is laying on the ground. And there, um, there are rounds impacting like right between my forefinger and my thumb. I mean, it was just insane. Everywhere I looked, it was like the dirt was on fire because machine gun rounds were just in our perimeter all around us. And I remember being – Stalter grabs me by my, my body armor and pulls me up. It's clear fluid leaks out of my nose. And I'm looking to the, to the ridge lines, And then in the darkness, I couldn't really tell. It was a tactical mistake on my part that there were two hills directly east of our position that were taller than ours. Yeesh. Yeah. And from those hilltops, the enemy had three machine guns uh, a piece. Like, and they were, they were, again, they were barking the guns. They were talking the guns and they were, they weren't just doing that. They, they were using plunging fire to drop the rounds into our position. So in other words, they were firing them on a trajectory where they would arc up and land in the middle of us so that even if you were taking cover mm-hmm. behind a deflate or something, the round could theoretically land on top of you. They were hitting us with airburst mortars. And as I'm sitting there trying to take in this fight, like, holy shit, like, they have us dead to rights here. There's no way we're getting out of this. And and you guys are in a 360-degree perimeter. Yeah, I've got, got five Humvees. Yep, five, five gun trucks, 24 troops on the ground, uh, one interpreter. I got two fifty caliber machine guns, one Mark 19, one 240 Bravo that's mounted, and two other dismounted 240 Bravos in my trucks. Um, so 
were the and they were positioned in 360 degree sec- security on top of this big hilltop. Uh, big hilltop. I had the third biggest hilltop in the area. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Must have my chagrin. The third biggest hilltop in the area. Oh, yeah, man. and I got my troops interspersed, and on the easternmost portion of that perimeter was Sabaki and Baldwin, and I looked towards there uh, to where they are, and their trucks are totally destroyed. Um, I see Baldwin. He's got a bullet in his shin, and he's bleeding all over the Afghan dirt. And I remember, like, what struck me in that moment is that he's not trying to treat his own injury. He's trying to treat his team leader, who is Bennett Garvin, who had taken a tumbling AK round to the forearm and almost severed his arm. And the the entry entry wound itself was this big. The exit wound was even bigger. I mean, his arm was hanging by a thread. Baldwin was trying to get a tourniquet on there. I remember looking at Baldwin's face. He was just ghost white. He was bleeding out. Emrick was my a gunner in one of my turrets. He's up in the turret on the 50 cal. He gets shot in the head, drops in the turret. Um, he pops back up, gets on the gun. Uh, the, a kid that was in my platoon, it was his very first patrol. Kyle Lewis is on another gun. I watch him get shot in the head in the turret, him fall down, him get back up. And we're talking their helmets have ra- like in and out, you know, from, from a bullet. Like, and somehow these dudes survive. Uh, my guy stayed in the fight somehow, uh, but we ended up getting attacked that day by, I mean, you know, you, and the predator analysis after the fight, once we finally got predator on station, over 200 guys, the Sergeant Major's just counting them, one, two, three, four, five, over 200 to my 24. And so, so what was crazy about that attack was that the enemy had, the enemy had, they had simultaneously emplaced two support by fire positions and they had us in a crossfire and they were hitting us with plunging fire. But in order to get those support by fire positions in place without us noticing them, they hit us with indirect airburst mortars, which is what kept our heads down, right? So we're, we're getting hit with our artillery. I'm knocked out. Everyone's taking cover. They emplace these support by fire positions. They put us in a crossfire and I'm thinking as a young Lieutenant, like, okay, shit, like we're dead to rights. What's next? And I'm realizing at the time that these guys are fighting just like we do. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what I would do in the same situation. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, if I were them, I would attack. And it it wasn't but a minute that that thought had dawned on me that I see that we get attacked from those hilltops, from two successive positions, from 40-man platoon size elements, like bounding, bounding down the hill into the valley below and up towards our position. And it, I mean, I just it just was so crazy. Uh, we started calling in fire danger close on our position, and it was just I was watching 105 rounds vaporize men like on in the deflate in the low ground below, but it wasn't enough. I mean, it was not stopping them. Didn't matter what we threw at them; there were just so many of them. We'd kill one, two more would replace it. They were just, they had just amassed a force there that no matter what we threw at them, it, it, it wouldn't it wasn't stopping them. We were I mean all around my perimeter. You know, we're going black on ammunition. I got my squad leader screaming that they're going black on ammunition. And I'm thinking of like Joshua Chamberlain and like, holy shit, I'm going to have to order a bayonet charge down into the teeth of the enemy. And then I remember sitting there at my trucks, like thinking, Jesus Christ, the army doesn't issue us bayonets anymore. Like, this is like, this is crazy. So everyone starts grabbing their sidearms, uh, starts grabbing knives, getting ready to fight. And then we fight them to a almost like a stalemate they they didn't quite get to the top of our hill we're blowing claymore mines we're yelling back and forth and i remember sitting on the easternmost perimeter with my guys you can see these long knives hanging from their belts we fight them to a stalemate and i'm starting thinking like okay i gotta start getting these casualties out of here because they're all bleeding to death so we start trying to evacuate baldwin um or evacuate garvin we get over there 
Baldwin's like, take Garvin first. So our medic, Doc Pantoja, grabs him, picks him up, starts carrying him back, and boom, watches Pantoja, our medic, uh, get shot in the face and drop. And thinking, my medic is dead, Jesus Christ. Like, in this whole time, I'm just... What's the time frame that we're talking about right now? Like, how long has this been going on? Uh, probably up until this point, probably at least an hour and a half. We couldn't get close air support either because our like rotor wing and fixed wing support were diverted down south to a troops in contact where mm-hmm. a battalion and brigade commander were involved in. So we were like just left out there flapping. And um, who cares about <laughs> yeah. First Lieutenant Parnell? Yeah, right yeah, now. yeah, right, right. I Jeez, mean, man. and so Baldwin, you know, Pantoja goes down and I watch him stand up. And I'm just like, I couldn't believe that this kid was still alive. The entire, like, you know, right side of his face is ruined from this bullet hole. He picks up Garvin, gets him to the aid station. We run back for Baldwin, get hit with another RP, get hit with an RPG this time. I I go flying, Pantoja goes flying. We get back up, grab Baldwin, get him to the casualty collection point. Um, we, then we start trying to prep them uh, for evac, get tourniquets on, render first aid. And what was the Kazavac plan? How well, are you going to get him out of there? Well, the Kazavac plan, we were trying to coordinate with the Marines and the ANA back at the base to come out here and link up so with us. So it was so a the, vehicular yeah. Kazavac. It wasn't, yeah, was, wasn't going to be uh, helicopters coming in. Correct. Was, and that that is the, the truly difficult thing about Afghanistan and the challenges that you face with the terrain there. Sometimes in the weather, right? So if the weather is cloudy and there's a low ceiling, the birds aren't flying, you're out there operating, somebody gets shot, severs an artery, the birds aren't coming. Mm-hmm. And there's no way you're going to evac them back to a, a level of care where they're going to survive. The tactical risk in Afghanistan in this regard is just is just astronomical with regards to casualties. And on that day, I mean, the, the fighting was so heavy. There was no way we were getting a Blackhawk in there to evacuate him. There's yeah. no way we could have a Blackhawk loiter and get a jungle penetrator in to get a guy. There's no mm-hmm. way in hell. No one was coming. So it had to be a vehicular Kazavak, a conduct link up on the westernmost portion of our perimeter. Um with Marines and ANA. Kazavak slash QRF, because you guys needed like legitimate quick reaction force we help. Did. Oh, we were this getting is, overrun. This, yeah. is a, this is a great, and you, I'm telling you, you got to read this book, but here's a part that's, to the enemies closing in, like you said, Pinhole appeared beside me. Sir, we're about to be overrun. We need to Z our radios, which for those of you that are civilians that don't know, your radios have a little switch on them that you can turn that erases all the, all the, cryptographic material in all the secret material all the code the, the special code comsec yeah the, the special code that you've got in your radio that allows you to understand other american radios when you turn this thing to zero then it's gone that means the enemy can't take your radio and listen so but you have that switch in the event that you think you're going to get overrun the last thing you're going to do like literally the last thing you will do is zeroize your radio so that the enemy can't get on the friendly frequencies and listen or talk or disrupt them in any way. So Pinholt tells you we need to Z our radios, which is which means that he, in his mind, thinks you guys are done. We were. You guys are done. Because there's no, once you zeroize your radio, the you can't talk anymore. You can't talk to so, your own elements. So right. he's just saying, look, we're done. We are going to be overrun. We need to zeroize our radios so the enemy doesn't get them and we're all going to die here in the next whatever. That's where he was at mentally. You come back. No way, I said instinctively. In worst case scenarios, we were trained to erase the frequencies on our communication system so the enemy could not listen to our chatter. By doing so, we would lose all ability to call for more fire support. 
Sir, we need to do it. He actually pushed back. Sir, we need to do it, Pinholt insisted. No, we cannot lose our link to the FOB. Both enemy assault elements had cleared their own slopes now and were pouring across the valley floor, a hundred men at least. How many did we have left? A dozen? Maybe Pinholt was right. We lose our radio link, we all die. Ruder, I shouted, turning to my Ford observer who was sitting in my Humvee with the radio handset to his mouth. Sir, call in anything you can. Work the fire missions. Danger close. Got it? Yes, sir. He keyed the handset and began barking coordinates. I looked at my RTO. Do not see these radios. They go down, we all go down. Got it? Yes, sir. Good. Grab a radio and come with me. I can't, I, I can't, I mean, I can't believe that, 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 I mean, Jesus, man, I, uh, yeah, that's where, you know, my men, I remember the feeling on top of that hill that day. My men all had, you know, nine mils in the truck with just, just enough rounds to take their own life should we be overrun because we were not going to allow ourselves to be taken captive by these guys. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds morbid, but that was just the truth, you know, um, and that's where a lot of the guys were. I mean, they were still in the fight, right? They were still going to fight to the very bitter end. But there comes a point in time where you're out of ammo, and they got more ammo than you, yeah. and they're uh, they're among you. Um, that's where we were. That's where we were. I checked with Ruder. Any birds in route? Negative, sir. All the air assets are tied up elsewhere. Keep trying. I huddled up with Greason. A good dynamic existed between the two of us. I was always the hot one. He ran cold and kept me grounded. We'd become so close we could finish each other's thoughts. Throughout the fight, we didn't even have to communicate much. But all along, we functioned smoothly as a team. Greason? Yeah, sir, he growled through dirt-crusted lips. What's our next play? Somebody screamed, they're coming again. The sound of gunfire grew fast and desperate. The tempo of the fight was changed was changing, building. I looked at Greason and saw relentless determination etched on his face, but also I saw a touch of fear. Fuck, I don't know, sir. Shoot back. <laughs> that was his plan, which is where you guys were at. And 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 I I tried uh, what yeah, when he said that I was I, at that point I was like holy shit, you know, like for a lieutenant, like my biggest weapon is my radio. And if it's time for like me to start shooting back, it's a it's a real real bad day for everybody. But that's where we were. You could hear these guys, not only and you, you detail this in the book. It's scary. You hear them calling out Alu Akbar, which okay. But then what what? Because we've all heard that. But then you you hear the uh, the squad and their squad and fire team leaders giving out orders. You could hear that too. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. It was it was. Um, and we were yelling back and forth, screaming, uh, calling them names and stuff, and they were yelling back at us. And when we fought them, to a stalemate. And this was the first – this was the fight. You know, after Greason's like, shoot back, and I run out to where Baldwin was because, again, my big thing is that if you're a leader, it is your job to be where the contact is heaviest. You know, yeah, you have to coordinate other aspects of the fight, but you better be on the knife's edge of where the hep fighting is heaviest. And so – you know, I ran back out to the easternmost portion of the perimeter, and that's where I first that's that's when I first pulled my trigger and took a life was in that engagement at that moment, and it was at the moment where we we're watching and witnessing these um, these their team leaders. I mean, their chain of command, yelling fire commands and bound commands and maneuver commands to their subordinate team leaders, and it was just. I mean, we knew that they were well trained because of the first engagement that we were in with them, right? We knew that they know how to fight, but it was. 
a whole other thing to see their command and control and how fast they were on the battlefield. They were way faster than we were. Yeah, well, they're a lot lighter too. That's right, right? yeah. Right? I mean, yes. that's one thing. They have this huge advantage because we weigh ourselves down because we value human life. So we wear body armor and we carry radios and they carry what? AK-47. AK-47 magazines. Mags, some frags. And, and and they're acclimatized. Like they're all used to running around at 12,000 feet, you know, so they scale up the side of a mountain better than a mountain goat can, you know, and that these are the people that we were fighting, you know, and what we had started to see on the battlefield, you know, there, anytime you're in Afghanistan, it's like you deal with, you know, anything from Al Qaeda to the Akhani network to Hekmatyar to the Taliban. Sometimes in this engagement, what we were seeing was cross training. And so you'd see Al Qaeda foreign commanders, you know, commanding and leading mm. ground troops who were just local Taliban. And man, it was it was just a wicked, wicked, wicked fight. Um, sometimes people will say, you know, Jocko, you talk a lot about tactics. Like, don't you think the enemy's gonna gonna like learn these tactics? I'm like, the enemy absolutely knows these tactics. The tactics I talk about are cover and move, you know, set up support by fire positions, maneuver through, you know, like that's what I talk about all the time. There's no secret to this stuff. You either know how to do it, and if you do it, how well can you do it? Or you don't know it, and then you get slaughtered. But yeah, there's, but but to hear, that's exactly everything that you just said. Everything that you've experienced so far is exactly what we do. That's what we do. Like, that's what we do. We set up ambushes. We set up L ambushes. We set up, we want to get the high ground. We set up support by fire positions. We bound in maneuvering leapfrog elements. So we cover and move for each other. That's what we do. And, 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 and knowing the tactics um, and being entrenched in them is not enough. You know, um, and so, yeah, of course, the enemy knows everything that we do. Our FMs are on the Internet, of course, like, you know, but but knowing that you have to be able to take that the tactics are just a baseline. You've got to train yes. and evolve and watch the enemy and and adapt. And and so anytime anybody asks me a question about tactics, too, it's like, yeah, of course, the enemy knows our tactics. And but that's not enough. And if you're even asking that question, it means you're a slave to the tactics, which can't be. The tactics are a baseline. And that's just like any leadership. Yeah. You have to be able to make command decisions on the fly, evolve, adapt and operate in the field. And that's what you have to do to be effective in combat. Yeah. And as you put as you as you related that first ambush that you got caught in, there's no manual that gives the answer that you gave. There's no manual you can say, okay, if, if this is where you're at, first of all, how are you going to describe that? How are you going to how are you going to uh, describe or give a scenario for every single possible combat situation that you're going to be in? It's literally impossible to do because you God knows what's going to happen out on the battlefield. God knows that you're going to be in a situation like that right there in that particular environment, in that particular scenario, with that particular terrain, with the enemy in their situation, with your troops, you know, uh, arraigned the way they are, like that's only going to happen one time. And if all you know is the basic fundamental tactics without knowing how to deviate from those tactics, you're going to get killed. But if you truly understand the principles of the tactics, then you can go, oh, okay, here's what's going on. I'm trapped. We, I better get the high ground and I better get it now. That's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, if you if you if the tactics are the only thing that you understand, then you're in a near ambush. You're you're, you know, react to near ambush, charging into the. I mean, you're dead. You're dead. If that's your it, bottom line, is tactics are a baseline. You've got to understand the principles and be able to adapt and maneuver. Uh, using and understanding what those principles are, yep. otherwise you're done. Yep. You know because the one thing that combat does better than anything else is throw you a curveball every <laughs> single day. I mean, you you could be 
at the top of your game and all of a sudden yeah. like one of your trucks your rear differential on your humvee breaks and you're stuck on the side of a mountaintop for three days it's, to it's, it means, it like what do you what do you do with that it's absolute yeah. chaos and you know what tactics bring and what training brings is a certain amount of order to that chaos and yep. that fine line in between order and chaos is where survival is and and, and like you said and the same thing we i think we both just said the exact same thing knowing the tactics knowing where the x's and zeros move on a on a chalkboard is part of understanding but you have to understand the actual principles that you're trying to to enforce on the battlefield that's what you have to you have to understand what are the principles you have to understand those principles once you understand those principles then you can adapt those tactics and you can maneuver and you can make things happen which which like you said just knowing the tactics isn't good enough you have to understand the principles of why you're employing those tactics and then you can make calls and decisions that will allow you to win going back to the book the enemy wouldn't quit the fight grew even more intense delta platoon anchored us or we would have gone down for sure still we couldn't hold the enemy off indefinitely we needed more firepower and more men on a hill a few hundred meters to our northwest to our northwest a head appeared over the crest then another soon a dozen figures flowed over the hilltop and down the slope facing us they were carrying AKs more followed a dozen Two dozen. The lead element opened fire on the run, shooting from the hip like something straight out of a movie. I had one mag left. I'd given all my others away. Even with Delta's trucks, we couldn't stop this fresh threat. Unconsciously, I clutched my Gerber knife. I can't believe it has come to this. More men poured over the crest. And then I saw a Marine in their ranks. Their ANA, I said to myself. Combat whipsaws your emotions in an extreme way that nothing else can. I'd gone from despair to euphoria in a matter of seconds. The Afghan troops sprinted into our perimeter and counter-assaulted the enemy through our firing line. Galang's men reeled from the blow and fell back pell-mell to the base of the hill. Several more Marine Humvees and ANA Toyota trucks joined us from the northwest. We'd gone from having five trucks three of which had been rendered immobile by damage to having 14. <laughs> I mean, that combat really is an emotional roller coaster, man. You go from thinking that you're dead one second to, you know, having a shot at getting out of there alive. And I remember, I will never forget this ANA dude, like, cresting the top of that hill. He's just screaming at the top of his lungs. He's got his AK-47 down on his side. He's screaming, and as he's running, he's shooting the ground in front of him. Like that's I'm like thinking, oh my god! Like he's just shooting like right in the ground. I'm like, oh my god! Like we're getting overrun, and come to find out, it was the, you know, it was the Marines and the ANA, and it was just, you know, they augment our position, and you know, they they augment our position. We start crossloading ammunition, and and then we fought them to a stalemate for like another four or five hours, you know, and we ended up getting uh, an Apache on station, an A10, and then we had a. Um, a B one a B one strategic lancer on station where we dropped. I want to say I think we dropped at least eleven two thousand pound JDAMs on that cave site and on that ridge line. And it was only after that that we could get them to even break contact in the first place. They were determined. It was unbelievable. They were determined to overrun an American platoon and behead us. That was what we learned. That was what they wanted to do. And from then on out, that's that's the enemy that we were fighting. And and they were. 
utterly relentless in every way. And if we weren't ready to face him every time we left the wire, we again, we were dead to rights. Just before you guys got the air support, you had this unfold. I'm going back to the book. We got to get them to the trucks, grease in order. Dixon, now sheet white from blood loss, lifted Baldwin's wounded leg with his unwounded arm. The rest of us picked him up as well. Staying low, we moved as fast as we could off the lip of the hill down the northwest slope to the waiting Humvees. Before we could slide him inside the truck, Baldwin cried, Sir, sir, the terror in his voice made us freeze. I'm fucked up. Mouth open, shallow, rapid bleeding. He was going into shock. I could see Afghan dirt ground into his teeth. You're gonna be okay, bro, I said. I'm shot in the back. What? When we all went down, Baldwin took a round at the base of his spine. We had no idea until that moment. I can't feel my legs. He seized my hand with his, and as he stared at me with saucer eyes, he squeezed it hard. As weak as he had been, the fear assailing him now evoked one last birth of strength. No words came. I held my brother's hand until they pulled me from him. Door closed, driver gunning the engine, the Humvee lumbered off for Fob Brumel. The second one carrying Garvin and Dixon soon followed. I watched them go, Greeson and Sabo standing beside me, the blood of our brothers drying on our hands and arms. So as you guys were, were carrying out, as you guys were carrying out Baldwin, you guys got riddled with machine guns. You, didn't you take one through the pant leg or something? Yeah, I so okay, so um we were dropping JDAMs on him. We thought we had we thought we had driven the enemy back and given enough tactical space to start evac on our casualties in a way that we thought was as safe as we could possibly do it. So, I mean you say safe, but you know what I mean. Uh it was the best time. And so we start picking up, uh we rush Garvin down to the trucks and we come back for Baldwin on the second trip because again, Baldwin insisted that we that we get Garvin first. And so all of us grab Baldwin. Baldwin, again, 6'4", 250, huge guy. So I grab I grab him, Sabo grabs him, Sergeant Dixon grabs him, and Greeson grabs him. And as we're carrying Baldwin to the truck and down the hill, we get hit by machine gun fire from a rogue, you know, one of those machine gun nests that wasn't destroyed. Around went through the back plate of my IBA, um, and down through Sergeant Dixon's arm as we were carrying him. And I just remember watching Sergeant Dixon get shot right in the forearm. And, I mean, he just we just watched the blood spurt out of his arm and his face goes white and we drop Baldwin. Um, it was sort of chaos. And then all I remember, though, is, is uh, Pantoja coming out of nowhere. His face is still ruined. Throws a tourniquet on Dixon, and Dixon runs over to the other side of Baldwin and grabs him with his good hand, and we all pick him up, and we get him to the trucks, and we get him down to the truck, and and Baldwin just kept saying to me over and over again, sir, sir, and I'm just like, it's okay, you're going to be good, you're going to be good, because he was, he was so white. He had lost so much blood already from the bullet wound to his leg. And the thing is, is that the bullet wound to his leg, he lost a lot of blood, but he never, he was never out of the fight. He never once stopped shooting and tried to get him off the line. It was, he was a, God, he was a pain in the ass that day. And I tell him that to this day, you know, I could not get him off the line and he's just ghost white. And to this day, all I remember really a lot about that moment is just this, you know, around the whites of his teeth, he's just had this Afghan dirt just caked to his teeth. And he just said, sir. You know, I'm really fucked up. And I said, you're going to be fine. I promise you're going to be good. And I'm like holding his hand like this. And he goes, no, sir. No, sir. I, I, I've been shot in the back. I can't feel my legs. And then the Humvees whisked him away. And we, I never really, I never saw him again. And not until we got, had been back months. You know, we knew he was okay. We knew he was going to survive. 
gotten updates on his condition throughout the course of our deployment. Um, but man, that was Baldwin was one of those guys in my platoon that was just a man. All my NCOs were just so great, and to lose any one of them like that uh, was really challenging. It was really tough. You guys got Apaches, you guys got A10s, and you guys got the B1. When you heard you got the B1, you said the wrath of God. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, an infantry platoon on the border of Afghanistan got a B1 strategic lancer capable of dropping, like, you know, I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you, like 20, 30 JDAMs. You know, JDAM is a joint direct attack munition on target. Um, I mean, we, I'm telling you, we must have at least 11 probably more like 22 we dropped over the course of that engagement. It was just, you know, because it, it didn't just end after the enemy broke contact, right? They were still taking pot shots well mm-hmm. after we, the, the initial force had broken contact because we had to get a wrecker up there to get our trucks out, you know, get a wrecker up to the top of this mountain to yeah. get our trucks. You guys needed it just like took forever. to completely secure this whole AO. just took forever. It just took forever. And we were out there for hours and hours and hours. And uh, eventually... After we had uh, hooked up our last Humvee, we all limped out of there. When it was over, the silence was almost unbearable. Galang's force had been pulverized. The fighting had lasted almost six hours. Exhausted, we hooked up our three disabled rigs and towed them off the hilltop for home. Our long column traveled west with barely a word shared among us. Empty shell casings littered our Humvee floorboards. And as we bounced along the rugged Afghan roads, they jingled like sleigh bells. When we reached Burmel, the homebodies turned out in force. The divide between combat troops and the men who work behind the wire grows wider in moments such as those. Band of brothers? No. Battle sifts those relationships like nothing else. We called them pogues, which stands for personnel other than grunts, or fobbits. They smiled and laughed and took photos of our battered trucks as we parked on our, out on the maintenance pad. They spent the night safe Inside the base, uniforms clean, body armor stowed under their bunks. And you actually decided to become a smoker right then. Yes. <laughs> Started smoking cigarettes. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> I absolutely did. And, um, you know, I that part of the book, I sort I mean, it, it happened exactly like that. You come back, you're shot to shit. You come back and you have these guys, these guys, Americans that greet you, and they look at you like you're in like a zoo. You know, they want to see the the, the devastation of the trucks. The every single window of our up armor shot out completely. I mean, we had we had the up armored ballistic glass. Thank God for that. But I mean, they were all just shot out completely. I, I mean, almost every single member of my platoon was wounded in that engagement, and like guys were bloodied and battered and so you got these guys taking pictures of you that you know they're going to send to their family and be like look at how bad we have it over here but these are guys that are like three hots in a cot every day you know they're taking warm showers and then you think about it like this you know you get back from uh from being outside the wire for 10 days and you haven't had a shower in 10 days and there's we don't have running water on the base so there's a finite amount of it to begin with you get back and there's nothing but cold showers because these guys who stay on the base all the time use all the hot water and then you go in and you try to call your family and these guys who are on the base are clogging up the phones you've been gone for 10 days on a mission you can't even call your family and then you get out there and all the foods i mean it was just so i i i looking back on it now i i sort of regret that because i i don't I, I do value – I mean, it does take – for every one of us in the field, it takes three of them, and it's one team, one fight. I believe that to every fi- with every fiber of my being, but that is how it was. At the time, we were really pissed. Well, yeah, you know, it's like like when I was talking about that definition of enemy expanding. 
Sometimes that definition of enemy can expand inside the inside the wire a little bit. And no doubt about and it. And actually, you know, you you did an amazing thing, and it's at the back of this book. You have a letter from a from a, a guy that was one of the, the our techs supply out guy, my, our private, a young private who was a supply guy who everyone yeah. gave him a hard time, but he was just a great, great kid. Yeah, and he wrote you a letter and said like, because he read the book apparently, and said like, hey man, I just read this book, and you're talking about how horrible we were, how horrible the Pogues were. And he explained his story, which was, I think after September 11th, he like, you know, was out of shape and worked out and trained and got in shape so that he could join the army. And he took a job that he thought he could be able to handle, which is being a supply guy. And meanwhile, the girl that he was in love with, who was going to marry him, he went on deployment and got extended. And she said, you know, I'm not going to marry you. And so he gave up his love of his life and had no future. Yeah. And he's like, hey, I just want you to know we all sacrificed. Exactly. And you actually, I thought it was awesome. You publish that is in the back. That letter is in the back of this book, you know, because as you just said, you know, you wrote the way it was then. Yeah, right, right. And man, those, those things are real. And, you know, it takes both sides, right? Absolutely. Both sides. If you're a support person, you got to remember what the hell the guys in the field are doing. And if you're in the field, you got to remember, okay, well, these guys aren't experiencing what we're experiencing. So they're, they're going to have a hard time relating to it. And it's hard to build that bridge. I mean, if you're, honestly, with me, I had 40 SEALs and I had 60 support people that, you know, were running all of our stuff. And it was pretty easy for me because I saw them all the time. And, you know, it was a much smaller little element. And, but, I, you know, I told, I told my support guys, the only reason that we're here is to get those guys whatever they need to do their job, whatever they right. need to do their job. We're here. They are our masters. We are here to support them. Those two platoons. Those. That's that's who we. That's what we're here for. Absolutely. And and the guys got it. And that meant. You know. I said. Listen. If it means. If if you see them eating and they're done with their tray, you pick up that tray and you carry it and you put it away for them. You do that for them so that they can spend an extra three seconds prepping their gear for their operation. And so the the support people understood that because it's real easy for the support people to get isolated and they're not going in the field so they're looking at you know hey i'm playing a video game tonight i don't know what these other guys are doing they don't understand it and so they start to have an attitude when some when someone comes back from being in the field for four days and says hey get let me take a shower and they go it's my turn no that's not the right answer. The right answer is, sorry, let me go get you some soap. That's the right answer. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. And I feel like, to our first sergeant's credit, you know, he did everything that he could to ha- like treat the operational troops in our base exactly like that. But as our base grew, I mean, it was a company-sized base, which means it facilitated 120 infantrymen and maybe some and, and some and the support guys, right? Uh, so we probably had 300 people on our base. But as the base grew with our footprint in Afghanistan, the longer we were there, we had units that were there that were not under his, you know, purview, right? Check. One part of our command. So you know, you have these guys that would like these support personnel that would roll into the showers, use all the hot water, first start and be like, "What? What are you doing, man? Like you're doing this wrong." And they'd be like, "F you, talk to my commander." And it's just like, well. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it just comes down to like some what battles are worth fighting and what battles aren't. You know, as an infantry guy, you know, one of the things that you know is like you're ne- you're rarely going to get credit for the things that you do. 
Uh, it's a thankless job, and it just sucks. And in like, the, you have, you've heard the term "embrace the suck." Well, this is this is why this is why we get to that's why we wear the blue cord. That's why we get CIBs. You know, because our job is harder than everybody else's. And I don't mean from a financial standpoint, because guess what? Like they're getting the same combat pay that, that we're getting. Okay, they're, you know. Um, and and that's sort of the, the dynamic that we took going forward from that engagement is that like yeah like this this shit sucks it's gonna get harder right, um, but we took a sort of like black uh, like a perverse sense of pride out of that mm. in that like we were the we ended up being the best unit on our base and because of that we were always the forward unit we were the lead element in every single division level operation in Afghanistan it was my little platoon on the tip of the spear and so we were the ones getting our asses shot up all the time so as a leader it would be really easy for me to turn around and be like well damn it man you know look at all these other platoons that they're they're infantry, infantry platoons too they get to slack off all the time they get to sit on base all the time and look they're not licking their wounds they're not getting hurt but at the same time I like being the best too. And so did my guys. So it was just like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, it sucks being out here, getting shot at all the time, getting shot up all the time. I mean, I'm not joking. We took 85% casualties. I had wounded two and three times. I had six guys get shot in the head. Six guys. They all survived. Every gunner in my platoon was wounded. Everybody that manned a machine gun was wounded, and we loved it. I mean, it was just, I mean, we hated it, right? Yeah, we hated it, no. but like, we didn't want anyone else doing that job. You hated it. But you guys were the outlaws. That's it. That's it, man. We 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 t- look. I'm telling you, there were times. I, I mean, I'm telling you, my guys would complain. Oh, sir, why do we got to be the lead element? No one likes being the lead element on a division level operation, right? They're the first. You're the first unit that gets blown up, shot at every single time. You know, the buck stopped with us. I mean, I have my NCOs. God damn it, sir. Like, because if you have an entire battalion of like 800 plus troops on a, an infantry battalion operation, the lead point man in Afghanistan with the, I mean, the Russian era maps, like you make one wrong turn. Jeez. Like there's no roads. There's no roads. The entire battalion gets thrown off. So I remember my squad leader, Chris Cowan, he's now a SWAT guy with the Syracuse PD. You'd be like. Sir, God damn it, can't you just make somebody else appointment? Just one operation, just once. So we had to deal with that a lot, which is yeah. a, a fun leadership challenge to have. But it, 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 I always talk to companies about this. It's like you've got you to be careful that you're you know, in, a, in a dynamic, in a corporate setting where you know, the hardest working person, because they're the most competent, you end up relying on a lot For more. Sure. And then the person sitting next to them skates most of the time. And so as a leader, you, you really – like should identify those things and not put too much on the person that's that's moving out and drawing fire every day, doing the right yeah. thing every day. You got to hold people accountable that aren't doing the right thing, but at the same time, we like being yeah. And and at the, you, tip of the, the other thing you do as a leader is you protect the guys from the chicken shit stuff that's going on. Absolutely, and as much as you can. And as you guys lost control of that base because other people started moving in, that's become became harder and harder to do for sure. Which is which is a problem. So, um, going back to the book, I've been writing to my dad every chance I had. Most soldiers tell their family none of what happens in combat. They fear how they will react to the details. I hadn't been doing that. My dad had asked, and I'd been, and never been anything but totally honest with him. In the past months, the bond between us had grown even deeper as we exchanged emails between patrols. By nature, leaders live a lonely life, as close as we can be. To our men and NCOs, there is still an invisible wall that can never be broken down, lest a lieutenant grow too familiar with his men. Familiarity can breed contempt. In a fight, that could lead to hesitation to follow orders. Plus, a lieutenant who is too emotionally invested in his men might make the wrong decision in combat. In trying to spare their lives, he could actually make the mistake that ends up getting them all killed. 
My dad's emails and our few phone conversations had bombed some of the tense sense of isolation I'd been feeling. I pulled up his email address. I wouldn't write him about Lieutenant Taylor and what he had said. That sort of company business needed to stay within the company, at least for now. Right then, a bolt of homesickness left me almost breathless. Words began pouring out. Dad, the enemy meant business and didn't stop coming. It was like the Russian horde. Eventually, we were going to run out of ammo and they were going to overrun us. I'm a damn platoon leader and I had one magazine left when our QRF quick reaction force arrived. We killed tons of them and they just kept coming wave after wave. Half of my platoon will get purple hearts. My shrapnel wounds are healing fast. My headache is going away, but I still can't hear out of my right ear and the ringing is annoying as hell. I paused and reread the words. As a soldier and a leader, I cannot complain or show weakness to anyone. Such a revelation here would destroy my ability to command in battle and ruin the hard-won respect I'd earned from the men. Leadership exists on a knife edge. Any sign of hesitation, doubt, or inability to hack it would have pushed me out of the platoon's inner circle. I could deal with getting shot at. I could deal with the threat of capture and beheading while my empty M4 lay at my side. I could deal with the pain in my head, the vertigo, the sleepless nights where the buzzing in my ears kept me company. The one thing I could not deal with was being pushed out. Sean the leader had to be tough. Sean the man needed to unburden himself. As I started typing again, I realized that just by reading my words, my father was performing a noble and selfless service for me. Somewhere on the other side of the world, somebody I loved knew what I was going through. And he was standing strong for me. I mean, I feel like that was a, I feel like I needed it in the moment, but I, I, I hear it again today and I feel like, and I know now, you know, what my dad went through and now I, you know, I know why guys don't talk about it. You know what I mean? It was stupid. I shouldn't have, I should have never done it. And almost, it, it almost, I don't want to say it like it destroyed my father. That's, that's a bit much, but it. It took a serious, serious toll on him to where I didn't know this the di- this dynamic until I got home. But my mom was just – she was the rock of my family that kept it all together. I mean, this deployment was just – it was so hard on my family. And I was exacerbated by these stupid emails I'd send to my dad. But I, I just felt – you know. I was the only lieutenant that made it through the entire deployment. I was the only officer that made it through the entire deployment in my entire company. The either, guys either moved out to a different duty assignment or were wounded. I mean, I was a platoon leader with my men for 33 months, which is unheard of in the Army. Like a second lieutenant takes a platoon for 12 months to 18 months tops. I was there for 33 months. And so um, when shit started hitting the fan real bad, my battalion commander's like, we got to keep our leadership in place, you know. Um, but – so because of that dynamic, right or wrong, and I, I largely think it was a real, it was a piss poor decision now thinking, thinking back on it, but I was lonely, man, not to sound like I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't, I, could, I didn't have the kind of relationship with my company commander where I can go and vent to him. You know, I just didn't. He, was, mm-hmm. he had been there for a couple months, and he was a great guy, but we just didn't have that kind of relationship. Um, and I'm sure as hell wasn't going to gripe to my platoon sergeant or down. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have any contemporaries either because they were wounded and being moved out or moved around. You know, or moved around the battalion. Um, in fact, I mean, actually, it was more like I think we had a lieutenant go home because he had a real sickness in his family. Like his father got sick and mm-hmm. was in the hospital, so we had to leave. So that platoon was being run by an NCO, and the other one was wounded. It was just like I didn't have anybody to talk to, so I was talking to my dad, and it was a mistake. 
I mean, it was, I mean, if I, if I had a mulligan on that one, I would not have done that. So you were giving him pretty much detailed op sums of everything that was going on. Not, you know, like unclassified versions yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of, but okay. I would just be like, sort of, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah. And I think I still, I mean, that's the actual email I sent him, you know? Um, and I think I sort of well, dialed it back. Was your dad in the military at all? My dad went to the Naval Academy and stayed until he was a sophomore, um, but then left after that. Uh-huh. And I got what year? What like what year did he go to first, the Naval Academy? It was the first year that he allowed females. So I don't remember what that was. I think he would say it was like 1978 or something. But okay, he, that was his that was his plebe year in the Naval got Academy. It. But I mean, I don't come from a military family. Yeah, yeah. you know, I'm like. But your dad at least had the understanding. Or, I should say, I don't even know I say at least, your dad understood like the military broadly. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I think that he knew the role that he was fulfilling, but I think that it was slowly destroying him. I mean, because I, I remember there were times we'd go on missions and there was this, um, we lost an entire battalion staff and 371 Cavalry, Colonel Fenty, a, a, an 05, went down with his battalion staff. Um, this was before my first firefight in May. But my first firefight overlapped with that. So we were outside the wire uh, for 10, 11 days. And back stateside, it was like all they were getting on the ticker was CH-40 helicopter crash goes down. 20 troops from the 10th Mountain are dead in eastern Afghanistan. And so my parents were just like beside themselves. I mean, I can't imagine what they went through for that. And and then part of this was this all this. Well, I wish they would have, I would have just let them live in the matrix, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, just let them, like, this is why troops don't talk to their families when they're in combat. This is why they don't tell them the details of the operation. Ultimately, it's because they, I think, maybe they know this, maybe it's conscious, maybe it's not. But it, it this this type of shit can really destroy someone who loves you deeply, yeah. you know. And I'm telling you, I know it's, I, I, it's like one of those things I really wish I would have done differently, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, that may sound harsh, but I agree a hundred percent. And I never told anyone, my wife, anything of anything that was going on ever. Now, you know, it was hard like for my wife because I'm like telling her nothing, but then like my guys are coming home wounded, or my guy, she's going to my guys' funerals, and that's like the reality. But even then, it was I was just I didn't tell her anything. My parents, same thing. I didn't tell them anything because for this very reason. Um, I can't, it seemed like it would be bird too, too much of a burden. It is. I mean, it was a huge mistake for I me mean, now though, now that I'm out, I do think it's incredibly important for people to know, uh, what our men and women go through. But when you're there and people are, you know, it was like, so we had AOL instant messenger back mm-hmm. then. And you know, that's how we would communicate with home. And, and like my dad, he would tell me later that he would sit there and he would turn on the. AOL instant messenger chime because he in the, you know how you would like go idle and your name, your username mm-hmm. would get, he would stare at the computer and turn the volume up on the computers all around the house. to when Just I instant, me- yes. And so the AOL instant messenger chime became almost like, you know, angel bells to him. Mm. And like to, to think about what that experience was like for him on a day to day basis. And then him having to be a father to, my sister and two younger brothers yeah. and a husband and work. I, I don't know how we could have done it. Check. 
going back to the book the special forces lieutenant colonel regarded me with skepticism behind us the rest of his team huddled around a laptop silencers on their weapon cool guy gear dangling from their chest rigs before we left Burmel, i wanted to tell them that all this all that stuff would just slow them down where we were going no matter how fit a soldier is at ten thousand feet the only thing you can afford to carry is water ammo and your weapon everything else just drags you down so that was the that was the may 7th fight i concluded I've been instructed to give the special forces team a brief on my on the combat my platoon had experienced. I started to explain June 10th and the lieutenant colonel's look of disbelief solidified. I concealed my frustration and continued the brief. The special operators had been pushed over pushed down to Burmel to get a better feel for the amount of enemy activity. Captain Died asked me to take them out on patrol with us for the next few cycles, something I was not looking forward to doing. We had some friction with the other special forces teams in our area. And as a result, my men did not hold them in high regard. There were attitude differences between us, regular line infantry, and the SF guys, and I'd come to regard any liaison effort with them as a ponderous and difficult task. The ones we had encountered seemed all to have the elite attitude without the tactical acumen needed to keep them alive while on patrol. Rather than focusing on the enemy, they seemed to go They seem to us to be preoccupied with frivolous and extraneous details such as what color they should paint their weapons. We also didn't think think much of them in their refusal to wear protective gear such as helmets. Most of the time they walked around nonchalantly in baseball caps. After what we'd gone through, that sort of theatrical stuff came across as sheer stupidity. So you're going to take these SF guys out. And I actually, I really like Captain Dye's decision of like, oh, you, you want to go on some patrols with my guys? Cool. I'll send yeah. you with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it was frustrating. I mean, just from an operational standpoint, some of the SF teams, because they would rotate in and out of skin, the mm-hmm. base. And that was just like a really bad area, you know. Um, and we're talking 10 feet from an, uh, a Pakistani mill, a pack mill checkpoint. I mean, they were right on the border. Um, but some of the SF teams were great. They shared intel great. Um, they would tell us when they were in our area of operations. I mean, these are these are baseline things that I feel like if you're a commander and you're in a battle space and you're calling for fire and you don't know an SF team is out there, somebody could die. Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times we'd have SF teams rolling around with quads and shit in our area of operations. We're like, dude, what are you guys doing? Or new SF teams would roll in and we'd go down and brief them, right? And I'm just some stupid infantry lieutenant. Mm-hmm. But I'd been through some shit and I knew, I knew the area that we were fighting in really well. And I'd be talking to these guys. And it's almost like they didn't believe how terrible terrible it was. And I can I can count on one hand, I mean, probably four or five times at least where we had to go out and bail out an SF team because they'd roll outside the wire with four dudes in a pickup truck with a teeny pinnel mounted saw on the back of their mm-hmm. pickup truck. I mean, it looked like something out of Star Wars. It looked really cool. But we would tell them like, man, like if you're going to be in a turret, you got to wear your helmet. You can't go out there with your New York Yankees baseball hat on. Like, I know that looks cool, but that's not you, – you really need to listen to what we're saying. And I feel like some of them really paid the price. I mean, they I know for a fact that we had they, they were overrun in a couple different situations. And I guess we just at that point in time in the deployment over, over time, it just got annoying going out and bailing them out all the time, mm-hmm. you know. SF teams have – you know, they're small. Foreign internal defense is their mission. They're, they work with indigenous populace. They don't have the combat power of a traditional infantry platoon. Um, and again, some of them are great, some of them not so much. Um, and my men didn't really hold them in high regard just because they were very dismissive of the stuff that they had experienced. And yeah. so Captain Dye was like, yeah, take this SF colonel out with you. And of course, as a, I'm like, oh, damn it. You know, no one likes to babysit anybody on a, mm-hmm. on a combat patrol, especially if they're not trained with your guys. <laughs> I know his name. He was just like this one. 
want. This specific lieutenant colonel was uh, he was just a singleton guy. Like he was just a singleton. He had some. He had a team with him, but he was a singleton guy. He would go mm-hmm. outside the wire on his own. Um, we took him outside the wire, and we just got lit up. And he was just he just he just couldn't believe it. He was like. This is the greatest shit I've experienced since Columbia, and I'm like, all right, sir, calm down. Let's like, let's let you know, like, let's. He's like, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Are we gonna counterattack? Are we gonna take the fight to him? I'm like, okay, sir, yeah, we're gonna do that, but like, just calm down first. I mean, he was so into it, and at the end of that engagement, he was just like, he was, a, he was a believer, man. He was like, I cannot believe the shit that you guys are in down here all the time. I can you know, I've got to go back and I've got to tell General Frakely about this. He was our divi- the tenth Mountain Division commander at the time. He was like, I got to tell him about this. I got to tell him. I'm like, yeah, sir. Yeah, we're. I'm t- like, I told you in in your in in my briefing to you. Like, it's it's no joke around here. Yeah, that's uh, we we uh we had a great relationship with all the conventional forces that we worked alongside. We pretty much acted as close as we could to acting like them. You know, we all wore the same uniforms as them. We all had the same grooming standards as them. We, yeah, that's what we did. And we never, we never got an opportunity to even work with SEALs in Eastern Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows what the what the layout of the guys were at the time? But I, I my point is, we had guys, Army guys and Marines primarily army that had definitely, we had to overcome a prejudice against special operations because they had had real bad kind of experiences that, that you're talking about in there. And again, like you said, you know what? There's great SF teams. There's there's great SEAL teams. There's yes. horrible ones. Just like there's yes. great infantry battalions and great infantry companies and there's shady ones as well. Absolutely. You kind of you, you, you just have to, you have to look at what you're dealing with. But my point is, if you're out there, be one of the good ones. Be someone that's going to listen. You know, when we got to Ramadi, there was a it was a National Guard unit on the ground out of Pennsylvania, the two two eight. I know. Iron soldiers. That was, it was uh, a guy that went to ROTC was a platoon leader. Yeah. Well, we probably worked with them. National, yeah, was, when, yeah. When we showed up there, those guys were freaking awesome. They had been there for like a year or 14 months or something like that and we went in with hey what what do you want to tell us how can we learn from you that was our attitude exact right attitude yeah i mean i that's the the, i mean again humility you go in big eyes big ears humble self-effacing listen you know and what what i i I remember telling specifically one special forces commander when i was down there who we had a great relationship with because he sort of came into it with that attitude and i was like you know you guys are awesome you know, I know you guys have got some serious, hardcore, cool guy training, mm-hmm. you know, but a bullet kills you just the same <laughs> as it's going to kill me, man, you know. And so at a very minimum, listen to some of the intel that I got that uh, that may help you get your people out of here alive, right? Yeah. And you got your own TTPs, you operate your own way, but there are things very specifically that you need to do here in this area of operations that will give you a, a much better chance of surviving. And he listened. And and we had a great relationship because of that. We shared intel, and I mean that was a great combat multiplier for us because, you know, we knew where the high value targets were. I mean, as a conventional infantry guy, like, you know, I mean, we would get in the big kinetic fights and stuff, but it's really not our job to go out unless we're doing an outer cordon. It's not our job to go after high value targets. And if we get too close to them, we could spook them and they could mm-hmm. they could leave. So these are these are I share these things for for the listeners. The reason this is why intel sharing to a yeah, certain extent is really important. It's really important. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that happened with that special forces colonel is he actually they had some intel for you, and you talked about it earlier, but I'm going to 
I'm going to cover it real quick anyways because it's he gave you the intel and then here's you briefing the guys going back to the book we know the enemy's intentions now I said that got everyone's attention they are seeking a decisive victory over an American platoon they want to pin us in a kill zone by disabling our vehicles then overrun us and kill us to the last man they plan to behead anyone they capture if they catch us in an observation point again they will try a direct assault just like June 10th Sabo growled, guess we'll ratchet things up. So that's what that's what you've been contending with this whole time. Yes. And it's real clear looking in the rearview mirror, obviously that's what they were trying to do. Yeah, right. I mean, I was I was watching you read that, and you smile when you Sabo says ratchet things up because I feel like that, that phrase, like everything about you is ratchet things up, like <laughs> default aggressive, <laughs> default aggressive. But yeah, I mean, we – I mean, it's – when we heard that intel from that special forces lieutenant colonel, and I still remember him by name, but I'm not going to say it because he's, I think he's still active. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, it, okay, so you know they're trying to kill you, but once you know what their mission is every time they attack you, they want to overrun you and cut off your heads and put them on stakes. And we heard them say it over and over again on this this lieutenant this colonel gave us radio let us listen to the recordings i mean we heard them say it and then and then after a while we'd see these dvd videos trickle down to our base of attacks where they did just that mm-hmm. in our ao of other coalition troops meaning like you know other afghan national troops out there um it starts to hit pretty close to home and we thought the war was personal when we lost abdul now it really was you know i mean war life death issues are always intimately personal but there's something about knowing the enemy's mission and knowing what they want to do and knowing how they want to do it that just it can rattle you a little bit i I mean i feel like to this day the idea of i mean look have you ever seen those videos of america i mean i'm sure you had they're terrifying i mean it's you know the idea of getting beheaded with like a butter knife is not something that like you know, it's a scary way to go. Yeah, and as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I was concerned, that was absolutely the goal of everyone I ever looked at on the battlefield. Like that's, and you know, when you, I don't know if you did, you do, did you guys capture a lot of bad guys? We did. We captured a few of them. But we would just give, we talked to them and get the intel that we could, and we give them to the A and A. Like sometimes we would capture a bad guy, and actually, Echo was asking me about this earlier today. He's like, "What were they like?" And some of them. They had a look in their eyes like, you know, 100% that if the tables were turned, they would 100% be sawn off your head. No doubt about it. You can see it in their eyes. 100%. They're just black with hate. I don't know where that hate comes from, a lifetime of indoctrination, but that you just see something in their eyes where you know that they would, if, if the tables were turned, they would absolutely cut your head off. No question about it. So I kind of always thought that that's what, what would happen um you guys so that had a little i guess we'll say a psychological impact on you guys now knowing this 100 percent. but there was nothing more evident of a i'll call it a negative psychological impact than a you guys were on a little outpost and you guys get hit with a massive rocket attack and you guys are completely pinned down you're taking rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket. And finally, you get the call in to Captain Die, and you know, you want indirect fire. You want to put this, snuff this problem out. 
and he comes back on the radio and says negative three six that's Pakistani territory another rocket skittered past low and fast everyone molded himself against the Hesco bag wall as it spewed shrapnel and flame across the outpost the explosion sent peals of terror through us we can't shoot back all we could do is lie there captives I saw the platoon change. The men's eyes grew hollowed and wide. We'd been through dangerous encounters before, but we'd always been able to fight back. That gave us something to do and occupied our minds. Our inability to act now exposed us to terror's fullest effects. A platoon's morale is an elastic quality. From its baseline, events Affecting the men can cause it to bend in different directions. Male gives it a boost. So does hot chow after a long day. A small gesture by a first sergeant showing that he has the well-being of the men in mind can also go a long way. A victory in combat can bring a euphoria. A defeat will bring despair and doubt. We'd seen or experienced the gamut, and the men had always returned to their baseline, laughing irreverent selves after a little while. It was our natural state. But something happened under those rockets. We'd never felt so utterly helpless. Being unable to fight back had stripped us of our aggressive spirit. It had left us feeling impotent, mere observers of death and destruction thrown our way. That's, I mean, to me, I feel like that's the the opposite of default aggressive, right? I mean, that's yeah. like, there's nothing worse than being on the receiving end of indirect fire and not have the ability to do, you don't have the ability to do anything about it. You know, um, this particular engagement happened at Fobskin at the Alamo, which okay. is you, you look, I mean, it's a stone's throw away from a pack mill checkpoint. That is, that is, you know, there were probably two or three discas pointed right at the Alamo. This basically this collot, you know, and with four guard towers around it, you're, you know, the pack mill have, uh, they're on the high ground all around you, right? Looking right down into your base. And the Taliban, whoever's firing indirect at us that day, were using and cooperating with the pack mill, using them as shields, knowing that we wouldn't be able to shoot back, you know? So this was a new evolving threat the first time that we had faced it. What they were trying to do was get us to open up on a pack mill checkpoint, cause some international incident. Um, it'd be all over the news in America. We'd get blamed for it. You know, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, whoever conducted the attack, you'd never hear mention of them. Um, And we were spread out from our trucks, and the indirect was so heavy that we couldn't get back to them. And so, God, man, you never feel so helpless. Then you're just sitting there, you know, tucked up against the HESCO wall and just hoping that a rocket doesn't land on your head. There's nothing that you can do about it but just, like, let go, you know. Um, What was the trajectory of the rockets? They were, were they coming come, in flat tra- coming trajectory, like high to low. They were yeah. being shot from an elevated position right into us. But it was direct fire. It was direct fire. Yeah, no question. And and so, one of the rockets hit an A and A guard tower, like a wooden guard tower, and just blew it to smithereens, which is right by the exit. So, the the base was just basically it was a square with a square collot on the inside. Our trucks were lined up in a row, uh, right next to the compound. And they were just taking shrapnel. We were spread out all over the base. We we couldn't even get back to our trucks to exfil. Um, and I think we fired a couple of 60 millimeter mortars in handheld just to make them think that we were shooting back. Um, eventually, after a while, after about an hour of that, I mean, God, man, the longest 
hour of your life. An hour? An hour. An hour. We got an Apache. We got an Apache to come down and just do a show of force. But we we couldn't engage with it. So when the Apache got down and did the show of force, it it bought us enough time uh, to run to our trucks and get the hell out of Dodge. And I remember rolling back into the base, man, I'm telling you, it was just, I mean, God, it's like you had this sinking feeling in your heart that it's only a matter of time. And I remember walking back into my hooch and I, the mail was there and it was on my desk. And I remember opening up this little letter from my cousin, Freddie, and he had drawn this American soldier with this flag. It was the 4th of July, and I didn't even realize it, you know. Um, and I just sat there, and I looked at it, and I thought of it, and I thought of, like, home, and I missed home, and I thought of the Steelers, and I thought of going to Pirates games, and a big Pittsburgh sports fan. And all the things that reminded me of home, like hamburgers, hot dogs, whatever, you know, beer, uh, music. And I just thought to myself, like, you know, if it's only a matter of time, like I cannot allow myself to think of any of this stuff anymore. You know, I basically just in order to survive an environment where your day-to-day life is it's only a matter of time. Hope can be a, a caustic quality in combat. You know, hope leads to fear, and that fear can lead to hesitation on the battlefield or not doing what needs to be done at the moment it needs to be done. And when that happens, uh, men die. And so I remember very, very distinctly folding up that picture instead of hanging it on my wall, folding up that picture and putting it in my footlocker and just, just, you know, keeping it there. If I made it home, great. I'd have it for later. But if not, I could not allow myself to think back to those fleeting moments of home. I just had to basically just give up hope yeah, that I would I, ever make it home. It's it's a it's a weird way to live, man. But when the only thing that you're worried about is living or dying, once you flip that switch, it's a hard one to it's a hard one to turn back on. My wife, when I was in Ramadi, my wife sent me an email and said, "Hey, the kids want to see a picture of you know where you sleep at night." And I was like, "Okay, you know, I had in this old Saddam regime building, I had a room, and it had a plywood whatever bed, and part of the plywood bed was." you know, sticking up almost like a headboard. So anyways, I was just going to take a picture of it. And I looked at it and it was just completely empty. And I said, oh, that's not good. So I took, opened a drawer, took out a folder, took a picture of my wife and kids and hung them up, took a picture of my bed with those pictures in it, took the pictures down, put them back in a folder and put them back in the drawer. Like same exact thoughts that you had. Like there are just way too many decisions that need to be made that the last thing I need to be thinking about is my wife and family back home. And the only thing I need to be thinking about is these guys on the ground with me, 100%. And, and it's because I feel like if you start longing for home and you start missing it's, those things, it, it distracts you from the I, mission that needs to be done. I got, when I saw guys get in that mindset, when I saw my guys starting to, you know, stare at the pictures of home, that made me super nervous, you know, and I would like do things, I'd, you know, maybe try and pull them off, let them, you know, get some, you know, some time back in camp or whatever, try and get them to get over that because I totally agree. If you're, if that's what's in the front of your mind, that's not going to be good for you. And you, it's, it's, got, a t- it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna inhibit your default aggressive attitude. And then all those things that we talked about, the positives of being default aggressive are all going to disappear because now you're going to be default hesitant. Well, yeah, default hesitant, default defensive. In that case, you see 
in in that specific chapter how caustic and destructive default defensive or yep. default hesitant can be how it how it goes how it destroys morale how it can shake the hearts of men and at, at the time where you need them to be the most formidable it can make them question what they're doing it can make them think of home it can make them hesitate in their actions and all of those things threaten the success of the mission and just imagine world war one I, I just go in 28 months of that of, of that of exactly that. that's that's that, in fact, I it's did think, exactly, it yeah. is a nightmare. Every single day, just not knowing if a round's going to land on your head is the worst, it's the worst position to, to be in. Indirect fire. You get back to base, you see you see Captain Die. Sean, you all right? I turned to, to see Captain, got, Captain Die regarding me with concern. Yeah, I'm okay. I guess we found out today why they moved Fob's skin away from the border. I guess so. I'm sorry I couldn't give you any indirect. Thank you, pack mill assholes. Allies my ass. You sure you're okay, he asked again. Your hands are shaking. I'll be all right, sir. I lied. It was just rough having to take it for so long and not being able to shoot back. He put his hand on my shoulder and shook me gently. If you need anything, let me know. Thank you, sir. And the unspoken was, we're infantry. Handle it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're infantry handle it. Yeah. You know, like, hey, and if you need anything, let me know. But the, the unspoken is, hey, that's But what hey, we brother, do. this is the job. So, you know, get your shit together, you know. Um, and I remember I, when we had that conversation, uh, we were standing outside our tactical operation, operation center around the backside of where the officers were staying. Uh, and I was just standing out there smoking a cigarette and my hands were shaking and he could see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I look back on that moment and I was really thankful that he, that he said something, mm-hmm. you know, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear, suck it up, handle it. I needed that. Um, and I think that was a really strong leadership moment for, for him, you know, to even just have the emotional intelligence to see that one of his subordinate leaders was struggling and come over and address it immediately even if it was handle it, at least I knew he was he was keeping an eye on things that it mattered, you know. And I think that's important for soldiers. You talk in the book about when you're on the fob and what's going on in the fob. And one of the things you got on the fob, which I think is just a common thing for all Americans at war, is you had dogs, little pet dogs that you yeah. guys adopted and kind of have fun with. And it gives you a little break from the monotony and it gives you a little warmth in your world. And I know when we always had dogs, my first appointment, we had dogs. We had a dog named RPG and a dog named Mortar. <laughs> Cute little bastards. Ours, they were. ours was Trigger. <laughs> there you go. Trigger. Um, <clears throat> You guys are out on an op, and actually, prior to this, one of the dogs had like growled at one of the females. She complained, blah, 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 and you explain this all in the book. But what it leads to is this. The leadership on the fob took all the dogs and killed them and burned the bodies while you guys were out in the field. You guys come back, and I'm going to the book. Anger and indignation I could work with. The infantry feeds on such emotions. It motivates and makes us eager to release violence upon our foe. There was no fight in Chris that morning. He's one of your troops. And he was the barometer of the platoon's morale. 
I saw his resignation reflected on everyone's faces. Cowan moved like a sleepwalker. Even Sabo appeared affected. As I watched the platoon struggle that morning, I realized that I had overlooked a reality of Afghanistan. We were facing two enemies, not one. The Haqqani Network's fighters we could handle. Anytime they chose to challenge us, we could smite them with firepower and make them pay for the effort. We would not give ground, and I knew we would never know defeat. But this other enemy was more devious. How does one do battle with FOB politics? At the moment, I was at a complete loss. Without a doubt, we needed to figure out a way to do it because more blows like this, and it could tear the platoon apart. It was with relief that we put Burmel in our rearview mirrors. The countryside was ours. You guys are rolling out on another op. Devoid of politics. Devoid of politics, stupid rules, and petty slights. It was the one place where we knew, it was the one place where most feared to tread. We were among our own kind, depending on men we trusted and loved. And the danger the insurgents presented at every turn seemed a small price to pay for these respites. So there you are. Yeah. It's better just to get off base it is. and go into the field so you can get away from the fob politics. It was. I mean, those dogs were members of our platoon. I mean, my men would come back from patrols. The first thing that they would do is look for those dogs, you know, and they'd sleep in the barracks with them. And, you know, there's this rule, general order number one, or some part of general order number one, no dogs on the bases mm-hmm. because, you know, out of fear that they'd have some disease. And mm-hmm. so... The decision that was the, the decision to put them down was made. Um, the dog growled at one of the male clerks who wasn't even a part of our base, wasn't on our base, who flew in on a ring route and got growled at, and then went and told her higher our brigade uh, headquarters elements, and they flew medics down to our base that weren't stationed on our base that killed the dogs the moment we left out of the wire, and we came back, man, and it just we weren't supposed to have them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But our medics had also vaccinated them. You know, our medics made it safe. So it was one of those things that was just like, God damn it. Can't you just give us this small thing? You know, Um, rules and regulations are important. Um, I think it's of the utmost importance to follow them, even if you disagree with them, you know. But some things like this, when you're trying desperately to have soldiers cling to what little humanity that they might have left in a savage land, like, Jesus Christ, just give us the dogs, you know? They couldn't even give them that. And the way that they took them from us was even worse, you know? To come back and have, you know, wait at the barracks, hey, where are the dogs? Oh, hey, they they killed them, and then they threw them on the burn pits. You know, my guys, like, ran out to the burn pit. I mean, my men were ready to kill somebody, you know? And I just remember, like... Jesus, you know, you fight the enemy out there. It's at least, you know, it's it's life and death, and there's elegance in that simplicity, right? Your only thing you're worried about is living or dying and the man next to you. Um, but when you come back on the basis, how do you fight against that shit? How do you deal with that stuff? Those things are morale killers, and I'd rather control for that by being outside the wire and, be, you know, call my own shots and my men – we're familiar with the terrain. Um, we know that we had each other's backs. We know that we weren't going to stab each other in the back like that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like those fob politics, like door kickers, warriors, they don't deal well with stuff like that. Yeah, and it's like a glimpse of the rest of the normal world. It, it absolutely <laughs> is. Yeah. You know, like the fob is one removed from the normal world because you get a little bit, but it still is a reflection of life, just normal, everyday political crap that runs around 
you guys get out on patrol and you guys are driving and you see a boy like a young boy alone and you stop the vehicles and here we go to the book something ain't right sir Greason said in that sleepy Sam Elliott voice of his the years of smoking and drinking had given it a gravely rugged quality indomitable really nope I said, shaking my head under my helmet. Campbell was kneeling in front of the boy now, talking in a low, comforting voice. The boy whined, his head waving from side to side. He seemed disengaged, lost in his own tormented world. Who the hell would give dope to a little kid? Would the ANA do something like that, I thought? Fifteen feet from the boy, we both gasped and stopped in our tracks. Under a shock of dirt-encrusted black hair, we saw a disfigured face about six years old. His eyes had been gouged out. The sockets burned black by whatever heated implement had been used to do the deed. Next to me, Greason exhaled sharply, Jesus Christ, what is this? The boy opened his mouth again. Another wine spilled out between cracked lips. Behind them, we saw ruptured gums and no teeth. You're fucking kidding me, Greason said. Get Yusuf and Doc Panjota. Panto, how do you say his name? Pantoha. Pantoha. I said to my platoon sergeant. Yusuf reached us first and looked down at the boy. Either he'd seen this sort of thing before or a half a decade of war had steeled him to such sights. The boy's condition evoked no visible emotions in my turp. He stood quietly next to me, his used car salesman. Affection stowed for the moment. And we haven't really talked about Yousef much, but when you lost Abdul, Yousef moved up into the primary interpreter position, and you describe him as a used car salesman. He's one of those guys that seems a little bit shady, but you're working with what you mm-hmm. got. That's right, yeah. You end up taking the boy to a nearby village, and... Here you describe the village. The village was a frightful sight. A clean bed would have been a priceless luxury in this place. The mud-walled huts were barren of even the most basic essentials. Little food, no clean water. The ground between the dwellings was riddled with human feces, animal dung, and filth. The smell of such a place is one that none of us will ever forget. It lingered like a tangible presence in the air. I could feel it seeping into my clothing. For a second, I flashed back to my first day in country. After the girl had died in my arms, I had burned my blood-soaked ACUs. No amount of cleaning would ever get out this stench. A boy, perhaps six years old, limped out of a nearby hut and took station near one corner watching us with burnished black eyes. There was a wary worldliness in them that I'd never seen back home. Welts and bruises ran the length of his face, neck, and arms. He'd been badly beaten. And then an ancient man clad in dirt-marred clothes emerged from one mud hut. His beard was dyed red, something that all village elders do to show their status as community leaders. When he saw us, he paused and offered a guarded greeting. Then he saw the eyeless boy. His composure cracked, and a look of pure love and relief crossed his face. He hurried over and wrapped the boy in his arms. The two shared words, and the elder held the boy in a fierce, protective embrace. He looked at me, the boy's head tucked under his jaw and pressed hard against his neck, and I could see that the old man's eyes had grown wet. He began to speak to me. Yousef listened, 
and then said in a clipped and professional tone, the village elder thanks you. This boy is his grandson. Greeson, his voice barely a whisper, said, Yousef, find out what happened to this kid. Yousef nodded and engaged the the village elder in a long discussion. We listened as the two conversed in their native language, anxiously awaiting the answer. At last, Yousef turned his attention to us, his face a mask, and matter-of-factly told us the elder's story. The enemy had swept into the village a few weeks ago, bent on punishing its inhabitants for supporting the coalition. I doubted that any Americans had ever visited this place. The enemy had kidnapped the elder's oldest grandson. He was the future of the family, the boy most cherished and revered in Afghan culture. Taking him was a blow that nobody in the village would forget. They had taken the elder's grandson back to one of their mountain hideouts where they gouged out his eyes. They had turned him into a sexual plaything, knocking out his teeth to increase their pleasure with him. They had raped this six-year-old boy for weeks. So that's what you're dealing with. Yeah, uh, you know, the enemy over that we face over there, that's what they're capable of. In, in this village, there's no way that, I mean, we had never even come into contact with them. There were so many small border villages uh, in the Hindu Kush mountains that have not even talked to a tribe that's a click down the road, let alone ever seen an American troop. There's no, it, just the mere thought that they may have been working with Americans was enough to cause something like that. It just shows you the depth and depravity of the enemy that we're fighting. This is why we fight against them. This is why Americans are there. This is why we matter. This is the why the way that we fight matters. You know, there is a right and wrong to how the world, uh, you know, conducts itself. You know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, some cultures are better than others. You know, I think our Western culture should be preserved and fought for and protected and promulgated as much as possible. Uh, we live in the best country on the face of the earth. Why shouldn't we try to do that for other people um, if and when we can? Uh, I know that that's probably a controversial view, but, you know, those I know that those people in Afghanistan, this village in particular, was so grateful for what we brought to them, how we helped them. We did a med cap in their village. So much of what we did in Afghanistan was taking care of the people. That was like a that was really important to us. I mean, we were the we were the we were we were the main power brokers in the AO. There's no question about that. We dominated the terrain. We kicked the enemy's ass, but we really did care about the Afghan people. In fact, that first engagement that we that we talked about uh, today, we were going to do a human. Our initial tasking was to do an observation post. Yes, but we were stopping off in a village to do a humanitarian uh, distribution. You know, we, blankets, food, rice, um, coloring books, crayons for kids. And I remember, like, getting back from that mission, pulling out this Crayola crayon box with a center-punched hole of a, a, seven, center punched hole of a 7.62 round right through the center of it. And mm. so 
we cared a lot about the people, man. And, you know, the enemy in that first rocket attack where they killed a bunch of those kids didn't matter. They knew that those rockets had landed in a school. They kept firing at us, you know. Uh, there was there was an informant, a human intelligence informant that we were working with to help exploit high value targets on the border uh, early on in the deployment. He was one of the few people that lived uh, in the mountainous border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan, had the courage to stay there throughout it all. And then we found out that he was working and helping um, helping us. And they threw a grenade in the middle of his compound and killed a newborn baby, killed his baby. I mean, they just do terrible things to their kids. And um that's the kind of shit that stays with you forever. It's, it's, you know, I'm telling you, I, like I said before, I don't lose a wink of sleep over the bad guys that we killed over there. I not, not, don't lose a wink of sleep over it, but it's moments like this that stay with you forever. It's you see. And I think like you get a lot of time to think about this sort of shit when you're over there, because like when you look at the kids and you're driving through these villages and you know, they liked American troops, you know, they appreciated what we did. They appreciated how we protected them. The people in Afghanistan and those children, they have nothing, nothing. There's no running water. There's no electricity. There's no roads. There's no economy. There's no jobs. The men all summer long go out there and they cut wood. So they have enough wood to keep their family warm during the winter. And then the cycle starts again. And so these kids, though, I remember watching them uh, from an observation post one day early on, like just watching them run around and play soccer with this deflated soccer ball and bare feet in the mountains, like running on these like rocks that had to be razor sharp. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, damn it, man, kids are the most amazing thing in the world. You know, it's because because here they are. They don't even know. They have nothing. They literally have nothing and probably one of the most dangerous places in the face of the planet. And here they are running around playing soccer. They don't even have shoes, you know. Run around playing soccer, being kids, you know, just so awesome, you know, and that's why we were there to protect them. And then, and then to see, to see, you know, the way that the enemy treated them, I knew we just had to kill as many of them as humanly possible. Like for the year that we were supposed to be there, we ended up being there a year and a half, but the year that we were there, I just felt from this point forward, like, yeah, we were in fights. You know, we weren't going to draw our weapon unless we were fired upon first, but all that changed after this. You you continue on here. More members of the elders' family ventured out. They came to the boy to hug and reassure him. He whimpered softly, and I wondered if he was crying. Then I realized he couldn't cry. His tear ducts had been burned away. I mean, don't people that do that to young children, you know, don't people like that deserve to die? Yes, 100%. I mean, they don't deserve – life is a privilege. Every single waking breath that you have is a privilege, you know, um, and they certainly don't earn it. <clears throat> Moving through, moving on back to the book. Pinholt and I sat together watching an episode of the TV series, The Office. We howled with laughter and thought about how foreign the world of cubicle land was to us. This is the greatest show ever, I told Pinholt. I knew you'd like it, sir. Was that your first time seeing it? Yes. How, yeah. far, how far away from Scranton did you grow up? I'm from Pittsburgh. Oh, there you go. A couple hours. You know, but we did. I mean, we watched it, man. I'm telling you. So we were into all kinds of shows over there. You know, yeah. the whole platoon would gather around. This is like, I mean, we had these like little com- laptop computers. We all sit around like screen this big and watch yeah. these shows. But The Office was one of those things that it was just like 
Holy shit. Like, look at what we just talked about, how much of a, I mean, it's just the most sad, depressing thing. I mean, but people actually live like this. Like, I know people like Dwight yeah. in, in, in real life that work as, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is, it, I, I just thought it was such a crazy like compared to here we are doing yeah, this and Americans actually live like this. Yes. Yes. This is where they go to it's work every day. It's completely crazy. You know? It's completely crazy. You got a kid who's had his eyes burned out. He's had his teeth pulled so he could be a sex toy for these savages. We found we found kids like that other units all over Afghanistan. It's, it's heinous. And then the, and then the movie um Slumdog Millionaire came out a few years later and that happens in that movie too. It's 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 just I mean, it's just a different, I don't understand it. I don't understand. Uh, it's just people that do that to children do, do not deserve to breathe. They don't deserve to live. No. Zero. So you guys are, you guys are carrying on. Um, for Rare Change of Pace, we were inside the wire with a day off. We had desperately needed a break. The men were relaxing, sleeping, and lifting weights. The episode ended. Got any more, I asked. Whole first season, sir. You're, you're awesome. <laughs> We started another episode. Midway through, Pinhole wrinkled his nose and looked at me. Wait, are you an are you an Office fan? Yes. You are. Yes. It's like my favorite show. Have you ever watched the British Office? Yes. I okay. don't think it's as funny. It's not as funny. I don't find British people. And you know as which one I like more? The British one. You do? Because the British one is is. I don't like this. I don't like this hot Jocko take. I don't it's like kind of depressing. The British one is kind of depressing. Dystopian? Because, no, because in the American one, it's funny. And it's it's funny because you're like, oh, this is a little bit, this is a little bit, um, it's a little bit too much, right? Michael Scott is a little bit too much. He's, right? he's, he's just my a favorite. little he's bit too fa- much. I, I love not, him. Not tons too much, but he's just a little bit too much. And you go, okay, he's a caricature. He's, he's an extreme version for comic effect, right? That's what you get when you watch The American Office and all the characters, you know, Dwight. He's, he's, he's like, you know a guy like Dwight, but Dwight is like, is like one level up from that. That's what makes him funny, right? <laughs> so you, and then you mix in kind of the regular kind of normal characters and we know people like them and so then you get to see the story unfold, but it's all slightly beyond actual belief. I feel like I know bosses like Michael Scott. I feel like I see them sometimes. I'm like, oh my God. Dude, you do see should... them. You see them in little bits and pieces. But the British office, you're like, hey, this is this is like what a guy is really like. This guy's <laughs> really like delusional. And this guy, it's just to me, it has this sting to it that I, that I like. I like the fact that, you know what? I heard this said about um, singers, really good singers have a hint of sadness in their voice. When you hear a when you hear a really good singer sing, you'll think it's really good if they have a hint of sadness in their voice. And I think the British Office has like a hint of sadness in it that, to me, makes it better. You like the sadness? Like the sadness it. makes you happy? The, no, I don't know if it makes me happy, but it hits me in a in a way that I feel is is. I think it hits me in a in a in a stronger way. This is this is some this is some deep Jocko stuff here. I didn't just, really just expect to get that deep into your emotional. Well, here response we are. To the office. Here we are. Here we are. Exactly. Here we are uh, indeed. We're we're at Shroot Farms right we now. 
Yes. Am I Moe's? Are you Dwight? Am I Moe's? I think you're my Moe's, yeah. Oh, God. Quit talking. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is my family, my whole family likes The Office. So we've had, you know, if we're going to watch a TV show, that's probably. Yeah. Actually, I don't even know if we watch any more TV, any other TV shows. Do you TV watch uh, Office Space, the movie? I've watched the Office Space I've movie many like times. Yes. Because yes. Office, I forget which is which, but The Office, the show, mm-hmm. and Office Space, one was made to be like the, like Office Space was made to be the movie version of The Office or vice versa. I forget mm, which one. No, the, well, maybe, but the British Office came out and that is what The Office in America is based on. And it's the I same. thought yeah, Office okay, so Space Office was based on a cartoon, like a comic strip. Yeah, so it was like, so it might have been vice versa, mm-hmm. but basically one was like the the movie version of the other. But Ricky Gervais in England wrote the original Office, and and that's ones in England, and then they took it and revamped it a little bit, made it a little bit happier for the U.S. Yeah, of A. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We like to smile and laugh, and we want to make sure Sean Parnell is getting his. Getting his humor on over I, there, I need, and the rest of Outlaw Platoon. You know what? You know what, Jocko? The sadness doesn't make me happy. I, I feel like we. I feel like it, there needs to be another podcast exploring that. Well, we'll go into that. <laughs> but speaking of just things not being funny, <laughs> going back to the book, uh, sir, that's pretty nasty. What? That shit coming out of your ear? I reached up and felt something like Jello coming out of my on my neck. I. It was. Pink and red and streaked with yellow. It smells like bananas, sir, he added. I got up and wiped it off, thoroughly embarrassed. Sir, you need to get that checked out. I nodded as I sat back down. I know. I'll get a scan at Burger at Bagram, at Bagram a few days when I head home on leave. Thank you. Everyone's worried about you. I was worried too. But I knew if a real doc examined me, he'd never let me return to the men. I was having bouts of double vision and frequent migraines. And at times I was having trouble remembering things. As a result, I made an obsessive effort to write everything down before missions. We finished the second episode and I said goodbye to Pinholt, headed back to my room. Lieutenant, a deep and booming voice called. A staff sergeant was walking down the hallway in our hooch, a cigarette dangling from his tight lips. About my age with receding brown black hair, he walked with gravitas as if he were made of chiseled granite. He had a rounded face with sharp cheeks, eyes partially concealed by a squint, a ranger tab on his shoulder. What can I do you for, Sergeant? Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Jeff Hall. I'm your new squad leader, sir. He stuck out his hand. I shook it and nearly had my fingers squashed like <laughs> sausages. Glad to meet you, Hall. Welcome to Outlaw Platoon. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and this that's your introduce, introduction to this guy, Hall, who seemed like he was just... A highly motivated individual, ready to he rock was, and man. And he's—I I, I don't know if—I don't know if we're going to talk about it or not. But he saved this Marine's life. Marine gets shot in the pelvis, is uh, bleeding out. Femoral artery was severed, retracted up into his pelvis, <sighs> bleeding out. Like guy wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for Jeff Hall. And man, was he a character, that's for sure. You're you're out in the field, and we'll just jump right into it. We triggered the ambush early and from a different direction than they'd expected. As we pulled into a perimeter around the village, their fire was disjointed and not nearly as accurate as usual. We'd thrown them off guard and they'd reflexively opened fire. They had waited, They had they waited until we were in the northern part of the ambush, we would have been hit as they originally designed. For a moment, I wish Captain Dye was here. Having two platoons to manage was awkward since I couldn't really give orders to Delta, I could only give the platoon squad leaders guidance. Mm-hmm. So you're out there with two platoons at this point? I was a senior officer on the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, but 
it's not my I, it's not my job to maneuver more than my platoon. I, I'll do it and I'll do it well. Yeah. But it's a, it was a leadership challenge for sure because those guys don't they're they're not under my command. Was there an officer out there too? Um, it's hard. I no. I I, I they had an officer. I wasn't sure if he was out here for the for this specific engagement. Um. I think that he was, which is why it makes it awkward because we were the same rank, mm -hmm. you know. I was the senior platoon leader, senior lieutenant out there on the ground, but mm -hmm. still, this is why captains exists, and you know, <laughs> this is why company commanders exist to maneuver companies. You know, lieutenants yeah. exist to, in the army anyway to maneuver platoons. So, it would have been great to have a company commander out there maneuvering these elements. Um, yeah. He, but in Captain Dye's defense, and I, and I know that he believed this. Um, he believed us to be. You know, he didn't micromanage us. Yeah, you know, he, he, yeah, he knew us to be happen. competent and he let us do our he let us do our job and he felt that he could maneuver us from the fob, which is his prerogative. And he could he could do that. So you guys are in this. It's like another scenario unfolding where clearly these guys are looking to come and cut all your heads off, which is a real reassuring thing. And here we go. You guys are going back and forth, going out, going out to the perimeter, like assessing making sure your guys are doing a good job and then you're coming back into the middle kind of debriefing each other on what's happening with with the uh fire team leaders or the or actually the i guess the squad leaders and you're doing that a couple times and then finally it gets to a point just as our leaders return to the middle of the perimeter the enemy commander made his move hall whose rig was on the eastern side of the perimeter said calmly sir they're rushing us coming at your coming at our hill now the two enemy forces struck the northeast and southeast parts of our perimeter in one pell-mell charge this time they did not bound as on June 10th. Instead, they ran straight for us. We picked out a leader and sniped him in the mid-stroke, in mid-stride. He went down with a wound to the shoulder. In a flash, two insurgents grabbed their fallen comrade and whisked him to the rear. Their casualty evacuation was stunningly fast. I'm thinking, when I was reading this, I was thinking, oh, these guys aren't, aren't as good as the guys you killed last they time, weren't. right? They weren't. You we guys were killed them. the good guys. Yes. Yes. And now they had inexperienced guys that were just bummed. You know what? Rushing. You're one of the few people that has ever picked that up in the book. Yes, we killed so many of them. And look, we were getting intel around this time that the Pakistani Taliban, the tribes in Pakistan, they were no no longer willing to commit their sons to the fight in our area of operations because we were just killing them and stacking bodies so high. They couldn't keep up and they didn't want to commit their sons to a losing fight. We were killing all the good ones. And now we, we reached a point in time in our deployment where – we were starting to know the terrain better than the enemy. We'd yeah. been there and operated there longer, and this is what you're seeing in this chapter. Yeah, and I'm just thinking to myself, you think about our view of terrain over time. We're looking at maps. We're seeing uh, imagery, one-meter imagery. Yes. We're plotting points on it. I mean, and you're out there every day. Yeah, you're going to have good terrain knowledge after however many eight months you've been there at this point. We did. They couldn't hide from us. They couldn't hide from us, and we would, we would, we would roll up on them. Uh, and disrupt their operations just and just surprise them, you know. So, whereas early on in the deployment, we were the ones getting yes. ambushed, now we were the ones rolling up in the middle of them trying to lay an ambush, and we were laying waste to them while they did it. Back to the book. Right then, the first 105 shells exploded in their midst. We'd called for fire dangerously close. Captain Dye, who's the operation center, who's at the operation center in Brumel had made sure we had ample support again. The gunners back on base had poured it on, mixing high explosive shells with white phosphorus, the dreaded Willie Pete. The gunners called this deadly mixture shake and bake. The high <laughs> explosive shook the ground and the Willie Pete cooked anything it touched. A curtain 
of fire and steel streaked with tendrils of white phosphorus erupted behind the enemy's main line of advance. We pinned them against us. It, we'd pin them against us. If they tried to break contact, they would be massacred by artillery fire. If they stayed in place, they'd be mowed down by our men. If they tried to close, we'd mow them down faster. Desperate now, the trapped insurgents bolted for us, their wounded and dying carpeting the hillside in their wake. There was a confidence in the men we'd lacked on June 10th. We'd seen this drill before with a more talented enemy force and the men reacted with ruthless violence. No shouting this time, no euphoric moments or episodes of near despair. Our emotions remained even keeled, cold, but laced with controlled rage that had been bottled up inside us for weeks. We unleashed it all in a merciless torrent. The enemy closed to 25 meters. We could see those wicked eight inch knives dangling from their belts. Insight, inside, oh, the sight infuriated us. The men fired and reloaded with accomplished speed. The artillery rain grew ever more intense. Over the radio, Captain Dye reported that he dispatched 2nd Platoon as our quick reaction force. 20 minutes later, the NCOs returned to the middle of the perimeter. A lull had descended on the battlefield as the enemy's lead waves had been killed almost to the last man. One at a time, our squad leaders reported the situation to be well in hand. Hall triumphantly announced, we're fucking wasting them, sir. (laughs) Yeah, Campbell echoed, the men are slaughtering them. Behind us, the moon rose over the endless ridges of the Hindu Kush, brightening the battlefield with a silvery glow. They're coming again, sir. You know what to do. The huddle broke, and back into the action they went. The slaughter continued unabated for almost three hours. We killed so many of them that their casualty evacuation plan collapsed. They simply didn't have the manpower left to pull their men out. Torn bodies lay uncollected on the hillside, bits of white phosphorus embedded within them. Their fat sizzled and popped for hours until the metallic stench of the willy peat blended with the sticky odor of burned flesh. Hell's barbecue. Second platoon arrived, burly all over the top energy. His voice echoed over the hilltop as he bellowed orders at his men. Greason jumped out of the, one of second platoon's trucks and on the and on bow legs sauntered over to us. Hey, sir, he said, sounding like Sling Blade. Look at you acting all John Wayne out here without me. <laughs> Where the hell have you been, I asked. It had taken 45 minutes to get this to this abandoned village after leaving Burmel. It had taken burly and our quick reaction force, three and a half hours to go the same distance. Greason later told me that Burley had called up a possible roadside bomb a few kilometers away from our fight. He had ordered the platoon to stop. They sat parked on the road out of the fight. Greason grew increasingly frustrated. He saw no evidence of a roadside bomb and nothing was being done to investigate or clear anything in the road. But since he was only a passenger, he could not do anything about it. As soon as the assaults against us had ended, Burley declared the road ahead clear, and the platoon had continued on its way. Not the kind of support you're looking for. No. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, not everybody that, that, that puts on the uniform is beyond reproach. We all make mistakes. And, you know, uh, that initial ambush that second platoon got caught in set the tone for that platoon. Not the men. The men, they wanted... They wanted to do the job and do the job well, but for the leadership, it set the tone for the leadership and the culture of that platoon to where they wanted to avoid contact uh, at all costs. You know, they were playing the long game insofar as, you know, they didn't want to be in the fight because they didn't want to take the risk of losing or having guys wounded, hurt, killed. And I get that. I do. And, you know, in this, in this particular 
uh, and one of the, for example, one of the leaders of that platoon had a had a wife that was pregnant, and he you know he wanted to go home. And I get that, but that is not unlike the situation of every single one of my soldiers who are out there bleeding on the line and need help. In this particular instance, we had it well in hand, but. The fact of the matter is when you call for a QRF, it's a no bullshit. Like we need you as fast as humanly possible. Now there is, I mean, God, I mean, Things how many, happen. yeah. How many times is a QRF hit with an IED because they, the enemy knows that that's our battle draw. I, I do get that. Um, and it's nighttime. Uh, but Greason was on the ground with him and he said that it took a long time to, to, to over three, uh, three and a half hours to get to us on the battlefield that night. Um, and, and really that drove a rift between our platoons. It really did. Um, and I think that the, I think that the that what we learned that day is that like we really have to rely on, we we really can only count on ourselves, you know. Um, we we operated with Delta and a Delta platoon out there. Uh, they always had our backs. Second platoon did as well. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they 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 didn't do the job, but the leadership culture was different. It was a different culture. <laughs> Um, you're now back on base and it's actually, it's actually time for you to go on uh, leave. And so here we go back to the book. The next day, our once overweight forward observer, Cole, came to see me. He'd been working out nonstop since arriving at Burmell several months before. He'd dropped more than 20 pounds, looked lean and mean, and was all set to go out on patrol with us. The first sergeant had cleared him to roll beyond the wire, and he was eager to rejoin us and be part of our band again. A few more days in the gym, a couple more after that for final preparations and he'd transitioned back to us. In the meantime, he was still working with the aviation guys to schedule seats on available helicopters. Sir, we have a bird coming in an hour. Aren't you supposed to go on leave? Do you want a slot? Cole was wearing ridiculous yellow sneakers. <laughs> Through my exhaustion, I gaped at them. Uh, yeah, Cole, that'd be great. But what the hell, I said pointing at his shoes. He grinned. They're cool. Cole, they look like big bird shoes. <laughs> They make me run like the wind, sir, run like the wind. I had no time to shower, barely get time to unpack. I f threw a few things into a bag. I changed my uniform later. Cole checked back with me about a half an hour later. Sir, the flight's full, but I'm gonna get you on it, don't worry. He told me to get out the, to the landing zone and wait for the helicopter. I said a hasty goodbye to the platoon. I had no time to do anything else and made my way to the pad. The abrupt farewell, even if it was temporary, felt jagged and raw. Truth was, as much as I wanted to see my family back home, I didn't want to leave the one I had here. So the helicopters come in. Cole dashed up to me in a moment after they touched down. Got a spot for you, sir. You know I always take care of you. I was profoundly grateful. Yeah, Cole, you sure do. I'll see you when I get back. He smiled and waved. Can't wait to be out there with you, sir. I shook his hand and thanked him for all he'd done for us. He, he seemed embarrassed. He hated to have attention drawn to himself and felt most comfortable working in the background, taking care of the platoon any way he could. So you take off. The first stop is, in, is at Bagram. You get there, and of course, you're walking around, and you get this. Lieutenant, a U.S. Army major demanded. <laughs> he stood staring at me, hands on hips, a look of disgust on his face. His ACUs were so clean and well-fitting that I assumed they had been tailored and pressed. He wore no combat badges, no sign that he was a ranger or even infantry. He had never, I had never noticed that sort of thing until that moment. I wondered if he was going to be salsa dancing tonight. Yes, sir, I asked warily. Clean yourself up. Your uniform's a disgrace. His war and mine were his war and mine were so different that there was no way for our worlds to meet. I didn't even have the energy to try. 
good times. I know. So <laughs> back in Bagram, I mean, they had salsa dancing night. Oh. Yeah, that's, I mean, you go on Bagram, I mean, like those, I mean, again, this is the divide between war fighters and, and the rear, you know? Yeah. It's like you get back and like, I, I remember I didn't have time to change. I still got blood on my FLC and on my body armor. And one of my squad leaders had been shot in the ankle. I'm rushing to get on these ring routes because they only come out to these outlying fobs so often, you know. So you might, you've got to get on the bird when it shows up or you might not get another one for a month. My whole family's expecting me to be home. So I rush. I get off the bird. First thing that I see is this major right on Steel Beach. And I'm like, I see this guy. I just, he's got like this eye for me. And I'm like, oh, God yeah. damn. I'm like trying to like not look at him. And he like makes a beeline right for me. And the first thing he says is you know your uniform is a disgrace you got to get you got to get your ass cleaned up i know i know that you know you're probably out there um, he gave me the whole i know you're probably i'm like sir i just i mean i'm like thinking to myself i'm like sir i just got off a goddamn bird like jesus like and then of course he's like yelling at me about taking the magazine out of my weapon like because you're not supposed oh, to have a geez. magazine on your weapon at bagram you're supposed to wear a road guard belt everywhere you go i mean it there are more <laughs> regulations in bagram air force base in <laughs> afghanistan than there are in fort drum or any military base hack back here in the states and so, I mean, it was just like, I, I, I so like, we, I got prison strong when I was in Afghanistan. So when we weren't on operations, all we did was lift in our gym, you know, and our, and, and it was like, it was ghetto, but it worked. We made it work. It was great, you know? And so we get back to Bagram though, man. And it's like, it's like amazing. You know, there, there are, I'm like walking down, I'm like covered in dirt, filth, blood, muck. I, t- I take a sh- warm shower. There's much hot water as you'd want. <laughs> they got these like sauna like wood panels. I'm walking on, I'm like, this is great. I'm in there, on, I'm, you know, I'm in the bathroom. There are actual toilets. We would, we would go and like <laughs> the first experience that I had, like going to the bathroom in Afghanistan after MREs, I'm like, you're sitting on this little concrete square, right? Mm-hmm. With a little toilet seat over it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I just hear this like, like, and I look down and I see these two hands, man, pulling this big pot of shit out from my, I'm like, oh my God, Jesus. Like, that was my first experience. And I'm back in Bagram. And I'm like, this is a place, like a, a medical spa, like a spa. And I'm walking to these gyms. There are world-class gyms, at least three of them on Bagram. I mean, seriously, with all this hardcore, awesome weight equipment, I mean, serious, like pec decks, cable cross, I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. There's water coolers in every corner. There's green bean coffee. There's Burger King. There's salsa night. There's movie night. I'm like... People that come to Bagram should pay the military to go to Bagram. This place is awesome. I just want to take my family here on vacation. It's so nice. I mean, it really was nice. And I'm just thinking, like, people that are – like, there are infantry staff members or staff officers that go to this – they make the same amount of combat pay that I do. It's a totally different deployment. It's it's worlds – it it's, is. It's universes. And apart. I'm sorry. Like, you know, it, it, it. so I write about the resentment, right, that we felt at the time. I know it's not mature. I know it's not nuanced and complex. It's probably not right, right? Um, but I only wrote it that way, not because – just because of how I felt in the moment, oh, right? Yeah. I look back, and I'm so thankful for all those guys now, but it, I – the truth of the matter was is that you'd get highly pissed. This dude's making the same as I am, and I got shot in the chest last week in my body armor. You know what I mean? There's a there's a qualitative difference in experience that the military does not recognize with pay, and that pissed me off. <laughs> Just upset me. You're you see, you this deployment went down in 2006. You said you started writing this in 2008. Yes. Luckily for me, Leif and I didn't start writing extreme ownership until like 2014. Oh. So we had enough time. To like get over it, one of my uh, friends. Yeah, I'm still not. I'm still like yeah, to get over still, it. I'm still, still like have, all you fired still have up. Blood on your boots. <laughs> I, somebody gave me uh, a copy of an email that I had sent while I was in 
Ramadi to my Commodore, who was a friend of mine who I had a great relationship with, but I couldn't believe that I wrote it. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those, it was like I literally didn't care. Like, hey, you know, it, it was like a, he had sent out an email and I sent, he had sent out like kind of a group wide email to all the officers, you know, asking for some feedback. And I gave it to him, and I, I was a straight shooter. You know, the, everyone knew I was a straight shooter, and, I, and like I said, I had a great relationship with him. But like this guy told me the email that I sent, and I was like, wow. You know, it, it started off with something along the line because you know he it, it was questioning, hey, how can we get more seals? And like my opening line was, we don't need more seals. We needed better seals and tougher seals. I like that was my opening line. I was like, okay, yeah, that's a Jocko like, opening <laughs> line. That's <laughs> yeah, a, that's everything I, I expect yeah, you to say. Yeah, but I you know probably not. I wouldn't have addressed it the same way if you took me out of Ramadi, like and and I was sitting in a. Would you say a salsa night dance or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> would have been probably a little bit. Yeah, okay, here's some ways we could think about recruiting. You know, it wouldn't have been just coming salsa off the top night. Ropes. Of course. So yeah, you you wrote this book. You said you started writing in 2008. Yeah, I actually started the writing process in 2007 when okay, I got back yeah. in the so summer this thing of 2007. Was fresh. You were surprisingly gentle then. I, I mean, thing. I really wanted I wanted it to be a warts and all story, like yeah. my failures. But I I mean, look, I got a piece of advice from John, my co-author on this book, and he said, look. This country is a wash of World War II memoirs written by generals that feel make you feel like the war was just a chessboard. Like, mm -hmm. I maneuvered this unit here, and we did this. And the truth of the matter is, is you can, we cannot write a book like that. It has to be a warts and all, blood and guts type story. Yeah. And so that's what we set out to do. Yeah. Well, those are the kind of books that we don't cover on this podcast. Books by, by the rear echelon. Like, we literally, I don't think I've covered, I mean, I covered patents because patents, and I've covered some other senior generals from, older times when you don't have any first person accounts from privates because a lot of times the privates weren't educated enough to write a book. Right. The few that are out there that I've definitely, we've definitely nailed some of those. Uh, we've got uh, Napoleonic foot soldier. <sighs> yeah, that's a foot soldier. So yes, that's what this book comes across like. You get, you get it right. Um, so now you're on leave, by the way, which people may not understand, leave is absolutely mandatory when you're on a one-year deployment in the Army. That's right, yeah. Two you weeks of R&R, &R, rest and relaxation leave. There was a, I didn't, I didn't know that, and the commander of the 1st of the 506th, who was the best guy, the, like one of just the best combat leaders ever, leaders, period. For and, one 506, yeah, really? Yeah, 1st of the 506 nice. in, in Ramadi, just totally, just an awesome guy. And... I didn't know that it was mandatory, but all of a sudden he was on leave, and I was kind of like, "Well, that's that's kind of a that's kind of a letdown." You know, I thought to myself, "What? I can't believe he took leave because in the SEAL teams we don't do that because we are on short, much shorter deployments." Anyways, then someone's like, "Oh yeah, he's on leave. He had oh, he, that's he had to leave." That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. I yeah, figured well, it would be mandatory for you too. Our deployments are generally six, seven months, so we're not going on 14, 16 month deployments like they do in the army. And the Marine Corps is the same way. The Marine Corps goes on like six, seven month deployments. You know, that's kind of they don't their get you, they don't get mid tour leave. They don't get like you're only gone for six months, bro. I mean, you don't. There's no forty. I mean, I've never even really thought about this. Yeah, I guess if you're only gone six months, do you you don't get anything? Nothing? No, no. But I don't know what would be better. I, I think a six month deployment with no leave would be better than a sixteen month deployment with two weeks in the middle. I would say that that's rough. And even reading your your thing, like, there's no way I would have wanted to go on leave. It would drive. I didn't. It, I, I, it would have driven me crazy from an infinite number of ways. But just, I don't want to taste. Like, oh I don't want to taste chocolate chip cookies. I know. If they're not going to be 
like if I'm not going to have at least the whole chocolate chip cookie, right? Yeah. You know, I don't want a taste of it. I don't want <laughs> a taste of it. Just give me an MRE and I, I'll keep eating that. I don't want to know what this other thing tastes like. Yeah, leave me in the suck. I know. Yes. Don't, don't, don't take me out of the suck and expect me to want to go back to the suck. That so, was one of the hardest things ever. Yeah. I mean, you're I, right I about that. I can't even. You know what they do in, in basic SEAL training? We were going through this thing called Hell Week, which is like five days where you're up the whole time and it's cold and wet and miserable. At some point during that, they go, okay, guys, you know what? We've pushed you guys too hard. And the the uh, the captain he says you know we need to we need to get you guys a rest so it's our fault look go change into dry uniforms and we're gonna put you guys to bed you guys are gonna get six hours because we we shouldn't have done this we shouldn't have pushed you guys like this and you're like whoa okay cool so you get in dry clothes and then they put you in bed and this is one of the times where you get to sleep but you you don't go to sleep for how, for six hours you go to sleep for about fifteen minutes and then they come in and they're lying and they're just but what's interesting <laughs> is what's interesting is so many people quit right then because you're cold wet miserable for like a day and a half maybe two days then they tell you oh, okay sorry that was that was a mistake we need to give you guys a rest they get you dry they get you warm they get you sleeping only so they can wake you up and put you right back in the cold water. And so many people quit right then. God, man, this is a fascinating parallel because- It is. Because, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to some deep fundamental truth of the human condition, yet leave is mandatory for yes. Army. And it, I have to tell you, man, I didn't want to leave. It was it was terrible, right? Um, I went home. I could, there, there was rest and relaxation. It's like, Jeez. what? Right, yeah. Like, you, there's no relaxing at all. And then going back, though, was the hardest thing. It was so hard, right? It was just so challenging. So there is something to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know what's amazing? Stay in the suck. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Stay in the suck. Keep me in the suck. And you know what's amazing, though, is that there was was not more AWOLs. Yeah, that is shocking. I mean, for real. Yeah, that is shocking. Well, I guess it's partly because we have an all-volunteer force. Yeah. And people know what they're doing. I think that is. I think that is a major component of it. If it was a dra- all draft force, the AWOL number would be significantly higher. I, think I don't that. know though, man. I talked to the leaders that I talked to from the Vietnam War. The draftees were awesome, unless you were a crappy leader, and then they were horrible. And guess huh. what? Everyone that worked for you was horrible because yeah. you sucked. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so you are in Ocean City, Maryland. Yes. Down that, on the water. That's where my family's gone for the vacation. So this is just hitting every, every every damn sentimental thought that you have is all getting hit. Going I, back to the book here. What? Go ahead. No. Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. You're hitting the nail on the head, man. Yeah. Everything that I've experienced my entire childhood coupled with, coupled with the shame and guilt of leaving my troops. It was just hell. It was horrible. Oh, and I had to try to pretend like it wasn't. Oh, That's yeah. the thing, you had to right? Act like your family, like oh, when yeah, I'm having yeah. fun. This Mini is golf great. is fun, which it is, you know, because yeah. I always win. But it wasn't fun when I was on leave, you know. <laughs> I rose from the bed and went to the open window. My family had rented a place on Maryland Shore in honor of my temporary homecoming. We'd be there for a week, then I would return to the war. The salt air smelled divine. I closed my eyes and filled my lungs. With each exhale, I tried to purge my mind of the foul odors I had stowed away with every Afghan breath. Burned flesh, white phosphorus, and steaming bodies rent asunder. Filth, sewage, mold, and decay. And then you go on, but at the same time, I felt disconnected, unplugged from my hive at Burmel. Now all my instincts telegraphed that something had gone terribly wrong, and I wasn't there to help out. 
somewhere on the far side of the planet, I imagined the platoon cleaning weapons and getting ready for chow. I loved being home. I hated being home. My folks appeared in the kitchen, and my grandmother wished them good morning. I went back to watching Fox News, savoring every bite of my home-cooked breakfast. The little things matter the most after combat. The news anchor began talking about two Fox reporters who had been kidnapped at gunpoint the day before in Gaza. Then the news ticker at the bottom of the screen caught my attention. American soldier killed by enemy mine strike in eastern Afghanistan. The wires inside my head were screaming now. I stared at the screen and listed all the reasons why this couldn't have happened to anyone I knew. The outlaws were a tiny unit, just a platoon. There were thousands of U.S. troops fighting in eastern Afghanistan. The chances that was one of my men were astronomically small. Then you obviously run, get your laptop. I sat down and started my laptop as soon as I logged into Yahoo Instant Messenger. A conversation box popped up. It was Rowley. Hey, sir. Rowley, everything okay? Actually, no. What's wrong? I received no immediate reply. I waited in dreadful suspense. And then finally, Cole is dead. Rowley sent a file. The download took forever. When it finally finished, I opened it up and saw a photograph of one of our Humvees blown to broken junk. I had a, uh, I had a dream that day. Yeah, I don't know if, if y'all believe in this sort of thing, but I had a dream that day that something was wrong in Afghanistan. I just, I, I could not sleep. It plagued me all night. It was a dream about being overrun and all this other stuff. It's just hard sometimes to get centered when you come back from combat, especially on R&R, and you know you're going back. Um, but just something in me was screaming that something isn't right, something's not right. I don't, And I sort of just wrote it off as like, hey, you know, you just don't want to be here. You want to be back with the guys. Like just sort of try, let it go. Try to re- let your guard down, right? Try to relax. But I couldn't let it go. And I remember waking up that morning, having pancakes. Uh, my mom makes amazing pancakes. That's like our thing. We go on vacation, right? So I'm just like crushing some pancakes or whatever. And I'm like watching Fox News, and I still could not shake this feeling that something was wrong. And I see that ticker, and immediately I knew I knew it was my I knew it was my platoon. 100% just knew it in my heart of hearts. And I run over. I mean, this is back in 2006 where Wi-Fi wasn't everywhere. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I had to go find a place that had Wi-Fi, some coffee shop across the street. I got my like my laptop. And I sprint across the street to get there, hook up, find out that I lost one of my soldiers in my only two weeks, my two weeks that I was gone. It was just one of the most devastating experiences of my life because it, by this time I realized that, you know, sending I'd seen the toll that the emails had taken on my dad firsthand now. Like he didn't talk about it, he didn't complain to me about it, but I saw it. You know, I could feel it. And so by this time in the deployment, I, I just I just sucked it up. You know, I found out the code I had to keep it a secret for the rest of the time. You know, and my, my I think my family knew something was wrong. Uh, they didn't really ask me any questions about it. But, like, we were going mini golf and having family dinners, walking on the boardwalk. And I just had to just not say a word about it. It was just it was just the hardest thing in the world, man. And Cole was just such a great guy. Like, hey, he had a newborn baby before we deployed. 
the reason why he gained all that weight is it was sim- he was gained all the weight because he was his game sympathy weight during the pregnancy and he couldn't oh, shake yeah. he couldn't lose it <laughs> and so he got to stay back see the birth of his kid i remember our battalion commander said yeah we're gonna let you stay back you know take care of your family have this baby because when you come to afghanistan we need you 100 percent focused on the mission so thank god he got to stay back and and watch his baby be born and come back up he got to the base overweight he couldn't really like go on patrol with us because he was overweight, but he took it in stride. He didn't get dejected. He looked for other ways to help, you know, like we'd get back from base, he'd run over the truck, start grabbing and throwing MREs in if we needed MREs. He looked for a way to be functional, man, and the platoon just adored him. And finally, he ends up in the gym, losing all this weight, gets these stupid big bird shoes, think it makes him run fast and stuff. They did, man. He was just a character, man. It was really funny. Finally loses all the weight. And, uh, you know, I left on leave, like something like August 12th. His first patrol was August 15th. He was killed August 16th. It was just, a, and I, I, to this day, it's just, it's the worst. It's just, I missed his funeral. I missed his, I missed the, you know, the, the salute, the funeral, the memorial service, the bagpipes, the, you know, uh, his casket being flown from Brumel back to Bagram. It was just, it was just the worst. It was just the worst experience you could, you know just to not be there, you know, as a leader, like, you know, you always want to make sure that you're there, you know, where the contact is heaviest, right? That's my, you know, on the, on the battlefield where the contact is heaviest, but it's not, sometimes it's not just enemy contact. Sometimes it's emotional and psychological contact as well. The leader has to be there, has to be, cannot be a detached, must be involved. And this was one of those moments for me. And I'm like, I was screaming inside. I'm like, God damn it. This is where my platoon needs me the most. I need to be there for them. I need to be struggling through this with them. And I, I totally missed the entire thing. By the time I got back to the base, Cole uh, on the base, I mean, never be forgotten. He's, his, his, his name was just been painted on our wall. It was just one of the fallen that we had lost in the deployment. And it just killed me inside not to be able to be a part of it. You know, and it would end up being my truck, you know my truck that was attacked. I mean, there's a whole story behind it, which I'm sure we're going to get into, but it ended up being my truck that was attacked. It was a targeted attack at the command vehicle. So it was just, it just sucked. I wish I was out there. That was, that was, that was your truck in the line of March that got hit. Yeah. And that's what he was in. What position was he in, in the vehicle? Uh, he would, he was sitting, uh, behind the driver. So, um, when I was on leave, Greason took over the truck commander position in the command truck, which is this, you know, typically in a convoy. The way that we did it is I was right behind the point man in the mm-hmm. truck. So, um, Would you be in the lead truck? I wouldn't be in the lead truck. I'd be in the truck right behind the okay. lead. So Chris Same Cowan. Thing as us then. Yeah. So I, I was sitting in the TC spot directly next to the driver. Coles uh, was sitting behind the driver. Chris Brown was my gunner, and I have a uh, pinholder rooter in the truck behind me. So um, I was on leave. Greason was in that truck fulfilling that role, but it was that truck that was hit. It was a targeted attack. So you get back. Um, you're back in Burmell. Hey, sir, I need to talk to you, Greason said to me as I entered our hooch. His room was across the hall from mine. He was supposed to get evacuated back to Bagram so his head wound could be treated. Instead, he refused to leave the men and continued to lead them after the aid station at Fob Salerno had patched him up as best they could. And those were wounds that he got from that same IED blast. Yeah, yeah, he got, he, it's just, I think this is his second or third Purple Heart on this deployment. we just come back from my first patrol since I had returned from leave. Sir, what I'm about to tell you cannot be mentioned to anyone. 
His preface caught me off guard. Okay, I said cautiously. It's about one of our interpreters. He had my attention now. Quietly, he began to talk. Unbeknownst to us, some top-secret national-level assets had been tracking unusual communications coming from our area. Over the past several months, they had narrowed those transmissions down to Fabermel. Somebody on post had been using our sat phones to contact an Iranian bomb-making cell operating out of a madrasa just over the Pakistani border. We had an enemy mole in our midst. Youssef fell under suspicion. He'd been observed asking questions he shouldn't have been asking. He had often wanted to know where we were going before we left the wire, something that had annoyed us throughout the deployment. A quiet investigation had revealed that he was the only local national on base who could have had knowledge of the platoon's destination. Plus, Griezmann had caught him talking on a phone, introducing himself with a different name to whoever was on the other end of the connection. When Griezmann said, hey, I thought your name was Youssef, our head terp offered a wide, suspicious grin and replied, that's just my stage name. Greeson finished the story. Captain Die is going to take him to Oregon E. Is that how you say it? Oregon E, yeah. Oregon E later today to arrest him. Nobody can know about this. We can't risk spooking, spooking Yousef and causing him to bolt. I want to go to Oregon E, I said in a furious voice. Greeson growled, fuck no, sir. You're way too close to this. So am I. Let Captain Die handle this. He was right. As the news sank in, my own responsibility in this disaster became apparent. I had become complacent with the cozy nature of Yousef's relationships with the men. He'd been too close to them for many months, and every time I'd seen him around the barracks hanging out with them, it it had rankled me. Greeson had noted it too, urging me to put put a stop to it. And although I'd mentioned it to the platoon in passing, I'd not done so with any conviction. When it continued, I should have put my foot down hard and ended it. Fraternization with a local national, no matter how much he was trusted, was an operational security breach, plain and simple. Even more damning was his use of satellite phones. That never should have happened. Though we had told him he couldn't use them, he still had access to soldiers who worked in the operations center and he could get his hands on the phones whenever he wanted. It had always seemed like a minor problem, and my plate had been so full with that dealing with Yousef's behavior had ended up on the bottom of my priority list. I had never gotten around to dealing with it, and now what Greeson told me revealed the consequences of that failure. It had gotten Cole killed. No, I had gotten Cole killed. This was not on the men. This wasn't on Greeson. This was my cross to bear. I don't remember much of the morning after that. I know I went to my room to change out of my filthy uniform. I know I felt my strength failing me as I faced the totality of my guilt. Another part of me slipped away and died. I hadn't, didn't even have the will to fight for it this time. The war had sucked me dry. So this, this Judas, in the purest sense of the word Judas, Yusef, had had betrayed everyone mm-hmm. obviously um and you know in my mind i was wondering okay i wonder how like how they knew like okay they got some very good evidence but in, in the back of my mind i was thinking still like you're gonna you're gonna go you, how do you really know and then i read this later that day captain die assembled a patrol from part of my platoon and part of the headquarters element Yousef was assigned to be the Terp. He suspected nothing and climbed on board one of the Humvees. At Oregon E, he was confronted with the evidence against him. At first, he denied everything, but when the sat phone was mentioned, he laughingly confessed, yes, yes, you got me. I did it. 
His attitude earned him faceplant on the hood of the Humvee. Our men zip-cuffed him and pulled him into the battalion detention center. Later that night, he was flown, flown to Bagram. In any other time, in the hands of any other army, Yusef's body would never have been found. He'd have been dispatched and dumped, his corpse left for scavengers. Nobody would have known or cared that an enemy spy had vanished. Vanished. Discipline was the only thing that saved his life. Instead of a bullet to the brain, he faced due process in a prison cell. In the days ahead, I wondered if that was a weakness or a strength. There's a certain elegance to outlaw justice. Besides, the enemy would have afforded us no mercy had the roles been reversed. And then later you find out that he actually also was the one that got Abdul killed. Yeah, yes, he he was responsible for the assassination of Abdul, baiting him outside the wire, had a hand in the night letters just so he could ascend to the head terp and ingratiate himself to the sensitivity of some of our, our mission sensitive mission sensitive intelligence. And so this is this this is a hundred percent on me, hundred percent. I mean. Throughout the course of the deployment, like we get there, even myself, we're like, oh my gosh, this is a totally different culture. Look, we're having fun. We're having tea together. We're friends. We're out there serving together. You know, after a while, these Terps would show up for our convoy briefs and they'd listen in and Greece and be like, hey, they can't be having these guys listen to our convoy briefs. And I'd say, okay, I'd talk to the squad leaders about it. But again, no conviction. Um, you know, we'd have interpreters for a while sitting in my truck, in the command truck, to listen mm-hmm. so I could react in real time to the ICOM chatter. We were looking because he would mm-hmm. listen to the enemy and I'd hear yeah. about it. I'd call and fire. Uh, but he was also hearing sensitive commo coming back from me on the tax set and stuff like that. Um, Greason was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, so we moved into a different truck. But again, I never addressed this issue with any real conviction. And, and because of that, he coordinated with this Iranian IED cell, they, he knew exactly where we were going, what OP we were setting on. He had an eight-digit grid. He knew where my truck would be that provided the greatest uh, – uh, it was just the best position for the command truck to be. We had been at this location before, so we'd know. So he seeded the area with a couple of different plastic Italian TC6 anti-tank mines. So even we had these metal detectors for that purpose to detect mines. There was more metal in a pack of cigarettes than there is in this mine. And my truck with coal in it rolled over that mine, totally destroyed it, killed coal in an instant, wounded Doc Pantoja for a second time, wounded Greason for the second or third time, blew Colt Wallace out of the turret. He was wounded another time. I mean, it was just an absolute disaster and it was a hundred percent on my failure to address this specific issue uh, and failure to protect operational security around mission sensitive things and you know it, it it just god it just bothers me to this day you know because you know man regret is life's worst poison it just is it eats at you it eats at you forever for the rest of your life you never want to look back in your life and say the word should should is like one of my least favorite words in the English language. Yeah, sure. I sh- yes, sir. I should be able to do that. No. Or can you do it? Or can you not do it? Because you can't do it. I'm going to find somebody else who can. I hate the word should my kids say, yeah, I should No, I don't want to hear should yes or no. I hate that word. Well, it, I also hate it because I don't want to ever look back on my life and said and say, God, I should have done some, I should have done this differently, you know? Um, and I have to say that with regard to Cole, I mean, his death is on me, no one else but me. And his death 
rests solely at, at my feet and I've got to live with that pain for the rest of my life. Losing a soldier when I knew it could have been preventable. Had I, you know, I think I look back, I look back on it and I think I just, you know, part of me just wanted to be liked by the guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, like yeah. they thought it was, they thought it was cool to go sit and have tea with the interpreters and stuff. And I just didn't want to, you know, I think that was it. I think part of me just didn't want to make that hard decision. I didn't want to take that away from them. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be liked. And ultimately that's what that, that right there is what got one of my soldiers killed. And something that, like I said, I have to live with for the rest of my life. Every day I think of that. Every day I wish I could have done something different. I talked about that on a recent podcast, like this idea that, and it's the same thing that you and I have been talking about because this idea of like, I'm going to be friends with the people in which I clearly said and will freely say that I absolutely had friends in all, every unit I was ever with, I had real good friends up. When I was a junior guy, guess what? When I was a junior guy, when I was the youngest guy in my platoon, I had great friends that were what we call khakis, you know, whether they were the chief or the assistant platoon commander, the platoon commander, like they were my real true friends, like real legit friends. And that was when I was really young. So I, I always had it there, but man, the bleed over, the mistake that people make where they, where they say, you know what? And I know the feeling, I know this uncomfortable feeling of, you know, the guys want to do this and I don't think it's the right thing to do, but I don't feel strongly enough about it that I'm actually going to say anything. And this to me, I, like I said, I had a real advantage because I was older and I'd been in the teams for a long time. I, I, you know, I had a lot of experience in the teams. So it was easier for me as a junior officer to hold the line. I didn't always. And I look back and I can tell you a thousand stories of times where I should have done something better than I did. And I didn't. And I should have. And it was a mistake. And I explained that to these young officers. When I talk to young officers now, I'm like, you're the guy. You're the one that has to make these hard decisions. And you know what? This is the part that's, that's good for them to understand. It's counterintuitive. What's counterintuitive when you're in a leadership position and you actually say, hey, guys, we're not doing that. You're afraid that they're not going to like you. You're afraid that they're not going to respect you. They actually respect you more. It's true. They actually respect you more. Like, you know, looking back now, if you'd have gone, guys, hey, listen, this is OPSEC. We're not playing. I'm not going to have foreign nationals know our routes. It's not happening. Everyone in that platoon would have gone, hey, boss is on it. You know what I mean? But we don't know that. And it's easy to look back. Hindsight's 2020, man. Hey, you're, you're 100% right. Um, 100% right. You know, and I think part of me, it was just like, you know, y- you laid it out there perfectly. Like, the guys really want to do this, but I know this ain't the right thing. And maybe 99% of the time, if I don't say something, it might be okay. It's no big deal. You know? But it's that 1% of the time where if you don't say something and tragedy strikes. And it's, you know, I, I, when I talk to young officers about it, I'd say the exact same thing that you do. The buck stops with you. You are the guy. Do not seek popularity, popularity for popularity's sake. You yeah. know, be the leader. Be the strong leader that your men know, need, and deserve. And that's the counterintuitive part. The counterintuitive part is that if you do, if you hold the line, the, your respect actually goes up. Now, can you go overboard with that? Yes, you absolutely can, and everyone can hate you because you just and don't. And it happens. It, it, it happens, happens a lot, happens. yeah. But 
The other thing I think was playing against you in this situation is it kind of doesn't seem like that could really happen. You know what I mean? Like I look at some things that I experienced in combat and I'm like, you know, if somebody would have told me that that could actually happen, I would have said, it's like it's like you're watching a movie, you go, yeah, but that would never happen, right? That could never actually happen. And it seems like that's a situation where you'd be like, listen, what are the chances that of all the thousands of people that could be assigned to us out here, we're gonna get this, this spy, right? A spy, that's what's gonna happen, that has access to Iranians? Like, you can't, if you wrote a book about that, you'd be like, okay, that's a cool plot for a movie. I know. But in our minds, we're like, hey, and that's why... I reached a point, and I'll tell you, I reached a point, I can't really talk about what happened, but I had some intel that was not the way it should be. And I learned that lesson one time. And from that point on, I never doubted that these things could go the way they did. And I, and I, all these little suspicions that I thought maybe, and it happened to me luckily on my first deployment to Iraq where I was like, okay, yeah, I dropped the ball on that one. We got away with it, it'll never happen again. You know, so I think that's another thing that was playing against you is it seems kind of like far-fetched, unrealistic. It like does. You got James Bond. Well, you got it does. The, you, you got know, the Afghan James Bond in your Well, in your you know, and, and, and the thing is, is I think it's even more nuanced than that. I think he was, he, he, you know, maybe for a time he was a legit interpreter, you know, worked with Americans for five years, you know, and I think. He just was unhappy with his pay, and the enemy said they were going to pay him more. And the guy's trying to feed his family, and these people are perpetual fence sitters. Like, you know, it's the graveyard of empires. Mm -hmm. That sort of attitude is ingrained into the soul of every tribe in the country of Afghanistan. And so um, I think that he just flipped, and his flipping was more of a cultural thing and less of a loyalty. I mean, it was a loyalty thing to us, right? But to him, it's just like, that's business as usual piece. that's and the I, other piece playing against you i yeah i because we don't do that i don't get yeah we don't right. do that i didn't it didn't even register with me although it should have because you know you have abdul telling me literally you know you guys gotta watch this guy Be, keep an eye on this guy this guy's all about the money you know and again i'm just mm-hmm. thinking like well i know a thousand guys like that that are all about the money they're not gonna like yep. turn on you and then you look at the war since i've been home and God, man, the war is awash with green on blue incidents. It happens all the time. But to me, in the moment, as a young, inexperienced leader who wanted to be popular, didn't want to make the hard decision, maybe just consciously or unconsciously blew it off, it bit me in the ass, you know? And it and it got one of my guys killed and got four of them wounded. And it was just, it just is the worst feeling in the world, you know? Well, the good thing is you're in here right now and you wrote this book to teach these lessons to young young JOs that are out there and NCOs that are out there that have to hold the line. <sighs> Going back to the book. Enough was enough. Lieutenant Colonel Toner coordinated a battalion-sized mission to clear, and this, again, so this is jumping. Now we're on page 322 of this, whatever it is, book, because now we're getting to a point where you've been through all this crap over and over and over and over again, and the enemies they're getting theirs, I mean, you guys are kicking their ass, but as, as a battalion, the enemy is, they're hostile. Look, we had taken, in that year, 
we took over three or four thousand rockets, and at this point, this is around uh, October, November timeframe. They were hitting us with one twenty-two millimeter rockets. Oh, I don't know wow. if you ever, if you know what that looks like. Those are six foot long rockets. It's a freaking nightmare. It's the only one that has ever been used with a launcher in Afghanistan, and we could not find them. And every single day, one twenty-twos were pounding our base. We fired more artillery that year in Afghanistan trying to find this one twenty-two launcher and take it out, then both Iraq and Afghanistan combined. It was just an insane amount of 105s dropped. And so every single day we had this old school World War II air raid siren on our base. And every single day that thing would go off at a different time. And guys would run to the bunker. It just got to the point where it was like October, November, our battalion commander was just like, to hell with this. We're mustering the entire battalion in your area of operations and we're walking online all the way to the border until we find this thing and kill the people who own it. It's legit. That was that was our mission. And who was leading that operation was my my <laughs> platoon was, was responsible for pushing all the way to the border. And it was like a four or five day mission. I mean, we, I mean, God, it was cool to be a part of, man, to see Four, four different companies and another company directly attached, six companies total, all in awesome. line walking. You know, the A&A and the Marines are on the high ground. We've got my trucks in the low ground, and then we'd rotate. We'd be, I mean, it was just like something out of World War II. And yeah. we, I mean, look, we were doing trench clearing. I mean, the, the enemy yeah. had, we, we were walking in areas that no American troops had ever been in, and there were enemy trenches, and we were doing <clears throat> trench clearing. It was it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, what other infantry unit is doing trench clearing? We yeah. were. And, I mean, man, we ratted those little assholes out, man. Yeah. We did. I was so lucky. To, in Ramadi, we were doing brigade size operations. And it was so awesome. Yeah, I was going like to say, do SEALs there, get to see that? Do you guys oh, do that kind of stuff? Not not a lot. But, like, we, even, we didn't execute, but there was a big, like, division operation that was going on. And I sat through this big briefing. You yeah, know, they're cool, division, man. And I'm thinking to myself, this is so awesome. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for us, it was like World War II because we had tanks, and the tanks are rolling through smashing yeah. buildings and firing their main guns. I can't imagine it, that. It was really cool to be a part of I mean, be a little tiny, tiny part of that was awesome. To see... You know, for me, yeah, right. To be a tiny part of that is awesome. And to see the combined arms power of the United States military brought to bear on an enemy, oh, my God. So brigade, battalion-level operations are no (laughs) joke. I mean, the Apaches and A-10s, we had a British tornado, tornado, whatever you could, British tornado, come do a show of force in a Wadi system, and those British pilots are crazy freaks, man, flying down. I mean, it looked like you could reach up and touch this jet, come screaming down overhead and peel up away, and I'm like, this this is something like I've never experienced. One thing to be in a kill zone, platoon versus platoon with an enemy, but seeing a, a battalion, brigade, division-level operation, and to be a part of it, it is, I mean, We'd go to bed at night, and it would be like something out of Saving Private Ryan. We'd be sleeping on this ridgeline. The The horizon would be awash. It would be light, light up every now and again with 105s. Boom, boom. You can feel that shudder in your bones. You can feel it clatter your teeth, and it's just you can feel the crump of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's an AC-130 Spectre gunship would come on station. What? Yes, and I'd be the guy on the front, like, coordinating <laughs> targets with a, with a JTAC, like, hitting targets, and we'd just fall asleep to that all night. Yeah. And then we'd get up, and we'd do a sensitive site exploitation, like, at night or the next day. It was just like we just methodically took out every 
everyone. What it was, was the crazy. resistance that you guys pushed through this? Oh, so we uh, the very first day we 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 go we went down a route called Route Trans Am, and that was the that was the main route all the way to the border that we find that we had most of the issues with the enemy on, and the Marines were on the high ground with the ANA. We were on the low ground. We, we entire battalion mustered right behind us. My platoon pushes into the the mall of this Wadi system in Route Trans Am. And three dudes in black man jams, RPGs, AK-47s, run out from this side road and just start, like, waving their weapons. And the ANA on the high ground just start chasing them. And I'm just like, I get on the radio of the Marines. I'm like, stop, stop the ANA, mm-hmm. stop, stop. And Too obvious. They got baited into an ambush. They got surrounded and cut off. All, all the Marines that were with them that were wounded – the Marine commander on the ground was shot in the pelvis. This is the guy I was telling you about. My platoon, uh, the co- our battalion commander and our company commander come running up to us. So what's going on? I gave them the situation, and they're trying to figure out a Kazvak situation. I'm like, send us in. We'll go get them right now. Send us in. And so they sent us in, and uh, we drive into this kill zone. We start taking fire from all sides. I mean, it was just crazy. Start taking fire from all sides. I'm watching my truck, the, the truck uh, in front of me, window shattering all around it. I'm looking up in the trees. The wadi system is real tight, right? And these guys are just perched up on trees on these cliff sides, just taking pot shots at our gunners. And we couldn't traverse our guns. Oh. We couldn't traverse them high enough to actually make. So guys were coming up with the rifles and trying to shoot them and stuff. It was crazy. So I watched the gunner in, the, in St. Jean, uh, uh, John St. Jean from Haiti, get shot in the head, dropping the turret. So get this. When we eventually evac him, the bullet punctured his helmet. His helmet slowed the round enough that the round still punctured his skin, but stopped on his skull, skirted around his skin on his, like around the outside of his skull and back out the other side. I mean, this is like, this is the kind of shit that you expect. I mean, it's like, how is he alive? I had that happen to a guy. It's crazy. I had the exact same thing. It's just crazy. it didn't come out the other end of the skin. The, the, The medic, the corpsman just came over and like pushed the bullet round back up to the entry point and squeezed the bullet out like a yeah. zip. <laughs> oh, God, that a bullet zip. Yeah, that's gross. Oh, God. But so so we end up in this kill zone. We can't get to the Marines where he's completely cut off. And so we pull out. We got like four or five casualties. I had to evacuate. We got them out. We got them treated. And this is when Hall. And this is when Hall says, I'm going up to get him, sir. Give me a give me five guys from second platoon. I'll take my squad up and get him. And he fought up there. He fought up the hill. Fought to fought through two flanks of the enemy all the way. I know. I know. Just like I have a picture of him ascending the hill, like looking back down the hill, like doing this number. I don't know how we got that picture, but it's it's, it's Hall was just a badass and fought through two flanks of the enemy. Gets to this marine, treats his wounds. Leads in a jungle penetrator. Uh, a, a Black Hawk helicopter comes in. Two Apaches for an escort. They get a jungle penetrator in. Both Apaches take shots. They, they have to pull off station. The Black Hawk gets shot up. They get the guy, the Marine, on the jungle penetrator and fly him back. But, I mean, he, our, our birds got shot up. I mean, so we ended up uh, killing a bunch of the bad guys. This this is when, uh, when St. Jean got shot in the head. He fired, and the guy that shot him fired. They hit each other, right? And St. Jean hit the guy in the stomach, and this guy tumbles down right next to our truck. And that's when I see him, like, looking in this guy's eyes. He's got this gaping stomach wound. He's, like, bleeding to death right there in the dirt. There's no question he's going to die. And he's just looking at me, and I'm just, like, looking at him. And there's just no remorse in this guy's eyes. He, If, if it were reversed, he, he's just the most evil. There's no, no redeeming, no redemption in those eyes, you know? 
And over the radio, Stalter's on the radio. The guy that saved me on June 10th pulled me up. That guy's on the radio. He's got a shotgun leaning out his window. He's like, let me take him out. Let me take him out. Let me take him out. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, no, no. And we're like, come on, sir. Why? Let me take him out. And my gunner's like, sir, because he's got a shotgun. He's like, sir, he's right there. Let me kill him. Let me kill him. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. And I just not, I just remember thinking this was just, it was like a, this was like a split second thing too. It was like not happening. I had to reinforce it several times. They're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm like, no, you're not. Um, I just felt in the clearest, it was like divine clarity or whatever. I just did not want this shithead. I don't want this guy's soul, this terrible, evil, disgusting human being soul on the hearts of these men. You know, my men are worth so much more, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we go out, we evacuate our casualties and we go back in, right? We, you know, evac our casualties, go back in, try to get the Marine. We couldn't do it, but the guy was gone. He'd be an evac. There was just a puddle of blood there, but still like these guys evac this guy up what was like a sheer cliff face. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was on that was first five minutes of the battalion operation. Just to give you a sense of the enemy we face, you know, we got an entire battalion of infantry brought to bear. That was the first five minutes. So we took those guys out, and that's when we did the trench clearing on the next ridge line. So these guys were shooting us from these trenches, and I got all this just crazy pictures of this trench complex, and we're like, like, you know, just like room clearing with number one man just kind of marching down the trench and stuff. It's the craziest shit ever. I mean, we. We did trench clearing once at JRTC. It's not like it's something that we trained for, you know what I mean? But it was just crazy that there we were, no shit, doing trench clearing, you know? And people people will criticize, hey, were you enemy, are you really in the trenches? I'm like, yeah, we really were in the trenches fighting these guys. And then we'd take over the trenches and light infantry, we'd stay there, we'd hold the line there. It was just crazy. And um, we ended up fighting all the way to the border and we found a bunch of their camps and this was our thing. Like, Halfway through the deployment, we just started burning their camps to the ground, mm-hmm. shooting their livestock, you know, killing their livestock, burning their camps, taking their guns, ammunition, whatever, whatever intel we could exploit from their camps and just burn the rest of the ground. And man, that pissed them off. And we found their final camp right on the border, ended up getting like in one final attack with them, uh, ended up killing them. But along the way, we found uh, the 122 launcher, killed the guys that were operating it, captured nice. it. Yeah, we captured the launcher, first ever captured in Afghanistan. And then we found this 107 launcher that had been using that they had like a dummy cord of wires. And we got in this crazy, we got in this crazy like okay corral shootout with the guys. We're like, I'm on a dismounted patrol and I got a fire team with me and my platoon behind me and I'm on point with them. And I just like give the freeze, right? And everyone takes a knee and I pick up this like little piece of yellow wire that's this long and I'm like, I mean, honestly, I didn't think anything of it. I should have, but I'm like, this doesn't that, that just doesn't feel right. And all of a sudden, we look up, and Kantan Win, my guy from uh, South Vietnam, is like, he's like, Doctor Jones, Doctor Jones, like that guy. <laughs> he's like, so, so, we got get him, we got. And like, all of a sudden, it was like they're ten feet away from us. It was like, bang, like OK Corral shootout right there. And Kantan like ended up pegging the guy and chasing him, bonsai charged him, and everything else. And we're like running after these guys. It was a crazy. This was my life, dude. And this is not the kind of, I mean. I cannot believe that I went through some of this shit, man. I mean, this is not the kind of, you know? Yeah. And so this was, we pushed them out, then we went to Christmas, and then, and then, um, and then we got, like, we, we got attacked one more time by, like, a big, 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 big force. Yeah, you guys, you guys, 
I mean, when you guys closed it out, I mean, you get to the point where you close it out, you're like their last stand. On the final day, we seize the high ground overlooking the frontier. We remain, the remaining enemy soldiers chose to make their last stand here between us and Pakistan Army border checkpoint. They marshaled their remaining weapons and emplaced their machine guns with their usual tactical cunning. We'd been under fire for almost a week, filthy reeking of gunpowder and body odor, constipated by MREs. We'd spent Operation Catamount Blitz sleeping in our rigs between skirmishes. Now came the climactic moment. We'd spent all year making last stands against their furious assaults. Here, the roles were reversed, and they would die in yes, place. Yes, yes, it was awesome. It was awesome. Our forward air controllers called in a final series of airstrikes. The A-10 pilots were... The Aton pilots unleashed to do were unleashed to do what they do best. With J dams and thirty millimeter strafing runs, the warthogs pulverized the enemy. When it was over, there was no need to assault their last stand. Not an insurgent remained upright. Captain Dye and Lieutenant Colonel Toner walked to our ridge. They'd been working the radios with the forward air controllers, and now gazed down into the smoke shrouded valley. The last A-10 swept past its chain gun, throwing lead in one final act of overkill. As it pulled up and raced skyward, Die and Toner erupted in cheers. Soon, all along our line, the men joined in. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Victory it was like cures all pain. I'm, I'm telling you, man. I, victory cures all pain. It's the truth. I mean, we had we had been on the receiving end of this shit for almost a year. We finally drove those little bastards back to Pakistan, and we cheered. It was like something out of a movie, man. It was like everyone's like holding the rifle up in the air and cheering. And we thought that was the last attack, but it wasn't. We thought that was their last stand, but then they threw, I'm telling you, they threw everything but the kitchen sink at us in January, right? Right two days before, like a Is two this weeks where you got the heads up from Intel? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're out in an OP, right? <laughs> and, and you're, we built, this was the very first combat outpost. Oh, that's right. It was, it was the, a little compound outpost that yeah, you guys yeah, built. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we built it and we were there with these engineers, right? And we're like, like it was built in the literally the worst place you could possibly imagine. And I'm like, sir, this is fucking, this is stupid. Like, this is not a good place to put a base. No, we got to put it here. Brigade says we got to put it here. Okay, so we'll put it there. So we bring these engineers in to do this, and we get a, like we get attacked. There's like some stupid rocket attack or something, and we all go to bed. We all go to bed, and, and like keep in mind, we're like this is like one of the most dangerous places in Afghanistan. I got like four gun trucks up there with me, so I got 16 guys or six something like 16 guys on the ground, and I got a bunch of engineers filling these Hesco walls. Well, we wake up right. Uh, the night after the the first attack, and it was like a nothing burger attack, and we wake up and all the engineers are gone. They had Diddy Mound in the middle of the night and left us there. <laughs> they left us there with half filled Hesco walls. The base wasn't even complete, so now we're really stranded. There's nowhere we can go. So we're there's sur- sixteen of you. Yeah, so we had to four call gun trucks. Yes, yes. Yeah, so Did I, you have any Afghan with you? Any no, A or anything? No. No, they didn't want to go up there and patrol. This was up in Margad. Margad was right on the border. And so we had to call for reinforcements from the platoon, get a couple more trucks up there. I got like, now I've got like 26, 27 guys up there. And it's like, we're going home in two weeks, right? Everyone is like checked out at this point. Like they just want to go home and go home safely. And I get this call, like no bullshit. This call, I'm in my truck at like three in the morning get a call from my S2, uh, my intelligence guys up at battalion saying, hey, uh, Blackhawk 3-6, this is Catamount 2. You know, just I, – just, I, I don't want to alarm you, but there are 350 guys coming to attack your position right now. And I I just was like <laughs> – I, like, I like take the hand mic and I just like – do you ever see the Hitler memes where he takes his glasses off oh, yeah, slowly? Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like that moment for me. I just like, okay, just – okay, Roger. And I – put the hand mic slow and I like slept walk over to Greason. I said, Hey, yeah, did you hear that? And he's like, 
Mm-hmm. I heard it. I'm like, so what do we what do we do? What do we do about that? He's like, he did, he literally just goes, ah, I don't know. So I go back over to my truck and I call. I said, I said, what's going on? He said, he's like, look, we're going to stack up air for you. We're going to make sure that you have air. All we need you to do is observe. We've got a predator in the air. We've got predator. You've got a force coming from. Uh, directly from the east, marching down this route just north of Route Transam, where we had thought we'd wiped out the enemy, a force of 250 coming from that direction, and another 50, force of 50 coming in from the northwest. So in a massive sort of pincer movement um, into our into our platoon, they had marked them on like FBCB2. Like, do you guys have those two? Like the yeah, F- yeah yep. like the yeah, they were watching these like little red marks come to our you know come to our position. How often did you see that? See that? See that? See them actually marking their like. All, I never, all, never have to, like. We never even really. <laughs> I mean, look, the whole entire battalion was in here, so they had they had predator. They had two predators out there on the objective under Nas. They were sprinkling where they the bad guys were, and and look later. I I still have I still have the the predator feed from that. You can count all two hundred and fifty of them. So they stacked up all this air, and we waited for them to get a kilometer away from where we were. And the last thing they said before we dropped probably 150 rounds of 105s on them th- simultaneous three or four 2000 pound bombs on them they said like when you you know when you get to, they said something like here's what you wrote in the yeah, book yeah what did i write when you overrun the americans caught their yeah. heads off and mount them on, on stakes, stakes yeah. good luck and i'll see you on the objective i'll see you on the objective did you guys get that intel report while you were out there yes oh my god and then and then so we dropped okay so we we kicked off the engagement we had a b1 on station Kipped off the engagement. I have, I have the, I have the predator of all this. I have the predator of the entire of the J dams falling, everything, and the bad guys scurrying. It's the craziest shit you'd ever see. And like three or four right in a row, they were all marching in a tactical column. So one bomb, boom, 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 all the way down the column, right? And you see these. It's like it's on white hot, so the mm-hmm. explode, explosions just blazing in on the predator. You see these guys run around, and then a specter comes in and starts lighting these guys up. And Apache takes on this force from the. I mean, it was the craziest. I'm telling you, and an A10 coming in, and then the predator gets in with the hellfires. I got the whole thing on predator, and it's just the. We went on the objective that the very next day, and this went on all night. Mm-hmm. We just lit these mother up all night long and and we get on the objective and it was it was the most gnarly thing i'd ever seen just do an ssc like a sensitive Mm -hmm. site exploitation we get on the objective and there are literal body parts hanging up in the trees there are human body parts that stretch from where they were about to to prepo an attack on us stretch back two kilometers two kilometers of just utter gore and devastation and there were one survivor when we get back there, and the ANA is like like hitting this guy with the buttstock of an AK-47. The guy's barely clinging to life. Really wasn't worth much to us anyway. But what we found was these guys had better Merrill combat boots than we did. They were all wearing body armor. They had helmets on. Their rifles were fresh, still with the packing grease, Iranian serial numbers, right? And... I mean, their equipment was better, just, just as good, if not better mm-hmm. than ours. I'm surprised that they didn't have night vision. And some of them uh, had pack mill military frontier corps id cards damn and we sent all this intel up higher and i swear to god two days later we get a call back to the to the um, the 82nd airborne comes in to relieve us my guys start getting sent home one at a time and it, it, no bullshit like my guys are in various phases of redeployment like i'm the last one with the grease yeah. on the base right and yeah. i'm like thinking jesus christ i'm surrounded by all these guys because your know. deployment's over at this it's point. over at so this you've, point you've started to 
you started to send guys on once and people a lot of times people think so the military you know just everyone will come in and leave at the same time no but it's sort of a trickle thing you got to get squeeze people in where you can get rid of correct them. people are just trying to head home at this point correct and so i got guys home that have already made it home they've already re- reunited with their families i got guys in bagram ready to fly home i got guys in the air i mean they're spread out all over it's just me and Greason left on the base with a bunch of 82nd Airborne guys. And you're going to do some turnover ops with them? Yep. We did what's called like a, in the Army, like a Riptoa uh, relief in place. So now it's just you and Greason. Late Everyone January. Everyone else is gone. Everyone they're else is in gone. in various stages of getting home or they're actually home. And then this happens. Five days later, 0300, Greason and I were roused from restless sleep and told to report to the operations center. We rushed over to find Lieutenant Colonel Toner waiting for us on our computerized conference system. When Captain Dye joined us, Lieutenant Colonel said, men, I'm gonna read to you a quote from the former Marine Corps Commandant, General Charles C. Krulak. And here's the quote. When the hard times come, and they will, people cling to leaders they know and trust. To those who are not detached but involved. And to those who have consciences. They will seek out leaders who stand for something bigger than themselves and who have the moral courage and strength of character to do what they know in their hearts to be the right thing. And you're thinking, what the hell is this? (laughs) And then he says, men, we have been extended for 120 days. He let that sink in. Thoughts of home vanished as I did the math. June. We would be here until June. We would have to survive another spring offensive. What were the odds of that? The room spun. The men around me looked ashen. After Lieutenant Colonel Tomer signed off, Greason let out one of his classic sling blade laughs as if he didn't have a care in the world. I need a cigarette, he growled as he stepped out into the night. I followed, furious at his reaction. What the hell is wrong with you, I yelled. How can you not be pissed off at this? Greason just shook his head. Sir, every deployment I've ever been on has been extended. It don't mean nothing. It just means we get to play Army for four more months. Over the next 48 hours, my platoon reassembled at Fob Bermel. Most of the men had learned the bad news at Bagram as they were waiting for their flights home. They were reissued their body armor, helmets, and gear and thrown back into a Chinook. Others had already made it back to the United States. Military police knocked on their doors or met them at the airport and told them the news. They were told to pack and escorted onto the first available flights out. They came back sullen, fearful, and devoid of hope. Everyone knew the odds. We had all had close encounters with death. A few inches of one way, a failure to duck, a turn to the left instead of the right, and death would have had us. We cheated it so many times that it seemed inconceivable that luck would have our backs now. When we all gathered back at Burmel, Captain Dye addressed us. Men, he announced brusquely, we will begin continuous combat operations tonight. We're back on it. Suck it up. We became a platoon of condemned. As darkness fell, our bullet-scarred Humvees awaited us. In ones and twos, the platoons gathered around them. Drivers slipped behind the wheels. Gunners climbed into the turrets and loaded their weapons. My dismounts sacked, stacked extra comp, uh, ammunition into their rigs. Greason smoked and stalked around with his near beer, unflappable as ever. Sabo blew a fuse and yelled at one of his men. I watched the familiar scene and felt nothing but abiding love for these incredible human beings. Did America know the mettle of her warrior sons? Not a man refused his duty. Despite everything, we had not lost 
the one thing that mattered most, faith in one another. Chris Brown stood in my turret, shoulders sagging. As I opened my door, I asked him, how you doing, brother? He looked down at me with young man's eyes a thousand years old. We got this, sir. No worries. We got this, sir. No worries. And I actually wanted to call that out specifically because to me, that little statement from him reflects the main, broad, overarching spirit of the soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines that I worked with, their collective response to whatever the world throws at them. Is that right there? We got this. No worries. And then, you know, you you asked the question right there, does America know the medal of her warriors? And that's that's another thing. And I, that's why I'm glad that you wrote this book. And I'm glad when people come out and explain what it's like for real on the front lines. Because, you know, we just talked about that, that psychological thing of getting home or getting to get to sleep and be warm and comfortable and then having to go back. And you guys got that to the nth degree. It, I, I think it was by far the most difficult part of our entire deployment. Because if you think about the history of any military, you know, in the days of Sparta, like, and you were called to arms, like, you were directly responsible for how good you were with your weapon system. You had your own weapon system. You trained on it. You lived or died by it, you know? And in many ways, you were accountable, almost directly responsible and accountable for how you performed on the battlefield, right? But in the modern day armies, like these things are issued to you, you know, and you're issued your weapon, you're issued three meals a day, you're given shelter. The army itself in, in an abstract way almost fulfills an almost paternal like role to a lot of these soldiers. So when when we were extended, you know, guy like Greason who's been there, done that, he knows it's a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. But young guys like me who made up most of the platoon, like we didn't. And it, it felt like a betrayal, you know, almost by like a parent. And that violation of trust, you know, how we felt about it at the time anyway, it was almost insurmountable. To You know, there's something that happens when you get back to Bagram and you turn in your armor-piercing sappy plates and all your, your ammo and, you, you know, um, you know you're going on. You just say, you say to yourself, okay, I made it, man. Yep. I psychologically Dumb. made it. You brain dump stuff. You let your hair down a little bit. You kick back. You smile. You Everything just feels a little bit better. Life, the world just feels a little bit more colorful. Like you're not looking through you know, a dirt and crusted window all the time, right? That everything, it's like, everything's amazing. Food tastes better. Water tastes better. Your workouts are better. Like everything is better, you know? And to find out that like all of that, has been pulled out from underneath you and you somehow you have to go back into the fray and survive another spring offensive or I get more volley fires of RPGs, more listen to those assholes on ICOM. I mean, seriously, more rockets, more air raid siren going off in the middle of the night. It was just, it was the greatest leadership challenge that I've ever had to endure to see those guys get off the Chinook with again, young man's eyes, a thousand years old. This, this is this is 
this is the plight of I think the warrior in in general in that we come back to the states and like we might you know and age-wise be 20-something, but we've we've lived the lives of someone who's a 1,000 years old and lost just as many people as senior citizens in our own country, you know? Um, and so this is this is what I had in my platoon, a group of men, a group of boys who would really uh, had the life experience, lifetime of experience as a man, you know, a man, grown man. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was you know, the love and brotherhood that we shared for one another. You know, you always hear like the, the, the might of the American military and the things that we can bring to bear. And we got the best equipment and we have the, you know, the best rifles and the best technology and you're know, on the cutting edge of everything and all that's great. But really what makes the American military the best in the history of the world, it, you know, our secret weapon, our real secret weapon is the grit, the love, the brotherhood that we share for one another. And it's that attitude. It's that attitude and that love that we share for one another that allows us to accomplish anything on the battlefield. You know, we rely, we don't want to fail the, the man and woman to the left or the right of us, you know, and that love drives us to do extraordinary things. And that's what I saw. I mean, look, this, uh, the outlaw platoon, these weren't Navy SEALs. These were kids, you know, a lot of my machine gunners who performed the most heroic acts you can possibly imagine. I've never seen, never seen 18 year old kids do the things that I saw that my men do in that platoon. The jobs that they had before toting a, a machine gun in the mountains of Afghanistan was high school shortstop. Yet somehow these guys came out and they brought it every single day. You know, ordinary men doing extraordinary things. You know, the greatest triumphs of the human spirit were the things that I saw in combat every day. So, you know, combat can be, I mean, obviously it's hell on earth. It's destructive. It's terrible. People get hurt, wounded, killed. But I also saw some of the greatest, most beautiful triumphs of the human spirit as well, all in a motley group of infantry guys that from different races, socioeconomic statuses, different countries, whatever, different religions come together and accomplish amazing things. And, um, you know, really, if it weren't for them, I mean, I'll tell you right now, in a very literal sense, if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I had one of my soldiers save my life on the battlefield when I hurt, when I got wounded, but, um, I mean, I owe them everything, and that's what that book is about. That book is a testament to their to their legacy. I mean, I remember getting back, you know, I go to my R and R league and leave, and actually, my soldiers would go on their leave, and Americans would be like, "So where were you deployed? Oh, thank you for your service, right?" And we're great. I'm grateful that we live in a country that's like that. They'd be like, "Oh, oh, you're in Afghanistan. Oh, good, you're in Afghanistan. Oh, just thank God you're not in Iraq. Iraq mm-hmm. is just so bad, you know." And my guys would be like, "Jesus." I just got shot in the head last week and they'd come home and be like, sir, Americans have no idea what the hell we're doing over here. So I just felt like at some, some, it's my job as the leader to step up and try to capture their legacy and write a book and make sure that their heroism on the battlefield does not, is not lost through the ages. Like I want, I want their exploits to be written so that we can pass down the heroic exploits down to future generations. And, and that, that's what that book is. It's their story. It's not mine. And so you guys wrapped up the next four months. How was the last four months? Hell, it was terrible. I mean, we still got attacked, you know? I mean, and, and the thing is, the, the people that we attacked were not nearly as good. Mm-hmm. They weren't nearly as well-trained, but, you know, a stray bullet's a stray bullet. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, catch a ricochet off a ballistic shield, hits you in the head underneath your helmet, you're dead, you know? Um, so... Um, it was still pretty rough. I didn't write about it in that book, uh, but it was still pretty rough. And somehow, you know, I had some crazy, also the combat was crazy, but I also had some 
crazy leadership experiences as well because of the surge. Uh, uh, all the units that were sent to were supposed to replace us went to Iraq instead. That's why we mm-hmm. were extended. There was literally nobody to replace us. Well, they ended up tagging the 173rd Airborne the guys that we had relieved going in to come back and they were tasked with going to Iraq. And so they were in Germany at CMTC uh, training just a month prior to the deployment, just to get ready for an eventual eventual deployment to Afghanistan. They, they hadn't been training for that area of uh, operations. So they plucked one Lieutenant and one senior non-commissioned officer from the battalion to go and train these guys in Germany on a moment's notice. And it was me. So three weeks. So for three weeks, uh, just prior to the second spring offensive, I found myself boots on the ground in Germany, training 173rd Airborne guys, embedded with a company in Germany. I mean, it was just this has never happened before. Mm-hmm. Not, this has never happened before. You know, I mean, an army. I mean, we our deployment was 485 days, man. I mean, like Easy Company, the 101st Airborne, jumped into Normandy and, hot, and fought to Hitler's Eagle's Nest in less time than 485 <laughs> days. We're just out there flapping in the wind that whole time, man. And and you know, and then I get so it would get extended the last day. Uh, go to Germany, yeah. like I mean, if it's you put like, that in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. You'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. the guys are back in America now. They're getting told, no, that's that not is happen. what I think about now. I look back on this experience and I'm like, oh my god, this truth is stranger than fiction, man. Yeah, and then you guys get, you guys eventually do get home, and they start their workup. But you're you're like non deployable now because you're because yeah. of all those wounds that you talked about. Your brain, your your fractures to your skull, your brain, you're licking leaking fluid out of your ears. I had cerebral spinal fluid dry. He it healed. I was able, I was able to function in, in combat. And by the way, I'll tell you, I since that book has come out, I've been criticized a lot about, hey man, like you're a leader. You gotta take care of, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your own injuries, how are you expect to take care of your troops? And that's a that's a good it's a good criticism. It's a valid criticism. I, I just respond, you know, and I think it's important. I kind of want to address it here, going off script a little bit. Like, I'd guys getting shot in the head every day, wrapping up their heads like mummies and going back out on patrol. Mm-hmm. You know how I'm their leader. Yeah. How can I leave them when they're doing that? And so that's my that's my response to that. Like, look at it. Might at the. I would have done it the same way now. When well, I'm not leaving them, no matter yeah. how badly I was hurt. Right. You know. Um. But I get the criticism. I do. And so when I get back to Fort Drum, you know, I start having vertigo and all these issues. I end up having surgery to get all the cerebral spinal fluid uh, removed from my sinus cavities because it's right in there. That was terrible. Ended up going back to the traumatic brain injury clinic at Fort Drum and occupational therapy, physical therapy, like fine motor skill stuff, speech therapy. It was just this round robin thing. And my battalion was working up to go back again. I, I was made the rear detachment commander. That was the worst job ever where I was doing all casualty notification for the guy. So the crazy thing, and again, I don't talk about so let this. Me, you just like flew through that. Your, your guys deploy again. Yeah, my platoon, yeah. You can't deploy because of your injuries. And so now you're stuck back in the rear and the job they assign you with is what we call in the Navy, we call it a Keiko officer, casualty assistance calls officer. What do you guys call it in the Army? Well, yeah. So we called it a CAO, casualty assistance officer, but I was the rear detachment commander as well. So it was my job to liaise with all the wives and train the new recruits to go mm-hmm. and take care of the wounded ones when they came back. So every single soldier that was wounded, it was my job to call and notify the family, right? Mm-hmm. And the casualty assistance officer was like an every other month thing. So we'd rotate. There'd be one casualty assistance officer from the brigade, it. and it rotate through the, the battalions. So every couple months, I'd be the CIO where you're going to the doors and notifying family members. 
I ended up going. I have to tell you that 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 was that duty position was worse than combat because, you know, it's like when you're there, it's like you just I just want to be the best leader that I can be to get as many men as home as possible, right? Kill as many bad guys as we can, accomplish the mission, get my boys home. And then you come back and get assigned a rear D commander job. My men are given a different platoon leader. They're you know a good platoon leader, you know. Uh, where they train up, they go back, and now I'm the rear commander, and I have to watch from afar as my platoon gets torn torn apart, just torn apart. Jeff Hall died in that next deployment. Five of my guys died in that next deployment. It was just I had to go to their funerals. I had to meet with their families. I had and it's like here I did 485 days of absolute hell where I would have done anything for these guys to get them home alive. We finally do, and we go back to we go back to Afghanistan nine months later, and our platoon just gets torn up just torn up and I have to watch from afar as it happens. It was just, just hell. It was just hell, man. I just, it's those guys went through so much and they still, they still, they still struggling. We've lost men since. And I think, I mean, to this day, we've lost more soldiers to suicide and accidents and things after the war than we actually have in combat, which is crazy. You're, you're on that duty, and this is the last thing I'm going to read from the book. Two years earlier, a young man had walked into my office at Fort Drum. Fresh-faced and all smiles, the kid had saluted me and told me that his uncle had told him to seek me out. Who's your uncle, I asked. Philip Baldwin, sir. I want to serve with you in his old platoon. I'm Baldwin. Stunned, I said to him, do you know your uncle was a hero? He shook his head. I told him the story of what Baldwin had done on June 10th. When I finished, I said to him, you have some really big shoes to fill. If I put you in the platoon, you need to measure up. Resolute, steady eyes greeted those words. I could see he'd been cut from the same mold as his uncle. Not only did he join 3rd Platoon, his brother-in-law, Private Matthew Wilson, did as well. 3rd Platoon had become more than a brotherhood. It had become a family. Private Wilson was killed in action during the same attack that claimed Sergeant Hall. Baldwin's family had paid a terrible price for their love of country. Now Wilson's coffin lay before us, sealed with his body inside. We stood back in the crowd, alone with our thoughts. That's when we noticed him, a tall man wearing a black suit. He had a goatee now, and he leaned heavily on a cane. Is that Baldwin, I asked? He saw us and hobbled over. Before words were exchanged, our arms wrapped around each other in a fierce embrace. Long into that desperate and sad moment, I could only think of how I'd last seen him. I can't feel my legs, sir. I can't feel my legs. As we talked among the crosses, Baldwin's mother and grandmother walked up to us. Philip turned to them and said, Mom, Grandma, I want you to meet the man who pulled me off the battlefield and saved my life. They drew me into their arms and told me I was family. I held them close, total strangers, but still connected in ways most people will never fathom. Thank you. Thank you for what you did for Phil, they said through streaming tears. He is my brother was all I could manage. I held on and never wanted to let go.
And I think you're right about that. I think that most people will not ever be able to fathom that emotion right there. And you were kind of forced to leave that at the end of the day. You were medically retired? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, my battalion got back from the second deployment. They were gearing up for the third deployment, you know, and I was I was put out. Uh, I was put out. I was medically retired. It, it, it was terrible. The way that it happened, too, went down. It, it's just like, you know, you come down red as a captain in a battalion, uh, a senior captain on my way to 04, on my way to major. Um in a battalion, like there are only so many senior captain O four slots. You come down red on a PowerPoint slide. It's like we got to get this guy out of here. And it's like I can't move any faster than the med board process. You know, it's like once it gets up to the big army, it's just a waiting game. Well, it takes forever. You know, there are a lot of guys wounded, a lot of guys being medically retired. Uh, the system was slow, and so I was basically given okay. Once my medical retirement paperwork came down and was approved, my battalion commander like trying to get me out and get a new captain in, gave me two days to clear Fort Drum, got put out of the army two days. And look, this isn't a sob story, but it's like two days to say goodbye to everybody that I had lived my life with for the last six and a half years. But that's the military, man. You know, there's a mission and that, that you know, we moved. The machine that, keeps rolling. Yes, we moved to that mission like a locomotive freight train. And if you're wounded or you're hurt, like I get that. I love that. I respect that, you know, but you got to get out of the way of the train, man. That's just what it is. So... And so then, so then, so now what year is it? Uh, I was put out uh, December 19th, 2010. And then what? Had you already started writing the book? Yeah. I mean, I was in the, I was in the process of cobbling together the chapters and the outlines with minimal success. You know, I, I was. Because you're not a writer. No. I mean, you weren't a writer. <laughs> and I, I didn't understand say. the process. The agent, I mean, it was like, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Did it's you like, did you know that you wanted a book to be published? That was the purpose of what you were doing. Absolutely. I mean, I knew it was my job as, I mean, a, a, the charge of command, the charge of leadership is lifelong. You have that, that you will always be seen as, as a leader of your men as long as you breathe. And so it was my job if that's how I'm approaching a leadership philosophy, it's my job to also make sure that their legacy is captured and enshrined on the page. And so, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to write a book and I wanted it to be published and I wanted it to be in the library of Congress. So if people wanted to learn about what my men did in the war of Afghanistan, they could pull out out level tune and read it. And it was hard, man. It was like writing a book is really challenging. Selling, getting an agent's even harder and then finding a publisher that would publish your shit is even harder than that. And so it's just like, Got Did you just start writing and figure that the rest of that stuff would come together as it came together? The I, agent and the publisher and I all this start, other stuff? I, I started writing and writing and writing and wrote a proposal, submitted it to agents, got rejected by everyone I submitted it to, uh, rewrote it, submitted it to agents, got rejected by everyone I submitted it to. And eventually I just, you know, it was like a learning experience for me. It's like, I don't have this skill set. I need help. You know, and so then I started reading these military memoirs, researching the market, like doing everything I could to just soak up knowledge, learn everything I could about the phases of publishing. And I ended up reading House to House and a couple of other books that John Bruning had wrote. And I'm like, I love this. This guy's perfect. And I, you know, this is before like Facebook was a thing. <laughs> this was like, it was like Facebook was in its infancy, you know, and like I'm like on MySpace, like trying to find the guy. And I end up finding this. This is no, like, I end up stumbling across, this is like my me sleuthing on the internet, you know, stumbling across some cat website, and I see the name Shirley, it's, I see the name 
Bruning, right? Uh-huh. Sally Bruning. I can't remember what his sister's name is. Turns out to be his sister. And I'm on this cat website looking at a picture of these cats. <laughs> my ma'am, I write her this email on her website, and I'm like, ma'am, you know, my name's Sean Parnell. I did the, the, the whole shtick. Like, my guys were in Afghanistan. We had a tough deployment. I'm desperate to meet your brother. If, if you are indeed his sister, and I think you might be, can you please put me in contact with him? <laughs> Like long shot, man. And yeah. I remember like sitting there in front of the computer. I'm like, oh, damn, I don't want to send this email. I yeah. sound like a tool. Like he's yep. not going to work. Call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this a cat website. Um, yeah. And so I did. And a week later, I get an email from Bruning and I had a phone call with him. And after I, after how he, long did it take for him to comprehend the story that you had? In, I, I told him briefly, we had about, we had an hour phone conversation. He goes, this is, this is like the craziest infantry story I've ever heard. He's like, this, this, we need to get this book out there. And John just became, I mean, the, he just was so inspired by my men. He went to Afghanistan himself just to do the research, to learn about it, just the smells, the sights, the sounds. He just wanted to experience it. And I mean, he just, he was all in, man. And when, when, when he was all in, we had a great creative vibe, you know, and that, that, that's really hard to come by, you know, it's hard to come by a guy that's just mm-hmm. your personalities mesh, that creatives mesh. And I mean, we worked 12 hours a day on that book and ended up signing with an agent and, and then, uh, the agent that had rejected me two or three times already. Uh, but it's like, that's life, man. You know, yeah. so much of life is like, how many times you knock on that door? And the answer is until your knuckles bleed. And if that, if that don't work, you got to kick that fucker in. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm dropping F-bombs on your podcast. But, <laughs> but um, I promised I wouldn't do that. No, but I, but so I ended up submitting this proposal, which I thought was awesome to all the big five publishers gets rejected by every one of them. At least I thought every one of them at the time. And I'm like, up in some, you know, Walmart pool, like crying in my beer. I'm like, I failed my mission, but still like I'm publishing this. I don't care if I have to self publish it. Three or four months go by, I hear nothing. You know how that process goes, mm-hmm. you know, and you're never just did, I hadn't heard anything. I get a call from my agent and he's like, Hey, you know, David Highfill from William Morrow, HarperCollins, like love this, like he wants to buy it. And I ended up reading the email. He's like, I've been on vacation you know, abroad for a while. I stumbled across this. I don't think that there's no way that this could still be available, but I want it. I want, and so sold it to David and I've been publishing with William Morrow ever since. And um, it was just, <laughs> I'm sort of giving the cliff notes version of, the, of my publishing experience up into that point, trying to get an agent, trying to get a publisher. Yeah. Oh my God, the game is, is exhausting. But, you know, br- bringing Bruning on board was what really made it happen. I didn't have that skill set to do it. He, you know, I can write a good op-ed, like a good history paper, mm-hmm. but the, writing a good story well, is no, a he did, thing. Well, no, he did a great job. I mean, just talking to you for the last however many hours, 12 or whatever it's been, we've been sitting here. Uh, <laughs> a week long podcast. Yeah, like, <laughs> but, but he did a great job because, you know, the book sounds like you. The book reads like you. Yeah, so. he's, he's, he's since become just an amazing friend and he's, uh, he's, he's the most prolific military writer. I mean, he's, he wrote the Trident too with Jay Redmond okay, and, awesome. um, um, he's, you know, oh my gosh, uh, uh, Level Zero Heroes, Gombolowski about Marine uh, Raiders. Uh, I mean, he's, he's written a couple SEAL books. I mean, the guy's just 
uh, writes about World War II. The latest, his latest book is indestructible. I mean, the guy's just prolific. He's awesome. He's a great writer, and he and and more than that, he's a he's a legit historian that knows his stuff with a deep reverence for the military and the legacy of the warrior. And he's just he gets it. That's he just a, gets that's it. awesome. And so the book comes out. The book, yeah. the book does great, right? New yeah, York did. Times bestseller. It did, it did, but it was like a, it was not expected to. Like it, so it was not expected to. Nobody, I mean, like I was the newbie, I was the captain. Like mm-hmm. nobody really knew what to do. They changed the cover five times. Like I didn't have any media contacts or anything. And the book comes out, and it debuted on the list. Like it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. I think I don't think it did. I think it was like ten, might have even been twelve or something. Mm-hmm. But I was like holy shit like this is crazy and not only that it started ascending as the weeks went on and so it was the new york times bestseller list i think i think it were like 28 weeks or something like that again i I mean no one expected it Mm -hmm. um and then it came off the list and then around christmas time that year went back on the list and it's been boomeranging on and off the list ever since which is just sort of crazy that's awesome you know i think you know at, at the end of the day people just they just they take the book, they read it, and they pass it on to their friend, and that's that's what it's all about. That's why I wrote that book, you yep. know. And so, and so then you also started working with businesses, started talking, yes. started doing speaking engagements, and that's what you're still doing. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. I talk about i I talk about you know my experience in the military. I tell tell combat stories, talk about leadership as well. Servant leadership is you know is sort of the style that I stumbled upon. Um, and I talk about that. I talk about whether corporations and, you know, I've sort of started doing some executive coaching as well, which I'm sort of like, I'm kind of like that. I just like the dialogue. I like rapping about leadership and stuff. Um, um, more than that, I just like having the opportunity to learn with people that are a lot smarter than me too, you know. So coaching isn't a one-way street. You get to learn, you know, from each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's great to be able to learn from some leaders that have been able to hone their skills in the corporate world for a really long time. And uh and I've got a nonprofit now where where well I'm I'm part of I say I'm I am i am part of a nonprofit now. And that's that, AmericanWarriorInitiative.com. Yes. 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 Yeah. Where so we, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, so we are we're, we're partnered with an amazing mortgage company, Fairway Mortgage. You spoke at their yes. event. They're like yes. they're, great crew. They're great a group of people. And look, man, people people don't realize how special that company truly is. And I mean it from a cultural leadership standpoint. They they are a they are not like a bank, you know? They're not like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, but they're the fourth or fifth largest mortgage company in the world precisely because everybody wants to work for them. Yeah, great, you great know? attitude. They're great just awesome. I mean, I just, lo- sure. I just love them. I love them, and I've been working with them since... Um, I've been working with them since the book came out, 2012. I met the CEO, Steve Jacobson. That company had 638 people. Now the company has over 7,000 people. It's just... Awesome. And so... Jake just basically told Louise Thaxton, who is my co-founder, said, look, you know, they served us. Now it's our turn to serve them, figure out a program where we can give back. Take this, make something out of it, Louise. And Louise did. And she brought me on and we've been doing it ever since and gave 100% of the proceeds and donations to veterans. And now we sort of pivoted to giving away service dogs uh, to vets. And it's been awesome. It's been it's been an amazing thing to, to be able to give back to people who have given everything. And then at some point along the way, you decided you're going to write more books. Yeah, yeah, much to my chagrin. Yeah, I told you about how how the writing process is. You know, it's like it's you're like, a glutton for punishment. It's like bro. learning to ride a bicycle without a seat. 
while on fire, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I did. You know, I did. I, well, so, so you wrote, the first one that you wrote after Outlaw was Man of War. Yes. And these are, these are now novels. Yes, they're thrillers, yeah. So um, I always wanted to, like, I'm from Pittsburgh, so, like, I'm a big Steelers fan. My protagonist, my hero's name is Eric Steele. I also, also secretly, like, I had this brigade commander in Afghanistan in the 82nd Airborne. He came in, his name was Colonel Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. And the mm-hmm. guy was, like, 6'8", <laughs> massive. I'm like, you know what, man? If I ever if I ever accomplish my dreams and start writing fiction, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna name my protagonist Steel because it works <laughs> at a lot of different levels. So I did, and um, you know I just I and just, what's Eric Steele's background? So Eric Steele is a former special forces guy, former Green Beret. His special forces team gets overrun uh, in Afghanistan. He's he's one of two survivors put in for the Medal of Honor. Uh, the award itself is stopped in its tracks, and he's recruited for a secret. Uh, government program called the alpha program and the alpha program there's nine alphas at any given time in the world each responsible for a different geographic area of the world and it's based the alphas are basically the president's third option where you know all-out war diplomacy fails the president sends in an alpha to kick ass and take names and fix a situation and there's only nine of them eric Steele's the youngest most talented operator and so man of war uh throws Eric into a situation. It's my first book, throws Eric into an impossible situation against somebody that's an impossible enemy. He ends up establishing himself and learning a very important lesson that most warriors learn on the battlefield is that no matter how hard you try, you can't save everybody. You know, mostly the reason why I wanted to create this character is because I feel like, you know, our culture in this genre specifically is awash with like the anti-heroes, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Ragged edge. Yeah, the you know, he, he drinks a lot, but he's got a heart of gold, you know, like that guy, you know. And I just wanted to create a character who was good. He was good to the core of his being, and that good is exploited, right, in a number of different ways. Bad guys find and seize upon it. They exploit that there's goodness. The, there's the story. They put him in impossible situations. You know, you choose between the Syrian woman being raped and the mission. What do you choose, right? But the reason why I did this and I wanted to create this character is because he embodies the greatness and the heroism of what I, of the of the men that I witnessed on the battlefield. These guys deserve, and the, I think our country to a certain extent deserves a mainstream fiction hero that embodies honor, integrity, selflessness, duty, love of country, uh, and love of the preservation of innocent life. Right? I think at the core of the American warrior, we are protectors and we are liberators. Right? That's part of who we are, and that's who he is as well. And I think Eric Steele, you know, he's he's the biggest, fastest, strongest, smartest guy. And oftentimes he can, you know, he can save the woman in Syria who's being raped and still accomplish the mission because he is who he is. Right. Um, but sometimes, as you know, in combat, like there are impossible situations, you know, where you have to choose very literally between human life and the mission. And sometimes as leaders, we have to make those calculations on a split second basis. And so Eric Steele is presented with those situations time and time again in these books. In the first book, he is. He figures out he can't save everybody. In the second book, the theme is, you know, and themes are oftentimes like in the background. Maybe they're not consciously recognized as a reader of fiction. But the theme is, are you a man or are you a slave? You know, and the villain that he faces in the book is like the bad version of himself that's been tasked out by the Russian government to find and kill and target enemies of of Russia. And the villain that he faces, it's like sick and tired of being a slave. So he's just going to take the fight to everybody that he deems a king, 
and Eric Steele is sort of, it's the same thing, right? Like Eric Steele is a servant to the United States. And the difference is he's a servant, not a slave. And so that's the theme. And, you know, I always try to pit Eric Steele up against villains that would be his greatest enemy. And again, not unlike situations that soldiers face in the battlefield all the time. So that's the one that's coming out September. Yeah. All Out War comes out on September All 3rd. Out War. Yeah, Man of War came out September last year. September 3rd. Yeah. Here's a little excerpt. Because sometimes I just get fired up to read a little. I, 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 you, you basically read half of Outlaw Platoon on the air, and it was yeah. awesome. And I'm like, I want you to read all my audiobooks now. No offense to R.C. Bray, who's epic, but you know, you got a thing going there. I think you should. I think you could do it. So we're digging into this. This is All Out War. Thwap. Steel dove behind the Peugeot and yanked the high power from his waistband. He crawled toward the engine block, heart hammering in his chest at the realization that someone had just tried to kill him in broad daylight. The Metropolitan Police didn't hide the fact that they installed cameras on every block. They operated on the theory that if criminals knew they were going to be recorded, they might think twice before breaking the law. Whoever had taken a shot at him didn't give a shit. Because instead of running away, the shooter flicked the selector switch to full auto and opened up on Steele's hiding place. Thwap! Thwap! The Peugeot swayed under the onslaught. The car rocked on its hinges, the bullets blasting star-shaped holes through the aluminum skin as the shooter raked the car from stem to stern. Steele's plan was to hit him on the reload, but he never got the chance. Before the shooter ran through his first magazine, a second opened up. The bullets cut across the hood, punching through the metal with the sound of rocks on a tin roof. Steele judged that he had been under fire for less than 30 seconds, but in a gunfight, Time was subjective. <laughs> there you, you go. You got a knack for this, man. Yeah. You got a knack for well, it. Well, I like, you know, I started this whole thing off about talking about the the way that time, time slows down. Yes. And that's what I liked about this piece. It's like, yes, you, someone that's writing this, that actually understands that, that understands what it's like to have bullets cut, you know, hitting the roof, like, that's what I think makes these that's where the power comes from in these things, right? You've got the character that's truly good and you've got someone that's writing them that's been through these situations. So yeah, I hope, I mean, I think people, I mean, people like these books so far. I, I'm writing a third one. Uh, there's going to be at least two more out. Um, and, you know, I, I just feel like this country, we, we talk a lot about we ask the question, does America understand the medal of her warrior sons, right? That's a question I've asked myself since Outlaw Platoon came out. This character embodies all the greatest aspects of the warrior ethos that I witnessed in my soldiers on the battlefield. And all of these books, the, the whole reason I write them is to help answer that question. Does America understand the medal of her warrior sons, right? You know, writing nonfiction is one way right to do that to they can people can pick up outlaw platoon they can read it they can get a sense of what it was like on the battlefield boots on the ground a lot of people don't read nonfiction, and fiction is another way another audience uh it's another way to get that those types of values in front of americans to help them understand to help that bridge that cultural gap between you know veterans and uh warriors in society and people and citizens who reap the blessings of freedom on a day-to-day basis you know, it's all about reaching a wider audience. And I think these books give people an opportunity to do that. Yeah. No, well, that's, yeah, that's awesome. So we got the books. People will get these books. They'll definitely get Outlaw Platoon. 
Um, like I said, I had read a fraction of it today. You said I read half of it. I didn't even come close. Um, <laughs> but because there's so much more in there. And I'll tell you what, it was really hard for me to pick out what sections I wanted to read because so many sections, there's so much information there, not just about what happened and the experiences, but about, but about leadership. So, yeah, awesome books. And I think, I think you're going to see some people trying to get a hold of them. What else? You got the American Warrior Initiative dot com. Is there like, can you donate on that page? Is that yes, possible? yes. And one of the things that our charity does is it gives you the opportunity to earmark your donation. So if you want to donate for a service dog, pick a time and event that you want that money to go to, and when we award the service dog, you know that your money went to that dog. So uh, we just want to give people a sense that if they want to donate to us, and we're honored to have it, uh, we want to make sure that people are getting the best bang for their buck, and we want people to feel like they're a part of it. And Anything else on the horizon that we need to know about? Well, no, uh, just my all-out wars coming out in, in, I think, two weeks exactly, right? Just give the date, what, September? September 3rd. Yeah. September oh, yeah, 3rd. all-out wars coming out September 3rd. Yeah. You know, yeah. so um, I'm excited about that. You know, I'm on, I'm on Instagram, official Sean Parnell. I'm on Twitter, Sean Parnell USA. And for your speaking engagements, Sean, official Sean Parnell dot co. Dot co. This was a little trick. Yeah. Right. So the co is the new thing. Co is the new, all the dot coms are taken. So snatch up the dot co's while you can. But okay. official, I also own officialsonparnell.com as well. Check. But my website's officialsonparnell.co. Co. Yes. And so yeah, you can reach out to, to book me there too for speaking. Yes. That is awesome. I this I think we've covered. A decent amount. I think we're going on five hours, a <laughs> little over five hours. You this was now, awesome. You man. have now this set the record for the longest podcast, All Out War. Speaking of All Out War, Echo Charles, you know yeah. that we are currently, you know, us collectively in the crew here, the kind mm-hmm. of trooper zone that we're kind of within. Yeah. We're kind of conducting an All Out War on weakness. On weakness, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any, you know, kind of recommendations Tips. on how we could... Press forward with the war on weakness. Yeah, sure. What do you got? Oh uh, well, a few things. Kind of hard to transition, you know. We go through the, you know, through this heavy stuff, which is heavy. And now we're gonna talk about, I guess, some more lighthearted stuff. He's got a knife to your throat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sort of used to. Uh, maybe that. I should say we are five <laughs> hours deep. Yeah. Maybe this is one of our more abbreviated. <laughs> One of our more abbreviated, you know, scenarios. All right, so, yeah, we can make it quick, but it's still important, though. Okay. So we're not going to, you okay. see what I'm saying? All right. All right. Anyway, all right, we're against weakness. All right, first step, take jujitsu if you haven't already. Jiu-jitsu? I, I can do it, yeah. I did right. it in the Army. There you yeah. go. And Boom. he wrestled. Oh, yeah. Boom. So. Grappling. In Pennsylvania. Yes. So when you do jujitsu, if you do gi, which I re- we collectively recommend gi and no gi, <laughs> you're going to need a gi. What gi do we get? Origin. Origin gi made in America. American cotton, American threads yeah. all the way up to the gi. Boom. Yeah. yeah so not, not cotton from somewhere else and then American no. made. No. American made from American the ground made. up. Boom. Origin gi. Kind of a big deal. So yeah, originmain.com. If you ever want to come up, we got a factory in Maine. We're resurrecting manufacturing in America. Yes, we are. We have... 50 people up there at the factory building the best geese. We started with geese, but guess what else we're making now? Jeans, t-shirts, sweatshirts. We're making everything. We're going to rebuild this country from the inside out. Watch. And in the meantime, if you want to support, you go to originmain.com. 
Yep, so you can eat all this stuff. And not to mention supplements, or yes. should I say, to mention supplements. Yes, supplements. So a lot supplementation. Of times, yeah, for yeah, for physicality, if you will, and cognitive. Cognitive. Don't forget about so that. So mental <laughs> and physical. Okay, what do we got? We got uh, joint warfare, which. Joint warfare and krill oil, kind of brothers and sisters as far as supplements go. If you, well, cousins. Cousins. Either go way. Cousins. They're related because they help support your joints, which, in my opinion, has has kind of sorted itself out to be the most important supplement. We, we, we agree. From the ground up. Boom, keeps you in the game. But yeah, it keeps your joints good. Some cognitive enhanced discipline and discipline go. So we got that going on. We got milk. Additional protein. Additional. Pro- do you, what? What's your favorite flavor ice cream, Sean Parnell? Cookies and cream. Cookies and cream. Hundred percent. Okay. We don't have cookies and cream. Yeah. Whoa. We gotta. Get, Looks we like gotta, we gotta, we gotta get remedy that situation. Uh, yeah. What's your second favorite ice cream flavor? Cookie dough. We don't have that either. <laughs> okay. This chocolate. Need some cookies. Chocolate. There this, is. You chocolate, need. To, we need to get some, some cookies. Well, of course. Yeah, we yeah. need to get some cookies in the game. We all need some cookies. Do you like mint chocolate chip? You like, I can do mint chocolate chip. Oh, that was weak. Yeah, that's okay. I can do so maybe, it. Maybe no, milk isn't for you. It's cool. Maybe milk it's isn't for, for me. you. It's for me. I want it. It can be for me. <laughs> he it can be for me. Chocolate. chocolate. Yes, we do have chocolate. We have strawberry, which is amazing. We have peanut butter, which is equally amazing. Yes. Strawberry might be the most amazing. And then we have mint chocolate chip, which is, see, this is what's nice. If you would have started a supplement company, guess what flavor you would have? Cookies Chocolate and cream. cookie cream dough, whatever you just said. <laughs> it's just ne- guess it's who started just ne- the supplement company? I did. So I, guess what we have? Number one, mint chocolate chip. That's my favorite flavor. Is that flavor. your favorite flavor? Oh, hell yeah. yeah number too. two, peanut butter. What's my second favorite? Yes, that's number two. Number three, strawberry. So we went right in the orders of things that I like. Now, I, since you, you're kind you of on board with it in your image, if you're kind of on board with the program, we can work on some cookies and cream. Of course, I'm on board. I mean, I feel like okay. cookies and cream yeah. is a very mainstream uh, idea and concept. It, it's it a very actually mainstream it taste. I, I would agree with that. Um, well, it just sort of maybe slipped under the radar, right? Because yeah, you like maybe. cookies and cream. Not, 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 not okay. gonna buy it like actively. Gotcha. So maybe I, not. I would. Yeah. It's odd that. That Sean's like, oh, I can do mint chocolate chip. I can do usually, it. usually mint chocolate yes, chip is either it. like, oh, man, I don't mess with the mint chocolate. That's just junk or that's my favorite one. I feel usually like, it's really polar like that. Yeah, I feel like why go with mint chocolate chip when there are so many good chocolatey goodness tastes like chocolate, regular chocolate or cookies and cream okay. or cookie okay, dough. Okay, look, yeah. this may be not a topic we need to talk about right now because I'm starting to get a little bit, you know, frustrated at the whole situation know, here. People being anti Mint chocolate chip. I know that is pretty psychotic in my opinion, too. But I feel the same way about Sam. Let's go. So we get all that. We got chocolate white tea. Also, you've been drinking chocolate white tea. This we know. I have. Drink like eight of them. Oh, my God. It's amazing. I did. I drank 14 of them. That's like 14,000 grams of caffeine. No. 60 grams. There's 60 grams per 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 cup. So, yeah. So there's that. Plus the antioxidants. That's the thing that you felt kicking. Honestly, I can feel the antioxidants. kicking. It's like a super soldier serum. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a good way to put it. So that's originmain.com if you want any of that stuff. Yeah. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. And this is where you can get more rash guards for jujitsu and for a lot. Like, I was was looking on, uh, I think it was Twitter. Anyway, somebody who's using it for like a shooting competition, rash guard. Mm -hmm. For a shooting competition, 
for jujitsu and for something else too. So it's multi-purpose is what I'm saying. Also t-shirts. Jockostore.com, t-shirts, rash guards, trucker, hats. Discipline equals freedom. Beanies, hoodies, all that kind of stuff. Also subscribe to the podcast if you have not subscribed to it yet, which is just absolutely crazy. But as Echo has proved to me, sometimes it happens. And don't forget that we also have the Warrior Kid podcast. You do Warrior Kid? Warrior Kid podcast. I'd I'd be perfect for that podcast because I'm basically, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Yes, you could could pretend to be the 10-year-old that you are. I am a 10-year-old. I have no issue. I I could rock that podcast. The Warrior Kid podcast. And if you want to support the Warrior Kid podcast, you can support a Warrior Kid, Aiden, who's making soap from goat milk, irishoaksranch.com. Don't forget we have a YouTube channel. If you want to see Echo's legit videos, we also have Psychological Warfare. If you need a little spot, psychological spot on your life. Moments of weakness. Moments of weakness need to be overcome. iTunes, Google Play, MP3 of all kinds, Psychological Warfare. The artist's name is Jocko Jocko Willink. (laughs) Flipside Canvas, my brother Dakota Meyer makes things for you to hang on your wall. Some people call it art. I call it things you hang on your wall. And they say sure, sure. stuff that will keep you on the path. Yep. So you can check that out. Dakota's yep. amazing. And those flip side canvases are pretty cool. They are awesome. Yes, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Also, on it, on it.com slash Jocko. This is where you can get workout gear, some cool green supplements as well. A lot of good stuff on there. That's where I get pretty much, not pretty much, 100% my kettlebells. And I got rings, of course, too. Best workout equipment. On it.com slash Jocko. And don't forget books. We got some books. We have Outlaw Platoon. We have Man of War and we have All Out War. Those are Sean's books. Freaking get them. I have a new book that has been unleashed into the world. It is called Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. It is available for pre-order right now. You guys know the deal. You want that first edition and you know it. (laughs) You want to get that first first edition. Otherwise, when you come to a muster in a year and you're like, hey, can you sign this? And I'll, I'll if it's a first edition, I'll be like, yeah, absolutely, bro, first edition. <laughs> <laughs> or if you have second edition, I'll say, oh, cool, yeah, I'll sign yeah, it. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. Obviously, you weren't in the game, you weren't supporting, you weren't trying to help us out. So, Leadership yeah. Strategy and Tactics Field Manual, you can pre order that right now. Uh, Way of the Warrior Kid 3, Way of the Warrior Kid 2, and Way of the Warrior Kid 1. Get your kids on the path. Get your neighbor's kids on the path. Your neighbors, look at your neighbor. He's out there not paying attention to his kids. Yeah. He's he's watching the game instead of out there getting after it with his kids, right? Don't right. let it happen. You just you just just get an old Amazon box, put the put them in there and just put it on there. Like they just showed up. You have yeah. to be involved in the trajectory of the lives of your children. You have to be actively involved and engaged. Yes. And sometimes you see someone that doesn't have someone. Right? There's no one there, man. Maybe the dad's just working hard. That happens. Mm-hmm. Hey, I know what dad that worked hard. This one. I was gone all the time. Yeah. And I would have loved to have had these books when my kids were younger, but I didn't. So I wrote them. So there you go. Way the Warrior Kid. Get the series. Also, we got a little kid. Who? How was your youngest? Six. Six. Oh, yeah. We got Mikey and the Dragons for the little one. Is that a girl or a boy? Uh, boy. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mikey and the Dragons. We'll, we'll get that going on. That's for a little bit younger, just a little bit younger than Warrior Kids. You can order that one as well. Discipline equals freedom. Field Overcoming manual. Overcoming fear. That's what Mikey yep. and the Dragons is. Yep. It is indeed. Yeah, big Very helpful. Good. Yeah. Some good people bit. say it's a kid's book. 
other people say it's for everyone discipline equals freedom field manual the way to get after it as a grown human but that one gets give, given to like 15 16 year old kids yeah that are just needing a little bit of or sometimes they're on the path but they want to stay on the path so yeah discipline equals freedom field manual that audio is not on audible it's it's an album with tracks which mp3 Wherever you get them. Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy Leadership, the first two books that I wrote with my brother, Leif Babin. And those are about taking all these principles that we talked about today, about combat and how they apply to leadership in the world. We got Echelon Front, that's my leadership consultancy. And what we do is solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. EF Online, this is where you can train your leadership in an interactive online situation because leadership training is not an inoculation. You don't learn it in one shot. You gotta study it. You gotta understand the principles like Sean and I were talking about earlier. You gotta understand the principles. The only way you do that is by going through them over and over again and getting put in scenarios where you have to make decisions as a leader. That's what happens in EF Online. We got the muster. Chicago's done. Denver sold out, sorry. And then Sydney, Australia. That's once December 4th and 5th. That's the only one you have the opportunity to go to now. So if you wanna come and you miss the other ones, come to Sydney, Australia. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com for details. And we have EF Overwatch, where we're taking proven leaders from spec ops and from combat aviation and placing them into companies in the civilian sector. And since communication is an important, in the field, you gotta be able to communicate, and in life, you gotta be able to communicate. So if you wanna communicate with us some more, because five hours isn't enough to hang out with Echo and Sean and Jocko. That just wasn't enough, you need some more. Sean is at official sean parnell dot co that's the thing yep his twitter is sean parnell usa his instagram is official sean parnell his facebook is official sean parnell for echo and i we are also on twitter on instagram we're also on dein frozen blikey (laughs) echo is at echo charles and i am at jocko willink echo you've been very talkative today got anything else no, I'm all talked out. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, any any closing thoughts? Yeah, man, I'm just uh, it's it's a blessing to come back uh, from Afghanistan. I think like anyone that's been to war and come home knows that every day you got to wake up, you got to earn it, every single breath, uh, live a life worthy of the sacrifice of the people that you fought with over there, and part of that means like being there for your kids and thanking God that. I was able to come back and have kids and be able to pass on that warrior generation and and these types of mindsets to them. Um, So I'm excited to to get back to my kids and be a dad and do cool stuff with them, you know, play some Pokemon. You know how it goes. (laughs) I know you do that too, Jocko. Don't try to be tough. You can either play Pokemon or you can teach them, you know, jujitsu and how to shoot a bow and arrow. I can do that too. Don't judge me with your with your judging eyes. <laughs> always judging. Always, judging. <laughs> always, always watching. Shoot, shoot the bow. Shoot the bow. Uh, but hey, man, seriously, uh, thanks for coming on. I know people have been trying to set this up over social media for a long time. We've a been long going back time. and forth. Years. I feel like it's been years. It, it has been years. I bet if we went back and did the research, it's probably been a couple of years that people have been trying to get you to come on here. I've been just, you know. The door's been open, and finally we were able to get you out here, which is awesome. And uh, thanks for your service. Thanks to Outlaw Platoon, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment of the famed 10th Mountain Division. Thanks to all you guys.
for your service and to the rest of our military members out there who face incredible challenges day in and day out and no matter what comes their way they look at it and they say we got this no worries and think about that America when you're lying safely in your bed at night and to our police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and border patrol and secret service and all the first responders out there, you all have that same attitude on our home front, that you got this. So thank you for keeping us safe and to everyone else out there, life can be rough. And there are times that life can seem like sustained combat operations but in most cases there's no one trying to kill you there's no one assaulting you and your team with a wide array of devastating weapons looking to come and cut your head off but whatever you are facing you can make it through and the best way to do that is to do what outlaw platoon did take the fight to the enemy be default aggressive don't sit back and allow bad things to put you on your heels Go on the offense, counterattack aggressively, and get after it. And until next time, this is Sean Parnell and Echo and Jocko. Out.